Conceived in Liberty, Volume 2, Salutary Neglect, The American Colonies in the First Half of the 18th Century, by Murray and Rothbard. By liberty, I understand the power which every man has over his own actions and his right to enjoy the fruit of his labor, art, and industry, as far as by it he hurts not the society or any members of it by taking from any member or by hindering him from enjoying what he himself enjoys. The fruits of a man's honest industry are the just rewards of it, ascertained to him by natural and eternal equity, as is his title to use them in the manner which he thinks fit. And thus, with the above limitations, every man is sole lord and arbiter of his own private actions and property. Indeed, liberty is the divine source of all human happiness. To possess in security the effects of our industry is the most powerful and reasonable incitement to be industrious. And to be able to provide for our children and to leave them all that we have is the best motive to beget them. But where property is precarious, labor will languish. The privileges of thinking, saying, and doing what we please, and of growing as rich as we can without any other restriction than that by all this we hurt not the public, nor one another, are the glorious privileges of liberty, and its effects to live in freedom, plenty, and safety. Alas, power encroaches daily upon liberty, with a success too evident, and the balance between them is almost lost. Tyranny has engrossed almost the whole earth, and striking at mankind, root and branch, makes the world a slaughterhouse. Cato's Letters Volume 2, Introduction The Colonies in the Eighteenth Century After the upheavals of the period of the Glorious Revolution in England, late 1680s, early 1690s, the American colonies had settled down into an uneasy truce by the end of the first decade of the 18th century. During the first half of the 18th century, or more precisely from about 1710 until the end of the French and Indian War in 1763, the colonies settled into a relatively stable society and form of government. Stable relative to the swift and dramatic changes of the preceding century when the American colonies were founded. The history of the colonies during this period can therefore be examined in a far more cross-sectional and less chronological manner than can the early century or the dramatic and exciting pre-revolutionary and revolutionary eras that followed. But the first half of the 18th century was not only a stable time for the colonies. It also saw far greater uniformity between the separate colonies than could have been imagined in the preceding century. The diversity of religion, of motivation, of government, of culture, between the various colonies had been enormous. 
What possible connection could there be between the grim Puritan theocrats of Massachusetts Bay and the tolerant, pacific, and enterprising Quakers of Pennsylvania? Between the Puritans and the aristocratic landed elite of tobacco-growing Virginia? Or between the Dutch in New Amsterdam and the Swedes on the Delaware? But the events and upheavals of the 1680s and 1690s had sown for the first time a firm thread of uniformity throughout the colonies, the common imposition of political institutions, a common relationship to the mother country, Great Britain. These common experiences were slowly but surely to weld a solidarity between these once totally disparate settlements, a solidarity that would ripen. Without these unifying experiences over the first half of the century, the united effort of the American Revolution would have been impossible. Politically, virtually every colony had a royally appointed governor, an upper house or council, and a democratically elected lower house or assembly engaged in a quiet but critical power struggle with the royal appointees. Those colonies that remained proprietary, owned by an English recipient of royal largesse, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, were governed very similarly, the only difference being that the governors were appointed by a proprietor instead of by the crown. Only the anomalous, self-governing colonies of Connecticut and Rhode Island were exceptions to this common experience of government during the 18th century. Another vital unifying factor was the spread of a conscious libertarian ideology throughout the colonies during this period, influenced directly by English libertarians who engaged not only in trenchant theoretical arguments, but also in a caustic and powerful critique of the political institutions within Britain itself. In the vital field of religion, the contrastic deistic movement and the Great Awakening spread throughout the colonies. If the result was a deep and long-lasting split between the rationalistic elite and the evangelical masses, still both movements served to unify the colonies by cutting across the previously disparate and contrasting religious passions of the separate colonies. Before turning to these common experiences, which tended to unify the colonies and which set the stage, directly or indirectly, for the new nation in the latter part of the century, let us turn to a rundown of the separate colonies, which, after all, were still separate and diverse in the first half of the century. Part 1. Developments in the Separate Colonies Volume 2. Chapter 1. Liberalism in Massachusetts The first half of the 18th century was a relatively stable period for the colonies in many ways, especially in internal political institutions. As was true for most of the other colonies, Massachusetts politics became a tug of war between the royal governor and the popularly elected assembly. The key to the power of the lower house was its control over the purse strings of government, and it steadfastly refused to vote a permanent salary for the governor. 
Not only was the voted sum generally far smaller than the governor wished, but the salary was granted at the end of the year, after the legislature had had a chance to appraise his actions. In short, the governor's salary was always based on good behavior. By 1731, the British government had authorized the governor to accept annual grants of salary, a final victory for the prerogative of the lower house. The lower house was not as successful in the controversy over selection of its speaker. The assembly contended, quite properly, that it had a right to choose its officers, but it was finally overruled in 1725 in favor of the governor's assertion of the right of veto over the post of speaker. Leadership of the House opposition to the executive was directed by Alicia Cook, who, at his death in 1715, was succeeded by the equally popular Alicia Cook, Jr., One highly significant development in Massachusetts was the disintegration of the attempt to impose comprehensive wage and price controls. Having lapsed by the mid-17th century after repeated failures, a bill for comprehensive maximum wage controls, attempting to compel wage rates lower than the market, was introduced in 1670 and in 1672. The more oligarchic council of magistrates twice approved the bill, but the more popular lower house twice defeated the plan. The Committee of Nine of the Massachusetts General Court, representing the views of the small-scale artisan employers, lamented the oppression of tanners, glovers, and shoemakers by their being obliged by the market to pay journeyman employees' wages that they deemed too high. The committee also attacked the gall of journeymen in daring to desire and wear expensive clothes and in asking for wages that would pay for them. There seemed to be no understanding of how wages are set in an unhampered market. Finally, in 1675, an extensive but less comprehensive piece of maximum wage control and sumptuary legislation was passed. The legislation was clearly designed to keep the lower orders in their place. Significant of the class bias of the regulations was the fact that only laborers were to be punished and heavily fined for receiving wages above the legal maximum. No penalties were to be levied on employers paying those wages. By 1690, however, enforcement of the legislation had begun to break down. And from then on, the laws proved to be increasingly ineffective and obsolete. The collapse of the regulations and of their enforcement accelerated after 1720. It was not only in the South that the proportion of Negro slaves to white bond servants greatly increased after the turn of the 18th century. Although forced labor played a less dominant role in the Northern economy, a similar shift occurred in Massachusetts. From a class of young English servants bonded to family masters, the coerced laborers became largely an alienated, heterogeneous group of non-English whites and Negro slaves. In the 1630s, 95% of forced labor in Massachusetts was white and 5% Negro. 
By the 1740s, however, 25% of forced labor was white and 75% Negro. The increasing alienation of the slaves and the servants led the Puritan members of the oligarchy to try to win their allegiance by rationalizing their ordeal as somehow natural, righteous, and divine. So have tyrants always tried to dupe their subjects into approving, or at least remaining resigned to, their fate. Hence the Reverend Samuel Willard, in his A Complete Body of Divinity, 1726, slyly linked the supposed hierarchical order of heaven to the existing order on earth, to the ranks and orders among mankind in this world, which God, rather than the oligarchy, hath appointed especially the subjection of servants to masters, was divinely appointed, made necessary by man's fall. All servitude began in curse. Servants, according to the emphatically non-servant Willard, were duty-bound to revere and obey their masters, to serve them diligently and cheerfully, and to be patient and submissive even to the cruelest master. A convenient ideology indeed for the masters. Unfortunately, the Reverend Mr. Willard lamented, some masters are indeed insufferably harsh and hence provoke their subjects, and some servants are disorderly enough to be uneasy and not willing to bear the yoke or be under any command. The Reverend Cotton Mather, always an eloquent and leading spokesman for despotism, warned the slaves and servants in a sermon that there is a fondness for freedom in many of you. Mather advised the slaves that they were living better materially than they would be under freedom. Furthermore, slavery had been appointed for them by God. Singing for others the siren song of supposedly contented and blissful security, Mather purred, Your servitude is gentle. You are treated with more than mere humanity, and fed and clothed and lodged as well as you can wish for, and you have no cares upon you, but only to come when you are called and do what you are bidden. All the subjects must do, in short, was to surrender their natural-born gift of freedom and independence, to subject themselves completely to the whims and commands of others, who could then be blindly trusted to take care of them permanently. How justify such unreasoning trust? Mather's role, of course, was not to engage in disinterested inquiry into the well-being of the slaves. Despite the myths of ideology and the threats of the whip, servants and slaves found many ways of protest and rebellion. Masters were continually denouncing servants for being disobedient, sullen, and lazy. Little wonder, since they scarcely had reason to be cheerful or energetic. They did not live up to the ideal set for them by the obliging Cotton Mather in his A Good Master Well Served, 1696. Servants, you are the animate, separate, active instruments of other men. Servants, your fingers, your hands, your feet are your masters, 
and they should move according to the will of your masters. One servant declared that he would much rather be in hell than serve his master. Another, upon murdering his master, confessed that he had often told himself such words of reason as these, I am flesh and blood, as well as my master, and therefore I know no reason why my master should not obey me, as well as I obey him. The Reverend Benjamin Wadsworth in The Well-Ordered Family, 1712-1719, set forth the problem of the slaves and servants' fondness for liberty, and hence their rebelliousness, quite clearly. Some servants are very high, proud. They'll scarce be commanded or restrained. They are much for liberty. They must have liberty for their tongues to speak almost what and when they please, liberty to give or receive visits of their own accord and when they will, liberty to go and come almost when they will, without telling why or wherefore, such liberty they contend for. They won't be ruled, governed, restrained. Such servants, Wadsworth thundered, are very wicked in their plain disobedience to God. They trample God's law, His authority under their feet. Thus, God was adroitly linked to the rule of the masters. Runaway servants and slaves were a problem from the beginning in Massachusetts Bay. Mathard, Willard, and Wadsworth took care to denounce running away as a grievous sin. And from the earliest days of the colony, Massachusetts law allowed the conscription of boats and horses in any chase after runaway labor. It is not surprising that protest and rebelliousness took different forms among different classes of servants. The protest of contracted servants who had friends or relatives in the colony, tended to take the form of unruly behavior or of taking their case to the courts. The more alienated and oppressed Negroes and foreign servants tended to run away. Thus, from 1629 through 1750, the latter class accounted for 25% of the cases of legal protest. But for 69%, of the runaways. Only a few servants bothered to go to court, and running away accounted for almost half of the recorded cases of protest, the latter growing with the shift in the type of forced labor during the 18th century. Here was a significant indication that the propaganda of the Puritan apologist was becoming increasingly ineffective. Increasingly, the unruliness of servants and slaves reduced the profitability of such labor for their masters. And Samuel Sewell pointed out that the Negro's drive toward liberty made him a poor servant. In the midst of this general miasma of opinion, some courageous voices were raised in behalf of liberty, even for Negroes. The eminent merchant, Judge Samuel Sewell, wrote in the selling of Joseph, 1700, that liberty is a real value next to life. Despite the fall, all men, as the sons of Adam, have equal rights into liberty. To the excuse that the Negroes had already been enslaved through wars in Africa, 
Sewell trenchantly reply that an unlawful war can't make lawful captives, and by receiving we are in danger to promote and partake in their barbarous cruelties. Indeed, the excuse of humanitarianism for purchasing Negro slaves rings thin. If true, the slave traders should have instantly released their charges instead of herding and dragging them at great cost in life to the New World. The Massachusetts Charter of 1691 had ensured religious liberty for all Protestants and had eliminated the religious test for voting. An established church, however, was still permitted, and the general court quickly moved to establish a Puritan church in each town to be supported by the taxpayers. The ministers, however, were to be selected locally by the voters of each town, including non-members of the church. This system was quickly shifted to confine the choice of a minister to the church's members, subject to ratification by the town voters. Already in 1694, opposition to the church by non-Puritans was blocking the ratification of ministers, and a new Massachusetts law provided for ratification by a council of elders of several churches, which council could then override a negative vote by the town. Despite these props and privileges, however, the Puritan establishment soon began to crumble. Once again, it was the Quakers who took the lead in religious liberty. Despite attempts in 1702, 1706, and later to compel Quakers to pay for the Puritan establishment and to force Quaker towns to support a Puritan minister, Quaker resistance continued. The Quakers kept protesting to England over the compulsion to pay the demands of the priest. Finally, in 1728, the Massachusetts establishment was seriously weakened. A law of that year permitted Quakers and Baptists to refuse to pay taxes for support of Puritan ministers on the grounds of conscience. The provision was hedged about with numerous conditions, such as the necessity of the objectors to attend some church and their taking an oath of allegiance to the colony. But in 1731, all Quakers were unconditionally exempted from religious taxes, and four years later, Baptists were likewise exempted. Only in new towns without a minister were Baptists and Quakers still obliged to pay for the Puritan church. And even in new towns, the regulation was often unenforced, as witness a law of 1759 allowing non-Quakers in any town with a Quaker majority to elect as many assessors for church taxes as the Quakers. Thus, by the middle of the 18th century, the Puritan establishment had, to some extent, broken down in Massachusetts. Hand in hand with the Puritan establishment came, in 1692, a law compelling each town to provide for and impose compulsory schooling on its inhabitants. Many towns, however, did not abide by the provisions or did not impose penalties for violations. Massachusetts then tightened the screws, imposing more stringent enforcement in 1701. 
Further linking government schooling with religion was the fact that the schoolmaster had to be approved by a board of Puritan ministers. Inability to enforce compulsory schooling led to still further interventions and to still more rigorous and brutal attempts at enforcement. Not only were fines increased on towns not furnishing compulsory schooling, but in 1735, parents not educating their children in ways thought fit by the state might see their children seized by the government and shipped to arbitrarily designated foster families. In general, rule in Massachusetts by the Puritan oligarchy, once so rigorous and so fanatical, had been greatly weakened by blows from without and by crumbling from within by the end of the 17th century. With the advent of the 18th, the decline of Puritan control accelerated still further. For the first time, moreover, a determined liberal opposition developed within the church and was able to retain a foothold. Within the church there had emerged with the Salem witch hunt liberal opposition led by the merchant Thomas Brattle and by the Reverend John Wise of Ipswich, who had gone to prison for protesting the Andros tyranny. In 1699, a group of influential liberals of Boston, headed by Thomas Brattle, his brother William, and John Leverett, founded the Brattle Street Church within the Puritan fold. The new church issued a manifesto endorsing the halfway covenant, eliminating the requirement of a public examination for church membership, and allowing halfway covenanters a vote in the church government. Conservative ministers were outraged. And such ministers as Increase Mather, John Higginson, and Nicholas Noyes fretted and fumed, but such men no longer had the coercive power of their forebears, and the Brattle Street Church survived and flourished. Perhaps even more vital a blow to the old diehards was the loss of old guard control of Harvard College, which had been set up as the chief training ground of the Puritan theocracy. The theocrats had always been unlucky in their choice of presidents for the college, the first two being heretical from the orthodox Puritan viewpoint in regard to infant baptism. That is to say, they opposed it. Succeeding presidents were unwilling to give the post their full time. As a result, with President Increase Mather away in England obtaining the new Massachusetts Charter in 1692, administration of the college fell into the hands of two outstanding liberal tutors, John Leverett and William Brattle. It was largely Leverett and Brattle who converted Harvard from an old guard Puritan stronghold to a truly liberal arts college, reflecting new ideas of science and rationality. Mather, finally seeing what was happening by the late 1690s, tried to lead a counter-revolution to regain control of Harvard for the conservatives, but he was hampered by his unwillingness to give up his congregation and make Harvard his full-time activity. Mather persuaded the Massachusetts General Court in 1699 to exclude all but Orthodox Puritans from the presidency or governing fellows of the college, but the royal governor, Lord Bellomont, vetoed the scheme. Finally, in the fall of 1701, with Mather relinquishing the post, 
the General Court elevated Vice President Willard to the presidency of Harvard. The Mathers were appalled regarding the accession of Reverend Mr. Willard, who was also inclined to heresy on infant baptism, as the first step down the slippery slope to liberal control of Harvard. When Brattle and Leverett, who Mather had dismissed from the ruling corporation of the college, were reinstated to their membership by the general court, the Mathers' fears seemed confirmed. They were further aggravated by the general court's allowing Willard to reside in Boston most of the week, thus continuing to leave effective control in the hands of Leverett and Brattle. The climax of the struggle over Harvard came in 1707 with the death of the Reverend Mr. Willard. The conservatives made a desperate effort to elect one of the Mathers to the presidency, but the fellows of Harvard Corporation selected none other than John Leverett. The conservatives were extremely bitter. Not only was Leverett the leader of the liberals, but he, being a mere layman, his appointment ended ecclesiastical control of the college. With the help of Governor Joseph Dudley, who had long left the fold of the Orthodox, and a petition of 39 liberal Puritan ministers, Leverett's selection and salary were confirmed by the general court. The victory of liberalism at Harvard was sealed at long last. The victory was further confirmed when, a few years later, the liberals won unshakable control of the board of fellows of the corporation. The Mathers, bitter to the last, each wrote a letter of denunciation to Dudley, giving up Harvard as a lost cause. For his part, Leverett went on to put the stamp of liberalism and freedom of inquiry upon Harvard and to help make it a vital intellectual center in the colonies. Control of Harvard, the main center for training young ministers and laymen, meant control of the future of the Puritan church. As Thomas Wharton Baker writes, in short, the control of Harvard by the liberal group meant that the future was theirs, with the triumph of Leverett and the Brattles and the group they represented, one of the chief props of the old order, the Bible Commonwealth of Winthrop and Cotton, was knocked away. One of the first products of the new Leverett-trained generation of Massachusetts intellectuals was the Reverend Benjamin Coleman, one of Leverett's favorite pupils, who graduated from Harvard in the 1690s. Coleman was selected the first minister of the new Brattle Street Church and was largely responsible for the church's defiant liberal manifesto. By the second decade of the 18th century, the Reverend Mr. Coleman had become one of Harvard's fellows and one of its most influential members. Defeated at every hand, the Mathers and the other Puritan reactionaries decided to counterattack by transforming Puritan church polity into virtual Presbyterianism. Puritanism had always been an uneasy halfway house between congregational and Presbyterian rule. Now, seeing that individual congregations could be captured by the liberal forces, the old guard decided to impose collective synodal control on the individual churches, a ministerial convention of the Puritan ministers of Massachusetts had already begun to meet by the turn of the century. 
In 1705, the convention adopted the Massachusetts Proposals, which had been adopted by the principal Boston divines under the lead of the Mathers. The convention made the sweeping proposal that ministerial associations, each headed by a standing council, should have the power to examine and license ministers and assign ministers to the various churches. The proposals were eventually adopted, with the exception of the rule of each association by a council. The result of the change was a shift of Massachusetts Puritanism in the direction, though not a complete adoption, of Presbyterian ecclesiology. Sturdy, liberal resistance to this shift was headed by the redoubtable Reverend John Wise. Defending Congregational Polity, Wise published two famous and widely read works, The Church's Quarrel Exposed, 1710, second edition, 1715, and A Vindication of the Government of New England Churches, 1717. Impelled by his interest in the forms of church government, Wise widened his focus to society and government as a whole, steeping himself in the works of the great late 17th century liberal German jurist Samuel Pufendorf. Wise concluded that, by natural right, all men are born free thus extending the implications of his individualist argument far beyond church affairs. Wise also concluded that power is originally in the people, and that government should limit the natural freedom of the individual as little as consistent with social peace. Wise leveled a trenchant attack on rule by oligarchy, For what is it that cunning and learned men can't make the world swallow as an article of their creed if they are once invested with an uncontrollable power and are to be the standing orators to mankind in matters of faith and obedience? The natural equality of all men in liberty meant that government was never established by God or nature to give one man a prerogative to insult over another. Volume 2, Chapter 2, Presbyterian Connecticut During the first half of the 18th century, Connecticut, Mirabile Dictu, replaced Massachusetts Bay as the fountainhead of Calvinist orthodoxy in America. While the Massachusetts Church was prevented by determined opposition from budging much beyond its halfway position between Congregational and Presbyterian polities, Connecticut Puritanism eagerly went all the way toward a Presbyterian position. By adopting the Saybrook Platform in 1708, the Puritans of Connecticut became virtually Presbyterian in church government. Connecticut now had an established Presbyterian church. Not only that, the Orthodox Calvinist of Connecticut, seeing Harvard go the way of liberalism, determined to establish another college to reestablish a fountainhead of rigid Calvinism for New England. Accordingly, Yale was founded in 1701, receiving its permanent location at New Haven in 1716. Its original name was Collegiate School of Connecticut, becoming Yale College in 1718. 
The governing body of the college consisted completely of ministers who, it was ruled, must be free of all deviations, whether to the ecclesiastical right or left. Even the Connecticut establishment, however, found that it had to relax its full rigor. As in Massachusetts, it was compelled, after a while, to exempt members of various religious sects from having to pay taxes to support the Presbyterian establishment. In 1727, the Connecticut General Court passed a law exempting any Anglicans from payment, and two years later, this immunity was extended to Quakers and Baptists. Volume 2, Chapter 3, Libertarianism in Rhode Island Though lacking its old-time consistency and zeal, Rhode Island continued as one of the most individualistic of the American colonies. No church establishment marred its libertarian record, and many religious sects flourished peacefully side by side in the small colony. Indeed, to ensure the prevalence of the voluntary principle, Rhode Island passed a law in 1715 forbidding any churches from obtaining any of their revenue by compulsion. And as there was no establishment, neither was there a network of government schools, as in Massachusetts and Connecticut, to impose Calvinist theology upon the inhabitants. The Quakers, and especially the Baptists, progressed rapidly under this libertarian regime. True to its tradition of freedom and free trade, Rhode Island paid even less attention than the other colonies to British trade restrictions. Nor did Rhode Islanders, with their Quaker traditions of anti-militarism, treat war as sacred. They continued happily to trade with their designated enemies, even in time of war. The militia, too, was raised strictly voluntarily, without imposing the compulsion of conscription. Indeed, the towns themselves elected their militia officers, a highly democratic check on the military that was abandoned in 1713 under the urging of Governor Samuel Cranston. But town voting for militia officers was restored the following year, after violent controversy. However, this unique system was finally scrapped in 1718 when Rhode Island joined the other colonies in appointing militia officers by the General Assembly and the governor. In fact, by 1741, Rhode Island had taken a large step toward militarism by establishing a permanent council of war consisting of the governor, the council, and the various high officers of the colony. No colony was as decentralized as Rhode Island. Each town largely governed itself, and often an individual town would simply neglect to tax its inhabitants for military or other expenses. As a result, taxes in Rhode Island were in fact minimal. Twice yearly general elections for numerous posts, coupled with an eager willingness to turn officials out, also kept a continuing check on arrogance or entrenched power in the hands of public officials. Government in itself was so lax as to be charmingly irregular and freewheeling, and even liberals such as Lord Bellamont were shocked at the democracy, decentralization, failure to keep records, and generally minimal government abiding in Rhode Island. Even this great home of religious liberty, however, began to falter in its ideals and principles. 
In the young town of Westerly, at the southwestern tip of Rhode Island, a group of Sabbatarians who celebrated Saturday as the Sabbath gained strength. Their neighbors began to denounce bitterly the Sabbatarian profanation of Sunday. In 1725, the General Assembly officially ordered Westerly to mend its ways and observe Sunday as the day of rest, considering that, though the ordinances of man may not square with their private principles, yet they must be subject to them for the Lord's sake. Thus, far had a land founded by Anne Hutchinson and Samuel Gorton and Roger Williams fallen. And this was not all for law excluding Roman Catholics from the franchise and from holding public office also appeared on the books after the turn of the century. As Rhode Island, in the early 18th century, began to slip towards uniformity with the other colonies in the area of religious liberty and in its attitudes toward the military, so too did it move toward the other colonies in imposing, in 1724, a freehold property qualification for voting, specifically a freehold value of a hundred pounds sterling or an annual real estate income of two pounds. Volume 2, Chapter 4, Land Tenure and Land Allocation in New England. While there were many instances of arbitrary land grants by the governments to individuals, the basic form of land settlement in colonial New England was the town. The government of the colony would give a joint grant to a group of 50 to 100 people who would found a town and then divide the land by lot amongst themselves. This would have roughly approximated the libertarian principle of individual settler ownership, but for two vital points. The joint proprietary reserved some of the land to be kept by itself in common, and also kept the power of governmental regulation of the territory. This procedure accounted for the compactness of the typical New England settlement. The common land would remain off the market for years, or be used as common pasture, or be reserved for a government minister or school. As the years wore on, governmental privileges would be transferred from the joint proprietors to an elected government, but the proprietors remained in charge of the undivided land. As the population of the town grew, more citizens would appear who were not proprietors, and a separation of interests emerged setting off the two groups. For instance, in Newbury, Massachusetts, in the 1680s, and in Haverhill, Massachusetts, in the 1720s, serious clashes developed between the proprietors and the non-proprietors for control of government and of the common lands. However, while oligarchic rule by proprietors emerged in some cases, care must be taken in applying this term, since in many cases the proprietors remained as the large majority of the town's total population. Government decrees aggravated any such cleavage. Thus, the town of Springfield in the 17th century outlawed voluntary alienation of land to landowners of any other plots and insisted that the town authorities had to approve of any purchasers of town land. As time went on, the common town land became increasingly divided, 
and in effect changed from arbitrary joint proprietorship to individual ownership by the settlers. The scope of proprietary action, therefore, steadily dwindled. Furthermore, individual squatters courageously but illegally settled on unused town government land and were often recognized in their ownership of the land they had transformed and tilled. Thus, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in 1689, granted 12 acres of land to each squatter upon town property. Under this system, land holdings in New England tended to be quite small, in contrast to the large land holdings in the southern colonies. However, superimposed on this basic pattern were arbitrary individual grants by the magistrates to the magistrates themselves, often as a reward for creating the new township. As early as 1635, large land grants had been made in the newly settled townships to such leading officials as John Winthrop Sr., Joseph Dudley, John Endicott, and Simon Bradstreet. Then, beginning in the 1730s, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Hampshire changed their previous method of creating new townships. Instead of granting land to bona fide settlers, they began to sell new town lands in advance to speculative purchasers. This established an artificially high price for land for the genuine settlers and amounted to the subsidization and privileging of the land speculators. The government gained revenue from the change, the speculators hoped to gain and often did, and the settlers and the bulk of the consumers lost from this distortion of free market conditions. From these facts, historians have tended to leap to the conclusion that a critical class struggle soon emerged in New England between absentee speculators, who were assumed to live and concentrate in the older seaboard cities, and resident frontier farmers and settlers. The speculators were further assumed to be wealthy creditors, and the residents of the new towns to be poor debtors. C.P. Nettle's treatment is characteristic. The frontier farmers viewed the speculators as their natural enemies who withheld land from cultivation, waged war against squatters, and controlled town governments as absentee voters. The most important legacy of speculation was this sharpened antagonism between seaboard wealth and frontier poverty. That this entire picture may well be in need of drastic revision is strongly indicated by Professor Charles Grant's important and detailed research of the town records of Kent, Connecticut, a frontier town of western Connecticut in the 18th century. By exploring town records in depth, Grant went, at last, beyond the windy rhetoric of petitions to the legislature on which historians had hitherto relied. For in such petitions it was all too easy to magnify tales of woe and dark charges of oppression. Grant demonstrates that, for Kent, one of the six western land towns founded at auction to speculators in 1738, the speculators, rather than forming a separate absentee oligarchy, actually were overwhelmingly the settlers themselves.
And since land speculation has harmful effects only to the extent that it precedes and restricts settlement by the first comers, this means that the class of speculators merged quickly with the resident settlers, and hence few harmful effects developed or persisted. It also means that no class struggle between absentee Easterners and frontier residents developed out of the new land system. While the typical frontier Connecticut town of Kent had no problem of absentee speculative landholding, land allocation was not idyllic. Speculation by residents prior to settlement abounded on town lands other than their own, but at least the length of time until bona fide settlers became owners of their own plots was relatively brief. Furthermore, in important respects, entrance to settlement and land ownership in new towns were freer than in the previous century. Although new settlers had to pay local speculators for their land, they did not have to meet the clannish requirements of 17th century Puritanism. In the final analysis, payment of a market price is far less restrictive than meeting non-monetary conditions. If the land speculators were resident settlers rather than a separate class, this means that the common legend of the happy yeoman interested only in the soil and communing with nature is open to serious revision. Rather than a simple but noble rustic, uninterested in such grubby matters as making money, the Connecticut frontiersmen happily and cheerfully engaged in land speculation as well as in other profit-seeking deals and ventures. If, then, the yeoman was not simple and scornful of money-maker, neither was he poor. According to Grant, poverty was rare in 18th-century Kent. As to debt and credit, Grant's corollary finding is that there was no clash of eastern creditor versus frontier debtor. On the contrary, debt and credit permeated the economy of the residents of Kent, as might be seen from the extent of land speculation and other ventures within the town, most people were in and out of debt, and often shifted rapidly from the net debtor to the net creditor category, and vice versa. There was no rigid class or lasting stratification of debtors and creditors. Furthermore, net debtors could not be deemed poor, as been the historiographical fashion. On the contrary, the leading debtors, as might be expected, were precisely the wealthier land speculators. A good part of the credit for the failure of absentee land speculation to flourish goes to the very act of 1737 by which Connecticut organized the auction of the new towns. For the law provided that every purchaser of land rights at auction had to settle fence and construct a house on the land within two years. This clause ensured that original absentee proprietors had to sell their rights to genuine settlers within a two-year period. To the extent that speculation and land settlement coincided and therefore the body of proprietors with the body of settlers, the period of proprietary rule of the land offers an instructive example of how the voluntary methods of the free market can successfully provide services 
that are almost always regarded as uniquely governmental, for the settler proprietors themselves built roads, bridges, mills, and schools. The proprietors realized that speedy construction of roads would encourage rapid influx into the town and thus raise the value of their lands. In a couple of years after founding, however, the towns were invariably incorporated and town governments created, and with them the inevitable accompaniment of burdensome taxation and compulsory labor on the roads. It is interesting to muse on what would have happened if these New England towns had remained permanently under proprietary rule. For one thing, services would have been voluntarily provided to earn a profit from their consumers, instead of the imposing of a compulsory governmental tax burden necessarily severed from any link with voluntary consumption by the members of the public. Volume 2, Chapter 5, New Hampshire Breaks Free. Conflicts over land grants and claims and over corollary governmental jurisdiction were important sources of intercolonial conflict in 18th century New England. Massachusetts laid claim to the bulk of New Hampshire, and the general court handed out arbitrary grants to New Hampshire land. Furthermore, the Massachusetts towns insisted on claiming tax revenue from their junior New Hampshire neighbors. Massachusetts' encroachment on New Hampshire was facilitated by their having a common governor, and by the 1730s, Governor Jonathan Belcher, a wealthy Boston merchant, was heading the Massachusetts party in alliance with Secretary Richard Waldron III and the oligarchs of the New Hampshire Council. The popular opposition to Massachusetts in New Hampshire was led by Lieutenant Governor John Wentworth, and then by his son, Benning, also a powerful merchant. The opposition shepherded the New Hampshire legislature into making conflicting land grants of its own. To secure the favor of the crown, the New Hampshire General Court voted the governor a fixed salary, thus going beyond Massachusetts. Influenced by this good conduct, in addition to bribe money spread where it could help, by the importance of New Hampshire ship mass, and by the perennial troublesomeness of Massachusetts, the English Privy Council finally decided in 1737 on a boundary in favor of New Hampshire. By 1741, New Hampshire was assured of approximately its present dimensions. Massachusetts conspired to revive the old Mason claim to proprietorship to New Hampshire. Not only did this fail, but Britain, in disgust, removed Belcher from his post and ended the system of joint governorship, which threatened to keep New Hampshire under the tutelage of Massachusetts. The leader of the popular opposition, Benning Wentworth, now became full governor of New Hampshire in 1741, and Massachusetts received a royal governor of its own. Freed from the burden of this struggle, New Hampshire flourished and grew apace, at his inauguration, Governor Wentworth prophetically hailed the final separation of the two colonies as an event which will be a lasting advantage, will be a means of replenishing your towns with people, of extending and enlarging your commerce. 
With New Hampshire secure from Massachusetts aggression, Governor Wentworth decided to safeguard the newly decided upon western part of the colony, now Vermont, for his control by parceling out huge land grants to that unsettled region, known as the New Hampshire Grants. Here, Wentworth was worried about New York's old claims to jurisdiction over this territory. Wentworth, it should be noted, took good care to assign himself a fee of 500 acres in each newly designated township. Fortunately, no feudalistic proprietary was sustained, as the grantees quickly divided and sold the land. An annual quit rent of one shilling per hundred acres was demanded by the grantees, but they typically found it impossible to collect. With settlement rapidly developing, the period of transfer of land holdings from grantees to actual settlers fortunately tended to be brief. New York, however, continued to make its claim and to hand out conflicting western New Hampshire grants of its own. Governor Wentworth began the grants in 1749 by creating the town of Bennington, and by the 1760s was founding many towns per year, 63 in 1761 alone. Here, considerable absentee speculation served as wholesale and jobber intermediaries before the land developed fairly rapidly upon the settlers. In making the grants, incidentally, Wentworth did not neglect his own family. At least a dozen Wentworths received handsome gifts, as did many leading citizens of New Hampshire and New England. Volume 2, Chapter 6, The Narragansett Planters Another important intercolonial conflict over land and territory, and of long standing, was the Connecticut-Rhode Island struggle over the Narragansett country in what is now southwestern Rhode Island. The controversy was resolved at last in 1726 when the Crown settled the territory in favor of Rhode Island. The detailed line was finally drawn two years later. By that time, however, the Atherton Company and ensuing land titles had been entrenched and confirmed, and the land pattern of the Narragansett country had become considerably different from the rest of New England. Instead of compact towns, the Narragansett country consisted of large plantations, differing from those in the south only in the commodities grown, berries, sheep, and horses, rather than tobacco and rice. And like southern plantations, these large farms were maintained and worked only by extensive Negro and Indian slavery. In the major Narragansett township of South Kingston, the population in 1730 included 965 whites, 333 Negroes, and 223 Indians, the last two groups almost all slaves. Two, a proportion of the whites were indentured servants. The proportion of nearly one-half of the citizens as outright slaves was matched only in the southern colonies. Along with the heavy proportion of slaves came a rigorous slave code. Gone were the days of Samuel Gorton's attempt to outlaw slavery in Rhode Island. Laws were now imposed prohibiting any Negro, free or slave, from being out of doors after 9 p.m. on penalty of 15 lashes 
No household could allow any servant or slave to dance or gamble, and no ferryman could transport a Negro without an authorized certificate from a master or from the courts. In addition, South Kingston itself prohibited any free Negro from having a slave at his house, and in 1726 barred any outdoor social gatherings of Indians or Negroes. Furthermore, a slave suspected of theft was liable to be tried without a jury. In Rhode Island, as in the other colonies, only freeholders could vote. Whereas this ensured a democratic system in most of New England, the reverse was true in the Narragansett country, where the landowners were few and large. In 1729, this requirement was fixed at the substantial sum of 200 pounds sterling freehold, or an annual value of 10 pounds sterling, a substantial sum for the time, and five times the Massachusetts voting requirement. As a result, the small landowners were disenfranchised, and large landowners achieved strict oligarchic control of the local government of the Narragansett country. And these governments, headed by town councils, unique in New England, had far more power than the usual town selectmen. For one thing, the council decided absolutely on who could be admitted into the settlement and who prohibited. It functioned also as a local court. Furthermore, jury trial was discouraged in the area, and a body appointed by the council decided disputes over roads. In contrast to the elected officials of other townships, the town council was partially appointed and only partially elected. In all these ways, the rule of a local landed oligarchy was reinforced. Volume 2, Chapter 7, New York Land Monopoly As early as the turn of the 18th century, New York in its large Hudson River Manners was the only colony where feudal landholding retained an important foothold. In this colony, the few receivers of huge land grants persisted in renting instead of selling their domains, and thus they formed, along with the royal bureaucracy, a ruling oligarchy of the colony. Robert Hunter, the relatively liberal governor of New York during the second decade of the 17th century, saw the problem and warned of the oppression of the tenants and the crippling of growth in the colony. The problem grew acute again with an accession to the governorship of John Montgomery in 1728. Montgomery renewed the old policy of granting huge tracts of land in return for monetary reward, the main sale of such privilege being a grant of 50,000 acres in eastern Dutchess County to Thomas Hawley in 1731 in return for 750 pounds sterling. The new rash of land grants reached full flower in the regime of William Cosby, 1732 through 36, who took the precaution of giving himself one-third of the total amount of his grants. This orgy of special privilege even moved two of the leading officials of the colony to protest to England. Lieutenant Governor Cadwallader Calden noted in 1732 that enterprising youth were leaving New York in large numbers, driven by the land monopoly, to seek land of their own elsewhere, 
while much better and every way more convenient lands lie useless to the king and country. The reason for this is that the grantees themselves are not in a capacity to improve such large tracts, and other people will not become their vassals or tenants. Colden eloquently pointed out that a leading reason that so many people had left Europe for the New World was to avoid the dependence on landlords and to enjoy a fee simple to descend to their posterity that their children may reap the benefit of their labor and industry. And Chief Justice Lewis Morris deplored the engrossing of great tracts of land into few hands, making it very difficult and expensive to settle these lands. In contrast, better and far cheaper lands were available in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, which were thus attracting far more immigrants. Despite these warnings, the venal policy of land engrossment continued apace. Governor George Clark, 1736 to 43, for example, evaded the maximum limit of 2,000 acres per grant by giving himself land through dummy associates. Thus, Clark granted William Corey 100,000 acres in the Mohawk Valley, which Corey promptly transferred back to Clark's personal ownership. In this way, Clark was able to amass a fortune of 100,000 pounds worth of land during his term of office. Clark's successor in the lucrative post, George Clinton, 1743 to 53, also granted much land to himself through numerous dummy intermediaries. For grants to others, Clinton charged the high fee of 13 pounds for each 1,000 acres given away. Through such means, Clinton was able to amass a fortune of 100,000 pounds in his decade of rule. As the 18th century wore on, the discontent of the tenants increased, along with the extent of manorial landholdings. The farmers, significantly generally referred to by the European name peasants, were subjected not only to rent payments, but also to juries constituted by the manor lord, as well as to various feudal fees and privileges. Unable to purchase their land, the farmers also faced insecurity of renewal of lease, and the increasing rents of any new lease ate into any farm prosperity they might have enjoyed. The farmers had, therefore, little incentive to improve the land, since they would only in the end have to pay more rent to the manor lord. Furthermore, the large feudal manors enjoyed their own direct representation in the provincial assembly with their own private rotten boroughs. In addition to these numerous privileges, the New York government propped up the feudal manners in other significant ways. For one thing, New York did not adopt the significant English common law realization that the mortgager is the true owner of the land. Failure to do this preserved New York landlords from any compulsion to yield property to their creditors in case they could not pay. Also, New York established an elaborate system of registry of land titles, which, being costly, favored the large and wealthy landlords who could pay the expenses of registry and of hiring lawyers to do the job. And finally, feudal entail and primogeniture were imposed to keep the huge manors intact and to prevent them from being divided. Thus, Frederick Phillips 
one of the great manorial lords of New York, made a will in 1751 compulsorily entailing all his land to his firstborn, and then to the latter's firstborn, and so forth forever. The dominant manners of New York in the 18th century were those of Livingston, Phillips, Van Rensselaer, and Van Cortlandt. The Phillips Manor, the Highland Patent, began with a grant by Governor Benjamin Fletcher in 1697. The grant soon amounted to over 200,000 acres, covering some of Dutchess County and almost all of Putnam County. The Phillips manorial system was highly oppressive. Leases lasted only for the life of the tenant, at which point the land, along with its improvements, reverted to the manor lord. If any tenant wished to transfer his tenancy to another, he was forced to pay a one-third alienation fee. In addition, all property of mines and minerals were reserved for the Phillips. The Van Rensselaer Manor of Rensselaerwick was, of course, the pioneer manor in the colony, having been the only holdover from the Dutch policy of creating feudal patroonships. Amassing one million acres and covering most of Albany County by the turn of the century, Rensselaer leases were even shorter term than Phillips's amounting to a 13-year term. Rents were exacted in kind and in service, as in the Middle Ages, as well as in money. The manorial lord also reserved all rights of milling and mining and timber, and the tenants were liable for all taxes on the manor. But while the tenants paid the taxes, the lord, Van Rensselaer, virtually had the right to pick his own assemblyman by the 1680s. The tenants who voted in this and other manorial elections had, it should be noted, no such protection from landlord wrath as the secret ballot. Livingston Manor began with a grant in the 1680s and was stretched, like the other grants, through dubious legality from Indian purchases to include 160,000 acres in Columbia County. Robert Livingston, the original grantee, was fortunate enough to marry the widow of his former employer, the Van Rensselaer Patroon, and later rose to become Speaker of the New York Assembly and Mayor of Albany. Livingston had his own assemblyman from 1715 on. Livingston's rules were slightly more liberal than those of others. Terms of leases varied but most ranged from life to the lives of three generations of tenants. In contrast to the other large manors, some subdivisions were actually sales of property, in fee simple, to the farmers. As in the other cases, tenants were responsible for payment of taxes. Van Cortland Manor, which began with 86,000 acres of Westchester County, granted in 1697, was the most liberal of the large manors, especially after the 1750s. For one thing, the Van Cortlands were the most willing to sell their land in fee simple, for a high price, of course, but at least they were willing. In addition, the lot of the tenant was greatly eased by permitting transfer of leases with almost no alienation fees. 
Furthermore, the Van Cortlands allowed their own assemblymen after 1717, permitted their freeholders on the manor to select an additional representative. Most important, the process of subdividing the ownership of Van Cortland lands was greatly accelerated by equal division among their heirs. Alone of the large manors, the Van Cortlands eschewed the privileges of entail in primogeniture. With the combined pressure of subdividing inheritance and sales in fee simple, the Van Cortland Manor very gradually disintegrated into legitimate settler ownership. But this was to take time. In the meanwhile, in 1769, five-sixths of the inhabitants of Westchester were the subjects of six manorial lords, with one-third of them on Van Cortland and Phillips Manors. Other leading manorial lords of the province were the schoolers. Other leading manorial lords of the province were the schoolers, whose leases were long, covering three lives, and who were willing to sell land in fee simple. The Duanes, the Beekmans, and the Heathcotes. With the renewal of arbitrary land grants in the 18th century, Domination of the entire governing machinery of New York by the landed oligarchs was far stronger than in the previous century. The leading lawyers of the colony, and hence the main politicians, were connected by intimate family ties with the great manorial lords. Of the 33 lawyers licensed to practice in New York, from 1730 to 1776, the remarkable number of 30 were connected with the great landlord families, and two of the remaining three were smaller landlords. This also meant that almost all the judges and attorneys general of the colony were closely tied to the big landlords, and such landlord-connected judges as Robert R. Livingston and William Smith never hesitated to decide cases in which they or their relations were involved. Of the eight governors of New York from 1750 to 1776, six were large landlords. As we might expect, the council, the upper house of the New York legislature, was an ironclad stronghold of the big landlords. Of 28 councillors from 1750 to 1776, fully 25 were connected with large landlord families. On the other hand, domination of the assembly, the lower house was less overwhelming. Of 70 assemblymen during this period, 52 came from the great landed families. One-third of the representatives outside New York City came from pocket boroughs, from the manors, and a 40-pound sterling property qualification for voting added to the factors making for landlord domination. Of a total of 137 executive, legislative, and judicial officers of New York from 1750 to 1776, 80% or 110 were connected to large landed families, while 5% or 6 were small landholders. By the middle of the 18th century, rising resentment against the manorial lords set off tenant uprisings against their masters. In 1750, a tenant-settler revolt occurred in Dutchess County, 
and in the 1760s, similar revolts occurred in the manors of Albany and Westchester. Discontent centered in the largest manors of the big four landlords, and the movement of the New York peasantry was to culminate in the general Hudson River Uprising, or Levelers Uprising, of 1766. Apart from such eruptions from below, politics in New York reflected the aristocratic feudalism of the social structure. Parties vying for control were largely personal factions within the landed oligarchy. Sharing a common ideology and a common devotion to the basic social structure, political struggles became mainly squabbles of family and place. Carl Becker put the point very well. For political purposes, the organization of the aristocracy rested upon the surviving feudal principle of the personal relation. Personal loyalty, rather than faith in a proposition, was the key to political integrity. The principal means by which this bond was established was the marriage relation. An effective political influence was established not by securing control of a machine within a party, but by interrelating one's family with the aristocracy as advantageously as possible. As is the norm in ruling aristocracies, the leading landed families were widely interrelated. After mid-century, however, this situation began to change, as will be seen further below. The two leading factions of the province came to be headed by the Livingston and the Delancey families. To the Livingston camp began to gravitate the upstate interest, while the New York City interest tended to join the Delancey faction. In addition, the dissenters tended to support the Livingstons and the Anglicans the Delanceys. New York's system of land monopoly greatly aggravated the colony's territorial disputes with its neighbors, Massachusetts and New Hampshire. In upstate New York, the rebellious tenants of the manorial lords took advantage of the territorial claims of Massachusetts to a boundary on the Hudson River. In 1751, the tenants of Livingston Manor refused to pay their rents and argued that they owned the land outright in fee simple under the authority of Massachusetts. Tenants of Livingston and Van Rensselaer petitioned to Massachusetts to include them in its jurisdiction and ignored Livingston's orders to leave their land. The embattled tenants were led by Michael Hollenbeck and Josiah Loomis, and the encouragement of Massachusetts was particularly given to them by David Ingersoll. The manorial Lord Robert Livingston, Jr., retaliated by burning the house of one of the tenants and throwing the tenant himself into jail. He also began court action against Hollenbeck. Armed conflict broke out in 1753 when Livingston sent a troop of 60 armed men to burn the houses and destroy the crops of the leaders of the tenants who had refused to obey Livingston's order to leave, especially Josiah Loomis and George Robinson. The rebels, led by Joseph Payne, retaliated by chopping down over a thousand of Livingston's manorial trees. In addition, Massachusetts stepped into the fray, 
pushing its own jurisdiction by arresting a Livingston tenant who refused to take a Massachusetts title, and finally forcibly transferring his land to another claimant. Loomis and Hollenbeck, attracted by Massachusetts' support of tenant claims, escaped to the Bay Colony. There they were appointed to a committee of the general court engaged in granting New York land titles to settlers. Albany County and the governor of New York swung into action against the rebels, but failed to quell the uprising. In fact, the land conflict was aggravated the following year as both Massachusetts and New York sent troops into the area to battle Indians, and both sets of troops remained to take opposite sides in the boundary dispute. Van Rensselaer tenants, led by Hallenbeck and Robert Noble, formed an alliance with Massachusetts militia in Albany County to battle New York troops and warfare raged throughout the area until 1757, with numerous armed raids and daring captures on either side. The armed conflict reached peaks in early 1755 and in 1757, pitting Massachusetts troops and armed tenant rebels against the private armies of Livingston and Van Rensselaer. Only a boundary proclamation by the Crown in 1757 effectively ended the Massachusetts claims to the tenants. New York's other great land dispute was with New Hampshire over its western territory, now Vermont. New York had begun the arbitrary parceling out of New Hampshire lands in 1696 with an 84-square-mile grant to the Reverend Godfredus Delius. But it was in the late 1760s that the carving up of Vermont land was pursued in earnest in a wild race with the New Hampshire government. From 1765 to 1776, New York governors handed out claims to over 2.1 million acres of Vermont land and over 2.4 million additional acres were military grants purchased by the New York grantees. Of the grantees, eight New York lawyers, merchants, and land speculators were given over 375,000 acres. Leading recipients of New York's law guests were James Duane and Goldsbrow Banyard. One of the most unfortunate groups of sufferers from New York's policy of land monopoly was a band of German refugees from the Palatinate who were known as the Palatines. England had prided itself on admitting all Protestant refugees from Europe, and the French Huguenots, mainly businessmen and financiers, were a welcome dividend from this policy. But in 1709, a group of several thousand Protestant Palatinate refugees fled to London from the devastation of their homes and lands that was ravaging Germany during the War of the Spanish Succession. Now that the Palatines were there, what could be done with these poor and homeless peasants? With England's own land engrossed by feudal lords, there seemed to be no room for the Palatines there. The British government decided to combine humanitarianism with profit by shipping the Palatines as indentured servants to New York, a colony with a severe shortage of labor and an abundance of land. 
The catch, of course, was that the land was also being engrossed there and that the shortage of immigrants to the colony was largely because of that preemption of land. Indeed, Britain decided to kill several birds with one stone. New York was eager to develop a staple product other than furs, and the Crown was also interested in increasing production of naval stores, such as tar and pitch for the Royal Navy. What better way than to force the Palatines to produce such naval stores? And so the hapless Palatines, who wanted nothing but to farm land of their own, were shipped to New York and coerced into working for the crown and for Robert Livingston to produce naval stores, a product about which they knew nothing. There they were forbidden to engage in the one thing they did know, farming. On the first leg of their journey, three thousand were herded into ten ships, with fully one-fourth of the passengers dying en route. When they landed, the unhappy Palatines were kept on Nutton Island, now Governor's Island, in New York Bay for five months while their fate was being decided. The Palatines were originally scheduled to go to the Mohawk Valley, but after they arrived in New York in early 1710, it was suddenly discovered that the Mohawk land was unsuitable for naval stores production. Governor Hunter thereupon purchased 6,000 acres of Livingston Manor for the crown, as well as rights to some pine trees on Livingston land. Livingston also profited not only by wider markets for the products of his manor, but more directly by obtaining the Vitaline contract for the Palatines, as well as an appointment as their inspector. The Crown and Livingston had joined to exploit the labor of the Palatines, but Livingston's gains were seemingly more certain and immediate. And so the Palatinate peasants, trustingly fleeing from devastation in Germany to a supposed haven in England, now found themselves in remote, upstate New York, surrounded by pine trees and forced to produce naval stores for the Crown. As if this were not enough of a cross to bear, neither Livingston nor the government was particularly conscientious about feeding the Palatines. When Livingston found that a supply of his beef was spoiling, he quickly shipped two months' supply to the Palatines, with the full connivance of the New York government. On the job, the unfortunate Palatines were worked in labor gangs under strict supervision, Moreover, the children of those who had died at sea were forcibly separated from their remaining relatives and sent by the government to be apprenticed far away in other colonies, and even children of living parents were seized in the same way. The Palatines, understandably, began to grow restive at this treatment. Led by John Conrad Weiser, they threatened to mutiny that is, to leave their wretched circumstances. Governor Hunter, failing to persuade the Palatines to become resigned to their fate, sent for an armed troop, disarmed the Palatines, ordered them treated as the Queen's servants, and appointed a court to dictate their affairs. And troops were sent in periodically to try to force the Palatines to keep working. Thieves fall out, however, 
and Livingston was betrayed by his own partner, the royal government, in the oppression of the Palatines. The government refused to pay Livingston's vitaling account. Furthermore, the artificially encouraged naval stores program was going very badly, and the Crown officials decided to heap all the blame on Livingston. Governor Hunter's pet naval stores project was collapsing, and what with the squabbling over the vitaling account between the government and Livingston, the Palatines began to raid Livingston's storehouse to obtain food. Finally, with the new government in Britain reluctant to pour good money after bad in further subsidy, Governor Hunter was forced to abandon the disastrous naval stores program in the fall of 1712. A government program of artificially stimulated production with the use of forced labor had failed ignominiously. The governor told the Palatines that they were free to work where they wished during the winter, provided that they reassembled in the spring. But a large number of Palatines used their newfound freedom to escape to the Schoharie country in New York, to New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and to other parts of New York Colony. Before long, the government abandoned the whole project, and the Palatines were released from bondage to the crown. The bulk of the Palatines moved happily during 1713 to the Skohari country, where they purchased land from the Mohawk Indians. But the persecuted Palatines were not yet free. The various land speculators managed to obtain monopolistic grants from the governor of the very lands on which the Palatines had settled. The would-be land engrossers of Skohari, who included a Livingston, and a Schuler demanded that the Palatines take out leases and pay rent to their designated landlords. They were aided and abetted by Governor Hunter, who for one thing was angry at the Palatines' escape from their servitude. But while the full force of the government created and tried to sustain the land monopoly, the doughty Germans, led by Weiser, insisted on defending their hard-earned land by force. The rebel Palatines drove their would-be overlords out of the Skohari settlement and gave Sheriff Adams a thorough trouncing. Hunter retaliated by ordering the Palatines to submit to the designated landlords or be removed, and as defiance continued, he prohibited all further cultivation of the land by the Palatines. Wiser shipped secretly to England to try to win the support of the crown for free possession of their land, but the attempt failed. Driven off their land by monopolistic land grants, half the Palatines left Skohari and moved westward, settling along the Mohawk River during the 1720s. But Wiser and his followers, thoroughly disgusted with New York policies, left for Pennsylvania and settled there. As a matter of fact, New York's treatment of the Palatines discouraged all further German immigration into New York, and from then on, Pennsylvania was much more heavily favored. Volume 2, Chapter 8 Slavery in New York Of all the northern colonies, New York had the most trouble with Negro slave rebellions. In 1702, New York found it necessary to outlaw any assembly of slaves or even to allow their testimony in court in view of frequent confederations of slaves to plan escapes from their fate. 
However, in a remarkable bit of loading the legal dice, the testimony of slaves was to be acceptable when acting as informers on their fellows. Three years later, the death penalty was decreed for all runaway slaves found more than 40 miles north of Albany, and hence headed toward freedom in New France. In 1706, slave restiveness in Kings County led Governor Edward Hyde, Lord Cornbury, to issue a proclamation ordering the justices of the peace to seize all Negroes who had assembled themselves in a riotous manner, or had run away. If any Negroes refused to submit, then the officials were to fire on them, kill or destroy them, if they cannot otherwise be taken. Two years later, in 1708, a group of slaves in Newtown, Long Island, rebelled and killed seven whites. Four of the rebel slaves, including an Indian woman, were executed, the woman being burned by the authorities. A subsequent law in New York allowed judges to sentence local slaves to death in any manner they might deem best to attain public tranquility. The fear of slave rebellion was clearly acute among the white masters. Early in 1712, a group of Negro slaves in New York City formed a massive plot for an armed uprising. In the spring, a group of about 30 of the slaves obtained arms and then set upon a party of whites, routing them and killing nine. Soldiers soon crushed the mutiny, however, arresting 70 Negroes as conspirators, one of whom was convicted after being once acquitted and placing the city under arms. Twenty-one of the slaves were executed en masse the governor taking advantage of the new law to perform the execution in a particularly brutal manner, as the most exemplary punishment that could possibly be thought of, perhaps the most instructive lesson learned by the discerning, was the brutality and savagery at the very core of the slave system. It is part of the Western heritage that when something unpleasant happens, A new law is passed in a hurried attempt to cure it. The new legislature, therefore, once more quickly tightened its laws, punishing slave conspiracies. By 1740, New York City had the substantial number of 2,000 Negro slaves among a total population of 12,000. The proportion soon reached one-third in Kings and Queens counties, In 1740, hysteria spread through the city over an alleged slave plot to poison the white water supply. For some time afterward, most New Yorkers allayed their fears by buying spring water from street vendors. The ensuing winter of 1740-41 was a hard one in New York, with the price of wheat and bread high and much suffering among the poor. Fires began to rage frequently throughout the city, some perhaps set by Negro slaves and white sympathizers. The slaves, in accordance with the revolutionary nature of the weapon used, concentrated their arson on the homes and offices of government officials and all the barracks of the soldiery. Several suspicious fires also broke out in Hackensack, New Jersey, for which at least two slaves were themselves burned in retaliation. The response to the fires was mass hysteria by the whites. 
expressed in indiscriminate arrest indulged in by the New York government. No fewer than 150 slaves and 25 whites, including 17 soldiers, were arrested. Interestingly enough, the main focus of white fear and hatred centered on a group of Spanish Negro prisoners of war, who, upon capture, had been sold from freedom into slavery in New York City. These Negroes were, understandably, particularly bitter at such treatment accorded to prisoners of war. As the greatest and most recent victims of injustice, they drew the hottest fire of the guilty whites. All of these Spanish Negroes were imprisoned in the wave of arrests. In the mass arrest, city officials presumed to make a house-to-house search for suspicious-looking characters who were ordered summarily arrested on suspicion. Eventually, every Negro at large was picked up by the police. The hapless Negroes, beset by torture and by promise of relief for accusing others, could not find a single lawyer to defend them. One reason was that every lawyer in the city was directly associated with the prosecution. In his summing up, Prosecutor William Smith had the gall to denounce the base ingratitude of the mutinous Negroes. Four of the white prisoners were executed, including an innkeeper and his wife, as was a clergyman, the Reverend John Urry, accused of swearing in the conspirators. Urry stated that he was an Anglican minister, but the government insisted that he was a Spanish Jesuit priest, and a New York law of 1700 provided for the hanging of any Roman Catholic priest found in the province. The Attorney General, summing up the prosecution, took the occasion to denounce the iniquities of the Church of Rome. Refusing to believe that Uri was not a Catholic, New York carried out the execution. Of the slaves arrested, 13 were burned alive, 18 were hanged, and 70 banished to the West Indies. Every one of the unfortunate Spanish Negroes was killed. While waiting to be burned at the stake, a few Negroes were persuaded to confess and tell the truth, that is, implicate others, in exchange for a delay in the hope of a pardon. But their desperate maneuver was to be of no avail. The crowd became enraged when hearing of a delay, and at its insistence, the Negroes were immediately burned to death. It is instructive to learn from the adamant prosecution of these alleged criminals that the main witness against them, a young white indentured servant named Mary Burton, was conceded by the court to be a liar and a perjurer. In addition, the trials were marked by so-called confessions extracted either by torture or by promises of large rewards for informing on others, methods which can hardly lend credence to the testimony. Indeed, the mass frenzy greatly resembled the Salem witch trials, and, as in the Salem case, only when confessions, especially those of the star witness, Mary Burton, began to implicate well-known and wealthy people, did the wave of arrest and executions suddenly subside. One happy consequence of the New York slave frenzy 
was that it stamped the psyches of the residents with fear of further slave revolts, which led to a steady decline in the number of Negro slaves kept in New York City. Volume 2, Chapter 9 Land Conflicts in New Jersey Land conflicts in New Jersey during the colonial period stemmed from its unique status of having numerous resident proprietors. Other proprietary colonies had one or a few feudal owners remotely resident in England. Both West and East New Jersey, however, had numerous resident proprietors alert to their own interest, and when the provinces became a united crown colony, the proprietor's title to land still remained. The bulk of the problem centered in East New Jersey, where the proprietors tended to hold on to their granted titles and tried to enforce quit rents rather than subdivide and sell the land quickly. The proprietors had trouble with two types of settlers. The recipients of the old Richard Nichols patent during the mid-17th century and squatters who believed no more was required for owning the land than settling and purchasing the tract from the Indians. The Nichols patentees were largely in Elizabethtown, while the small farmers and squatters were farther west in the Oranges and in Hunterdon and Morris counties. The East New Jersey Council of Proprietors began a concerted attempt to enforce their titles and quit rents during the late 1720s. Leading the proprietors were Lewis Morris and James Alexander. The proprietors received a severe setback when their attempt to eject an Elizabethtown settler was defeated after a jury trial in Lithgow v. Schuler, 1734. Foiled in their attempt to oust the Nichols patentees, the proprietors decided to try to collect quit rents, which had accumulated to a total of 10,000 pounds in arrears. The West New Jersey proprietors also began to crack down on squatter settlers, especially in Hunterdon County. When agents of proprietor Daniel Cox, Jr. tried to collect quit rents, the Hunterdon settlers drove them off with arms and threatened Cox with assassination if he should persist in his harassment. The conflict intensified when Lewis Morris, the leader of the proprietors, became royal governor in 1738. Morris was the first to be royal governor of New Jersey alone. Before him, the royal governors were only ancillary to their post as governors of New York. Morris quickly appointed his son, Robert Hunter Morris, to be chief justice of the province and his daughter's father-in-law, Richard Ashfield, to be receiver general of quitrents. The upper house was also packed by Lewis Morris with his fellow proprietors. The determined Morris decided in the 1740s to try the Elizabethtown land cases in the Court of Chancery, where he himself was presiding judge. In reply, the Elizabethtown settlers petitioned the king about their grievances, but to no avail. Morris and the proprietors also began winning many ejectment cases against settlers on the fringe of Elizabethtown, as well as against squatters further west who had purchased Indian titles. 
The Chancery case against the Elizabethtown settlers was filed in 1745, and the settlers appeared to be in dire straits. At this point, with tensions at fever pitch, one of the Elizabethtown leaders, Samuel Baldwin, was arrested for cutting timber on his own, but allegedly proprietary, land. The people's anger exploded, and a mob broke open the Newark jail and rescued Baldwin. Four months later, Nehemiah Baldwin and others of the rioters were arrested in their turn. In response, a crowd armed with clubs appeared and rescued Baldwin. Shortly afterward, a mob of 300 appeared at the Newark jail, facing 30 armed militia. Threatening to kill every militiaman if fired upon, the triumphant crowd succeeded in breaking in and rescuing all the prisoners. The new assembly of February 1746 sympathized with the rioters. In his opening address to the legislature, Governor Morris thundered that the riots were virtually high treason and likely to end in rebellion. Morris called for severe measures to quell the revolution. Morris and the proprietors introduced in the council an amazing bill modeled on an English law of 1715 providing that if twelve or more persons should meet and refuse to disperse if so ordered by a government official, they would then be declared felons and be summarily put to death. The confrontation between the two forces continued to mount. The rebels presented a petition to the legislature citing their Indian titles and calling for a stay of all judicial processes against them, while Proprietor Samuel Neville denounced the petition as infringing the Crown's prerogative and its sovereignty over the soil of New Jersey. In a sense, Neville was correct. The opposing libertarian theory of land ownership espoused by the squatters was eloquently set forth by a sympathizer in a New York newspaper. Going beyond Roger Williams' simple theory of Indian ownership to what was essentially the John Locke labor theory of original landed property, the writer declared that although the earth was made for equal use of all, it may nevertheless be appropriated by every individual. This is done by the improvement of any part of it lying vacant, which is thereupon distinguished from the great common of nature and made the property of that man, who bestowed his labor in it, from whom it cannot afterward be taken, without breaking through the rules of natural justice, for thereby he would actually be deprived of the fruits of his industry. At this crucial point, Lewis Morris died. The proprietary still ran the governor's post, however, since acting governor John Hamilton was none other than the president of the East New Jersey Council of Proprietors. Hamilton demanded a bill to suppress the rioters, but the assembly paid no heed to his request. Instead, rioting spread during the summer throughout the province, and especially in Hunterdon County. The assembly also refused to raise troops for war with France. John Lowe, Essex representative and a riot leader, pointing out that the armed force would soon be employed to suppress the riots at home. 
Threats of assassination were again made against Samuel Neville, and the Somerset County Jail was broken open by a mob and several prisoners released. Rioting was rapidly merging into open revolution. Governor Hamilton responded by intensifying the tyranny suffered by the settlers and the rest of the populace. Thus he ordered the sheriff to arrest any tumultuous assembly and to keep them in jail until trial. And Robert Hunter Morris vainly asked the Crown to send troops from England to suppress the Tenant Rebellion. In the spring of 1747, the successful rioters intensified their rebellion and began to assume the offensive. In Morris County, they began driving proprietors from their homes. In the spring assembly, Hamilton admitted that the attempts at suppression had only succeeded in redoubling the rioting. Here was another example in history of the near impossibility of a government relying only on its own resources, suppressing a popular revolution. The assembly again ignored Hamilton's threat to import counter-revolution by bringing in British troops. As the assembly adjourned, the encouraged rioters broke into even more widespread rebellion, expecting that ultimately the king would be pressured into getting rid of the problem by granting the settlers their lands. In July, one of the most serious of the riots broke out in Perth Amboy, the main center of the resident eastern proprietors. John Bainbridge, Jr. had been arrested for taking part in the Somerset County outbreak and was imprisoned in Perth Amboy Jail. At this point, a rescue party of 150, armed with clubs and led by Edmund Bainbridge, Simon Wickoff, and Amos Roberts, appeared at the courthouse, knocked down the sheriff and the mayor, broke open the jail, and jubilantly rode off with the prisoner. The government called a grand jury for Middlesex County, and Judge Samuel Neville, one of the leading proprietors, charged the jury to indict twenty of the rioters for high treason. The jury, however, would hardly indict them for a riot. Within the midst of this revolutionary atmosphere, Jonathan Belcher assumed the post of governor. Belcher, a professional royal bureaucrat who had been governor of Massachusetts for a dozen years, could be expected, as a native of Massachusetts, to be unsympathetic to quit rents and feudal proprietorships. While sympathetic to the liberal position, Belcher denounced the rioters who effected another dramatic jail rescue in Essex County soon after the governor assumed office. But Belcher's momentary annoyance did not push him into a reactionary program. Instead, he spoke in kindly fashion to a delegation of the rebels. The assembly was under firm control of the liberals, while the council had been packed with proprietary appointees. The council repeatedly urged harsh suppression of the rioters, and the proprietors called for making rioting a crime of high treason. The assembly, while refusing to take such measures, was in an uncomfortable position. While liberal on the land question, it was too moderate and cautious to be radical or principled on the issue. 
when the radical rebels, after effecting a jail rescue in Hunterdon County in the autumn of 1747, proposed a great open march on the government in Burlington to demand defense against the depredations of the proprietors, the frightened assembly joined the council in denouncing such a march as an insult and contempt of the laws. Chagrined at this desertion by the supposedly sympathetic assembly, the rebel settlers canceled the march. Indeed, the middle-of-the-road assembly agreed to pass a very mild bill to suppress the riots, but without funds to enforce it, in exchange for a government pardon for all recanting rioters. The rebels were now faced with a situation all too common to revolutionary movements throughout history. They could easily defend themselves from their enemies, but not from their friends. Once again, a revolution confronted a betrayal by its supposed leaders. If the rebels were to submit to the amnesty, they would lose their essential revolutionary momentum. Two hundred rebels prepared to ask forgiveness before the Essex County Court, but their leader, Amos Roberts, managed to persuade them by his eloquence to stand fast. As a result, only twenty-three rebels took advantage of the proffered pardon. The stunned leader of the proprietors, James Alexander, proposed that the council alone, if necessary, pass a law declaring that all non-repentant rebels be summarily convicted of all crimes for which they stood indicted. A fantastic breach indeed of Anglo-Saxon legal procedures. Belcher blandly refrained from suppressing the rebels, who continued to chop down timber, allegedly belonging to his proprietary. Finally, however, in the fall of 1748, the weak and uncertain Belcher allowed himself to be pressured into arresting the great rebel leader Amos Roberts for high treason. Here, indeed, was a direct challenge to the power of the revolution. The same evening, a mob gathered at the Newark jail, shunted the deputy sheriff aside, and freed the imprisoned Roberts. Belcher then asked the assembly to curb this sort of open rebellion against the crown. The rebels increasingly justified themselves on the squatter and Indian grant theory, thus alienating the wealthier and more respectable Nichols patentees who, after all, depended for their theoretical argument on earlier, though less arbitrary, grants from the crown. The great armed rebellion reached its height in the autumn of 1748 and spread into the proprietary timberlands of Pennsylvania. As one councillor of New Jersey exclaimed in horror, all laws are laughed at and disregarded and they with force cut carry and transport timber in the face of the magistrates and defy them. Amos Roberts now headed a virtual people's government in competition with the official one. He divided his domain into three wards, established courts to settle disputes, and elected militia officers. The oligarchy asserted that Roberts had also appointed assessors and collectors to obtain taxes, but the rebels themselves indignantly denied this claim. Apparently they thought tax collecting a rather reprehensible act. The fervor and 
determination of the radical liberal revolutionaries performed the function of pushing the vacillating Belcher and the assembly into line. Headed by a leading writer, Assemblyman John Lowe, the assembly voted overwhelmingly to do nothing to suppress the rebels, and Belcher began to listen sympathetically to the arguments of the rebel John Bainbridge. Belcher was also helped to his new position by the threat of an assembly leader that he would never receive a penny salary if he complained to the crown against the rebels. The council, stronghold of the proprietary oligarchs, then itself petitioned the king, which petition included a criticism of Belcher's actions. The timorous opportunist Belcher, ever ready to bow to the winds of pressure, now hastened to urge the assembly to vote money to protect the jails, and threatened that, should there be any further riots, he would call in troops from another colony and set up a military dictatorship. The assembly kept its head, even in response to his presumptuous demand, and declared the colony much too poor to afford more taxes to protect the jails. It blandly suggested an extension of the amnesty offered to the rebels. Belcher's reaction was a letter to the king, but very weakly done and not sent in collaboration with the council. The British government, however, was coming into different hands, and by spring 1749 was beginning to pursue a much more energetically imperialistic policy toward the colonies. The Board of Trade was under new control. More important, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in charge of the colonies was now no longer the Duke of Newcastle. Heading colonial policy as Secretary of State for the Southern Department from 1724 to 1748, Newcastle had been charmingly lax and had left the colonies more or less alone. But now Newcastle was succeeded by an energetic imperialist, the Duke of Bedford, who scorned Belcher and sided wholly with the feudal proprietors. In this auspicious atmosphere for counter-revolution, Chief Justice Robert Hunter Morris sailed to London to plead the proprietary cause. The Board of Trade's report to the Privy Council was virtually copied from Morris's account. But Belcher's representations managed to mollify the Board. Its final recommendations in the summer of 1751 merely suggested an impartial investigating commission, a reprimand to the Assembly, and an extended amnesty. Belcher and the Assembly were greatly relieved, especially since the board had been on the point of doing something drastic, freeing the New Jersey governor from salary paid by the Assembly, or reuniting New Jersey with New York or sending in British or New York troops to quell the rioters. Meanwhile, the riots themselves had died down as the leaders had fled the colony to escape the expected royal reprisals. Governor Belcher, however, was getting into dire financial straits. Continual conflict between assembly and council had blocked the legislature from voting him any salary. The assembly shrewdly decided to gain Belcher's support and strike a stunning blow at the proprietary at the same time by voting to raise funds through a tax on unimproved lands. 
This, of course, would hit precisely at the arbitrary monopoly of unsettled lands in the hands of the proprietors. The assembly tried to get Belcher to sign the bill and simply ignored defeat in the council. But Belcher, though sympathetic, could not take such a revolutionary step. By the 1752 session, no taxes had been paid in New Jersey for 16 years, and the treasury was empty and the government heavily in debt. The assembly then decided to levy a tax on all land, including the unimproved, and on this more moderate bill, the council and assembly compromised and agreed. The year 1752 also saw the resolution of New Jersey's great land conflict. With the crown out of the picture, the rebels began to take action again and effected a jail rescue in April. The crown, having, in effect, decided against them, the proprietors decided to let well enough alone to be content with their unsettled lands and not to stir up revolutionary ferment. Furthermore, their chancery suit would be decided by Belcher, who would undoubtedly find for the tenants. The proprietors then decided to drop the whole matter. The great counter-revolutionary attempt to impose feudal overlordship on settlers of the land in New Jersey had finally collapsed. The rebels and the assembly, by their determined pressure, combined with the partial assistance of the governor, had finally triumphed. Volume 2, Chapter 10, The Ulster Scots Pennsylvania, during the first half of the 18th century, was the focal center for a great wave of non-English immigration into the American colonies. The American colonies grew with great rapidity, the total population rising from 250,000 in 1700 to almost 1,200,000 in 1750, an almost five-fold increase. Of this rise, the bulk was caused by immigration, and the great part of this migration came from two non-English groups, the Ulster Scots, called the Scotch-Irish, and the Germans. The major part of them settled in Pennsylvania. If the total population grew fivefold between 1700 and 1750, Massachusetts and New York populations rose scarcely more than three times, the latter's meager growth reflecting its restrictive land policy. In contrast, the population of Pennsylvania, the newest colony in 1700, rose from 18,000 to 120,000 in this period, a remarkable increase of nearly sevenfold. Pennsylvania was now more populous than Connecticut and considerably more than New York. This influx led to an accelerated swamping of the original Quaker element of Pennsylvania and to increasing tension between the newcomers and the Quakers. By the end of the colonial era, Pennsylvania was approximately one-third German and one-third Ulster Scot. The Ulster Scots were the largest immigrant group in the 18th century. These men were, in the main, intense Presbyterians from lowland Scotland, whose families had been settled in Ulster in Northern Ireland during the 17th century. By the turn of the 18th century, England began to oppress the Ulster men. A woolen act gravely crippled the export trade of Ulster weavers, 
a test act disenfranchised the Presbyterians, and tenants were especially oppressed and rack-rented by absentee feudal English landlords. The first great wave of Ulster-Scott immigration came after the agricultural failures of 1716-17, and further great waves came in the late 1720s, the early 1740s, and the mid-1750s. By 1776, a quarter of a million Scots had come to America from Ulster. The Ulster Scots flooded into Pennsylvania, where newcomers were particularly welcomed and generally found their way to the western frontier, at that time in southeast Pennsylvania. The bulk of the Scots, being poor, came to America as indentured servants, and after their term of servitude had ended, received the customary allowance of land as an incongruous form of compensation. Most of the Ulster Scots thus became small farmers or squatters in such areas as the Susquehanna and Cumberland Valleys. Eventually, many filtered southward down the Shenandoah Valley to become backwoods frontiersmen in Virginia and Piedmont farmers in the Carolinas. Quite a few Scots, however, mainly those from Scotland itself, became businessmen and tobacco warehousemen in Virginia and Maryland. Some Jacobite Highlanders also came to America after the unsuccessful Stuart rebellions of 1715 and 1745, but these too were Presbyterians rather than Roman Catholics. The brawling, hard-drinking Scott frontiersmen, though often fur traders with the Indians, adopted a violent, aggressive, and contemptuous course toward the natives, and tended to drive them out of their lands. This attitude brought them into sharp conflict with the Pacific Quakers, concerned with justice toward the Indians. It must be recognized, however, that the bulk of Indian-claimed land was not settled and transformed by the Indians, and that, therefore, the Scots were at least justified in ignoring vague, abstract claims, whether by government or by Indian tribes, to the lands they knew that they were settling. Many of the Ulster Scots were squatters on frontier land. Lacking money to pay the prices asked by the feudal proprietary, they reasoned that they were entitled to own virgin land that they themselves had cleared and tilled. They needed no acquaintance with John Locke, to sense that such land was their rightful property. The Pennsylvania government tried for a long while to collect quit rents and purchase payments from the squatters, but to little avail. Several times Provincial Secretary Richard Peters tried to dispossess squatters by arriving with a party of officials to burn down the cabins of the settlers, only to have the squatters rebuild the cabins and farm the land again after they had gone. At other times, squatters fought back against government aggression. By the mid-18th century, the Ulster Scots dominated the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia and the upcountry Piedmont farm region of North Carolina and South Carolina. The valley settlers, remote at first from the seat of government authority at Williamsburg, developed their own customary law of settlement, which granted original property rights to land, on the basis of certain marks of settlement. 
These marks conferring ownership included corn right and taking up land, earned by planting crops and building a home, tomahawk right, earned by clearing a few trees, and cabin right, gained by building a log cabin. These were rough criteria, usually overly generous to the individual settlers, but the system was an instructive example of rough justice emerging from customary law, developed solely by the voluntary actions of the people and without the imposition of statute or decree of the state. It might have been expected that the Ulster Scots would choose to settle in Calvinist New England, which was closest to them in religious conviction, But subtle religious differences meant a great deal to the Puritans, and they made the Presbyterians decidedly unwelcome. Indeed, one of the first groups of Ulster immigrants, several hundred strong, arrived at Boston in 1718 to face a decidedly hostile reception. Most were shunted off to Maine and ended in New Hampshire. One group settled in the frontier town of Worcester, Massachusetts, but was promptly persecuted by the Puritans there. They were coerced into merging their Presbyterian church into the Puritan church and found themselves forced to pay tithes to support their persecutors. To the Presbyterians' petition for relief from the tax, the Worcester township denied their right to independence from the established Puritan church. When the Scots began to build their own church, the Puritans destroyed the building. The hapless Scots were thus forced to move to the more remote western frontier and there founded settlements at Warren and Blandford. Religious hatred was bolstered by ethnic feeling against the foreign Scotch-Irish and by the fear of economic competition. Bostonians also did not want their taxes to be raised to pay for expected welfare and poor relief for the influx of Ulster men. This was understandable, but it was characteristic that the Bostonians blamed the Ulster men instead of their own law, which provided for an escalating drain on the taxpayers for payments to any poor resident. All these factors caused a mob to form in 1729 to prevent a landing of Ulster Scots, and many migrants were prevented from landing or remaining during the next decade. The story was the same in Connecticut. Of the original Boston group of Ulster Scots, one part settled in Voluntown, now Sterling, in northeastern Connecticut. There the Scots were confronted by an official remonstrance of the town council when they obtained their first Presbyterian minister. Because he is a stranger and we are informed that he came out of Ireland, and we are informed that the Irish are not wholesome inhabitants. New England hostility to Presbyterian newcomers was, moreover, not overcome by any great need for more indentured servants. By the 18th century, the greatest need for more forced labor was on large farms and plantations, and aside from the Narragansett country, there were few such opportunities in New England, in contrast to the Middle Atlantic and Southern colonies. As a consequence, religious and ethnic hostility could reign unbridled, and therefore few Ulstermen settled in New England. Instead, they chose Pennsylvania, the great haven of religious freedom 
and of separation of church and state. As for the other Middle Atlantic colonies, New York, with its feudal land structure, was singularly unattractive to would-be farmers. Furthermore, while there were many English Presbyterians on Long Island, the persecution of the revered elder statesman of Presbyterianism, the Reverend Francis McKimmy, an Ulster Scot, by Lord Cornbury, did not endear New York to the Ulstermen. In late 1706, Lord Cornbury, royal governor of New York, arrested and imprisoned McKemmy for allegedly preaching without a license. Though McKemmy was eventually acquitted, he was compelled to pay the cost of his prosecution and was imprisoned a long time before trial. Furthermore, the ordeal hastened McKemmy's death. Delaware, to be sure, contained numerous English and Welsh Presbyterians, but tiny Delaware was already pretty thoroughly settled, and there was little good virgin land available. New Jersey was also heavily Presbyterian, but these Presbyterians were either from England or from Scotland proper, including Highlanders escaping after the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745. Here again, there was little need for indentured servants. Volume 2, Chapter 11, The Pennsylvania Germans The other great group of immigrants who concentrated in Pennsylvania were the Germans. In contrast to the earlier German migration of Quakers and other pietist sects, the mid-18th century German influx was either Lutheran or Reformed Calvinist. These people came to America to escape feudalism, exorbitant taxes, and the pillaging endemic in wartime. The German migration began around 1720, started in earnest in the late 1730s, and reached its peak in the early 1750s, ending rather abruptly with the French and Indian War of the late 50s. By the end of the colonial era, one-third of the Pennsylvanians were Germans, or Dutch, as they were often called. The Germans followed the same route as the Ulster Scots, westward down the Susquehanna and Cumberland Valleys. They, too, were valley farmers, and German and Scotch-Irish settlements alternated down the valley route. The two groups had very little contact with each other, their differences were too great in language, religion, and character. Not only did the Germans keep to themselves, they were also sober, hard-working, thrifty, and highly productive farmers. They treated the Indians justly and peacefully. The Germans, then, followed the Great Valley route, down the Shenandoah and into the Carolina Piedmont, where they founded such settlements as Orangeburg, South Carolina, but to a much lesser degree than did the Ulster Scots. The Germans were largely content to remain in Pennsylvania, especially in Lancaster County, where they could work their farms productively and profitably. In addition to being superb farmers, the Germans proved highly adept at establishing glass factories and ironworks. The Germans produced the first iron stoves and long rifles in America, as well as the first Conestoga wagons. 
While the great bulk of Pennsylvania Germans were Lutherans or Reformed, a small but influential group of Moravians or United Brethren, a pacifist pietist sect, came to Pennsylvania in the 1740s, found in such towns as Bethlehem and Nazareth, The Moravians furnished many missionaries to the Indians, as well as virtually introducing chorale music and establishing numerous schools and ladies' seminaries in Pennsylvania. The mid-18th century indeed saw a considerable expansion of higher education in America. The Southern gentlemen had women marry college, the liberal Puritans had Harvard, and the rigidly orthodox Yale. Now several influential new colleges were founded in the colonies. The Presbyterians founded the College of New Jersey, now Princeton, in 1746. Although Princeton was founded by English and mainland Scots rather than by Ulstermen, the college provided the indispensable source for training new ministers for the Scotch-Irish and for educating their leading citizens. In Philadelphia, the Reverend William Smith and Benjamin Franklin organized in 1755 a new liberal non-sectarian college, the Academy, which later became the University of Pennsylvania. And in New York City, King's College, later Columbia, was founded in 1754. Organized by Anglicans, it nonetheless included on its board men of various religious persuasions, and hence soon emerged as a liberal and secular institution. Volume 2, Chapter 12, Pennsylvania, Quakers, and Indians By the beginning of the 18th century, the original purely individualist Quaker principles had been modified by the proprietor of Pennsylvania, William Penn, and by the ruling proprietary party headed by Pennsylvania's agent, James Logan. The libertarian Quaker opposition continued to be strong, however, and was led by David Lloyd, many times Speaker of the Assembly. Lloyd led the struggle against feudal quitrents, against attempts to aid wars and to impose increased taxation, and against a proprietary veto or the power of the governor to dissolve the Assembly. William Penn died in 1718, in a period of confusion and tumult over the inheritance of the proprietorship. These disputes were settled by the late 1720s, with Penn's younger son assuming the proprietorship. But when Thomas Penn succeeded to the proprietorship in 1746, rule over Pennsylvania passed out of Quaker hands, for Thomas Penn and his heirs had left the Quaker fold to become Anglicans, and after Logan's death, the proprietary agent of Pennsylvania was an Anglican, the Reverend Richard Peters. With the proprietorship no longer Quaker, the Quakers tend to unite against the proprietary and to recover some of the purity of their principles. Even when modified, Quaker principles were radical enough to be unique in the colonies. Nowhere was this uniqueness more outstanding than in military affairs and in their treatment of the Indians. William Penn had from the beginning set the pattern of peace and justice to the Indians and scrupulously purchased Indian land claims even when the claims themselves were dubious. Pursuing a policy of peace, 
incomprehensible to most of the other colonists who were generally conscienceless in slaughtering the Indians, the Quakers of Pennsylvania built no forts, established no militia, and hired no scouts and Indian fighters. And by pursuing a policy of peace and no armaments, they found, mirabile dictu, that they had nothing to fear. They had earned and gained the lasting respect of the Indians, and fair play met with fair play in its turn. As in New Jersey, where Quakers were influential in shaping Indian policy, there was no Indian war in the history of the colony so long as the Quakers ruled. The non-Quaker historian Herbert L. Osgood paid high and eloquent tribute to Quaker policy. The Quakers would not make their religion, though Christian and Protestant, a cause for war with either the heathen or the Catholic. It is true that they based their views on literal reading of the scripture text, but beneath this procedure lay a true consciousness of the essentials of humanity, which transcended all differences of color, race, nation, or creed. Quakers shared in the movement westward, so far as was a necessary consequence of the growth of population. But with the artificial stimulation of these tendencies by military and commercial exploitation, accompanied with the partial or complete destruction of native peoples, they had no sympathy. To the great majority of people in their time, this attitude seemed perverse and purely obstructionist. But for the modern man, it appears worthy of all honor as a dim foreshadowing of what human relations should everywhere be. But as the 18th century wore on, the Quakers began to lose control of Pennsylvania policy. We have seen the Ulster Scot, propensity for indiscriminate land grab and savagery toward the Indians. Furthermore, the new Anglican proprietary was not interested in peace or fair dealing. In 1737, for example, the proprietors engaged in chicanery in extending a tract bought from the Delaware Indians in Bucks County at the junction of the Delaware and the Lehigh Rivers, the walking purchase. The government then proceeded to insist that the Indians leave the land they had settled, but the Quaker-dominated assembly refused to vote funds to allow enforcement of this outrageous demand. But most serious was the eagerness of the proprietary party to participate in the English aggression against the French and their Indian allies on the other side of the Appalachians, for the French had explored and occupied the Mississippi River and the Ohio Valley east of the Appalachians. Now this extensive territory seemed ripe for the grabbing. In 1739, England broke a quarter century of European peace by going to war with Spain and then escalated the war to include France. The Penns and their appointed governor, George Thomas, were eager to enter the fray. Thomas urged the legislature to appropriate money for defense, the age-old verbiage of the aggressor. The assembly replied that the Royal Charter of Pennsylvania permanently guaranteed freedom of conscience. A cardinal point of the Quaker creed, they pointed out, was to be principled against bearing arms in any case whatsoever. Therefore, forcing them to fight, 
would constitute persecution of the Quakers. As for non-Quakers, it would obviously be unjust to conscript them for war while exempting Quakers. Therefore, all militia service should be voluntary. Governor Thomas replied with three arguments. One, the futility of voluntary defense. That is, presumably people were not as eager to defend themselves as Thomas and the militarist were to defend them. Two, were not the Quakers interested in fighting the bloody religion of France and Spain, Catholicism? Three, why would the Quakers not hesitate to kill a burglar and yet not defend themselves against an invading army? To the last point, the assembly trenchantly replied that the burglar was committing a conscious wrong, whereas the soldiers in an army probably did not know that they were acting as criminals. They also properly deprecated any supposed threat of French invasion, noting that the English colonists overwhelmingly outnumbered the French. The governor ended the discussion by charging that Quaker principles were incompatible with the government itself and urged on the proprietary that Quakers be made ineligible for public office. In this he was, in effect, joined by James Logan, ever ready to bend Quaker principles to the proprietary interest. Logan urged the Quakers to resign from the assembly. The assembly cause was led by Speaker John Kinsey, who was also the Attorney General of the province. The Quakers were supported by the Germans, who agreed with the Quaker policy of peace and fair dealing with the Indians. Other Quaker leaders in the assembly were Isaac Norris and Israel Pemberton. John Conrad Weiser, the expansionist German-born advisor to Governor Thomas on Indian affairs, rebuked his fellow Germans for their pro-peace policy, but to no avail. The assembly also effectively used the tactic of withholding the governor's salary to win their points. Passions intensified in this conflict between proprietary and assembly. In the fall elections of 1742, a riot broke out in Philadelphia where a goon squad of anti-Quaker sailors raided the polls. Despite the deliberate failure of the pro-Thomas magistrates to suppress this criminality, the Quakers won both at the polls and in the streets, staunchly backed by the German allies. Unfortunately, the assembly did not stick completely to its principles. While consistently refusing to vote funds for a militia or for direct military purposes during the War of the Austrian Succession, known in America as King George's War, with France in the 1740s, the assembly repeatedly evaded the issue by voting funds for the king's use which funds the Crown could and did use for war. The Quakers did try to assuage their rather elastic consciences by rationalizing that they had not explicitly voted funds for war and that warlike use was decided by the Crown, the same flimsy argument that the Logan Party had used during Queen Anne's War earlier in the century. At one point, New England asked Pennsylvania for money to buy gunpowder for an aggressive assault on the French fort of Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. 
The assembly, urged to grant the money by Governor Thomas, slyly assuaged their consciences by voting a grant to New England of the large sum of three thousand pounds. The funds were to be spent by Thomas on bread, flour, wheat, or other grains, and it was well understood in the colony that other grains meant nothing less than gunpowder. In the meanwhile, Pennsylvania was storing up further trouble with the Delaware Indians by completing the brutal eviction of the Delawares from their lands in Upper Bucks County. After having used fraud to claim the walking purchase and having been thwarted by the Quaker Assembly in imposing eviction of the Indians, the Pennsylvania government turned to the aggressive overlords of the Delawares, the Iroquois. The long-term allies of the English. At a conference in Philadelphia in 1742, the Iroquois agreed, in return for bribes, to recognize the English purchase of Delaware Indian land. The lordly Iroquois chieftain not only ordered the Delawares off their own settled land, but also reviled these Indians, calling them women. And asserted that they had no right to sell their own land without consulting their overlords. The Pennsylvania government was happy to make all future land purchases from an Iroquois tribe that had no connection with and no personal commitment in work and energy to the land. The Delawares complied with the order, storing great bitterness in their hearts. One of the most enthusiastic participants in King George's war against the French was George Croghan, an Ulster Scot Indian trader in Pennsylvania. Like John Conrad Weiser, also an Indian trader, the swindling, nearly illiterate Croghan had a direct economic interest in liquidating his French competitors in the Indian trade. Penetrating beyond the Appalachians into the French territory of the Ohio Valley, Croghan stirred up the Indians to massacre his French competition. Beginning by murdering five French traders at Sandusky, the Croghan directed Indians burned French settlements during 1747 and murdered traders throughout the Ohio Valley. A fellow English trader well summed up Croghan's activities. Croghan had at all times persuaded the Indians to destroy the French by the presents he had made them. That self-interest was his sole motive in everything he did. That his views were to engross the old trade and to scare the French from dealing with the Indians. Croghan, delighted with his Indians, sent a scalp of one of the murdered Frenchmen to Governor Thomas, and boasted that the Indians would soon seize the French port of Detroit. This hope proved vain, but Wiser and Croghan persuaded the Pennsylvania government to grant a four hundred pound reward to the pillaging Indians, a gift hardly in line with Quaker principles. It is no wonder that by the end of King George's War in 1748, George Croghan had emerged as by far the largest Indian trader in Ohio, and was commonly called the King of the Traders. To keep these Indian allies, Croghan led the proprietors in forcibly driving the squatters off their lands. So enthusiastic was Croghan in going about his task that Thomas Penn was moved to applaud Croghan. The proprietor's agent commended the Reverend Mr. Peters, 
in overall command of the operation, for executing the job with a hussar spirit, nothing but which will do with these people. Hardly had the war with France ended when Croghan and Thomas Penn each came to the conclusion that a government fort should be built in French territory on the Ohio River. Penn had power designs on the valley, while Croghan was worried not so much about French trade as about the Ohio Company, a speculative land company to which Virginia had arbitrarily granted a huge amount of land, and which stood to profit by any settling in this region. Such settlement would have ended Croghan's opportunities for trade with the Indians. Typically, Croghan lied repeatedly to the Pennsylvania authorities, asserting that the Indians were demanding such a fort of the English. But while the Quaker Assembly was perfectly willing to supply Croghan with bribes for the Indians, they were still reluctant to build a fort. Thomas Penn and his officials were almost able to drive the fort through the assembly in the fall of 1751. Then, at the last minute, Croghan's misrepresentations were publicly and dramatically revealed, and the project fell through. Quakers in the colony, slowly but surely dwindling in devotion to their principles, were saved despite themselves for a while longer and Pennsylvania was stopped from aggression in France's Ohio Valley. Shorn of government favor, Croghan's trade was left dependent on his own business acumen, which was hardly extensive. Overloaded in debt and swindling his partners and creditors to the end, Croghan became insolvent shortly after his disgrace and the defeat of the Fort Bill. Despite its evasions and compromises, the Quaker Assembly managed to avoid direct armed participation in King George's War. The colony came closest in 1747, the last full year of the war. Delaware, the non-Quaker sister colony under the proprietary of the Penn family, had gladdened the rulers by voting for a militia and a fund for participation in the war effort. It was repaid by a raid during July by a small landing party near Luz from a few French and Spanish privateers. The landing party plundered a few farms. Its strength and the damage done were negligible, but hysteria began to sweep Philadelphia, a hysteria carefully fostered and abetted by the war party constituting the ruling executive oligarchy. Rumors of a feared Spanish expedition from Havana circulated throughout the colony. The council suggested arms for the colony, as well as aid to Indians in New York. The assembly, however, kept its head in the midst of the war hysteria and coolly and properly disparaged the supposed threat from the sea. It also trenchantly pointed out that since the time aggression against Canada had been suspended, there had been little threat to worry about from Indians in the north. The assembly concluded by pointing to the money they had saved the people of Pennsylvania by refraining from appropriating funds for other alleged threats in the past. Volume 2, Chapter 13 The Emergence of Benjamin Franklin at this point, there entered the scene a man whose historical reputation is perhaps the most 
overinflated of the entire colonial period in America, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, a printer from Philadelphia, a writer, inventor, and clerk of the assembly, decided to circumvent the assembly's refusal to establish a militia by creating one himself. He began his campaign by publishing a pamphlet, Plain Truth, 1747, which proved highly influential in whipping up war hysteria. He painted the menace and horrors of armed invasion in lurid colors and demagogically appealed to the supposed fighting qualities of each ethnic group in the colony. Alarmist rumors were spread of a supposed enemy attack in the spring of 1748. In the midst of this fervid atmosphere, Franklin launched a voluntary militia association, which quickly gained over 10,000 adherents in the colony. The men formed themselves into companies and regiments and elected their own officers. Franklin then used a lottery to finance this private army and used the funds to purchase cannons. While voluntarily financed, Franklin's association was not truly private, for Franklin worked hand-in-hand with the delighted proprietary administration. Reverend Mr. Peters wrote to Thomas Penn that the association movement was in the interest of the proprietary and would be a means of escaping from Quaker control of the province. Penn, however, disagreed and declared that establishing an army outside the government apparatus virtually constituted treason. Besides, Penn had that instinctive bitter distrust of the bureaucrat and ruler, of any mass action of the people undirected by the state, for the very precedent of such action could some day redound against the state itself. But Peters, as well as the council, hastened to assure Penn that the association was really a governmental body, taking orders from them, and that they were in complete control of the appointment of officers and of all the orders directed to them. Apprised of these facts, Penn relented and expressed his warm approval of the institution as a necessity of the time. Franklin displayed his cunning in the affair by having a fast day proclaimed in honor of the association, in order to bring the clergy and God in on the side of the scheme. As Franklin himself boasted in his autobiography, calling in the aid of religion, I proposed to them, the governor and council, the proclaiming of fast to implore the blessing of heaven on our undertaking. This gave the clergy of the different sects an opportunity of influencing their congregation to join in the association, and it would probably have been general among all but Quakers if the peace had not soon intervened. Indeed, peace intervened and disproved all the nonsensical claims and fears perpetrated by Franklin and the ruling war party. The Quakers emerged from the war more honored and entrenched than ever. They needed to retain only their unity and principle to continue the peace policy. As we shall soon see, however, this proved impossible, 
and a good part of the responsibility for the collapse of Quaker peace principles belongs to Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was, indeed, a man of many and versatile attainments, but he lived, it must be remembered, in a versatile and unspecialized age when learned men were familiar with most of the ranges of human thought. Moreover, he was the opportunist par excellence. Amidst all the uncritical adulation for Franklin, probably Professor Joseph Dorfman has given the most just estimate. In an age where great flexibility of mind and action was called for, he, Franklin, was without peer in moving with the course of events. His inconsistencies were many, but they were the inevitable accompaniments of his diverse loyalties and his journalistic habits. Benjamin Franklin, the son of a Boston artisan, made his way to Philadelphia to work as a printer, setting up his own business in 1728 at the age of 22. Characteristic of Franklin, the popular and inveterate spouter of copybook maxims, was the way he repaid the venerable Andrew Bradford, Pennsylvania's first printer, and his son William, who had befriended the young Franklin and had gotten him his first job as a printer. Anxious to obtain the highly lucrative patronage of being public printer, and seeing that Bradford had printed an assembly address containing some errors, Franklin quickly prepared a correct printing and sent a copy to every member of the assembly. He was soon able to take the public printing business away from Bradford. Franklin was able to develop a lucrative printing business at so young an age, largely by keeping an eye to the main chance, that is, through an ability to win a favored place at the public trough by gaining the patronage of older and influential men. Hardly had Franklin launched his business when he was able to snag several highly profitable plums of government privilege. The first and most important was his securing of the vital public printing business, won away not simply by the above device, but primarily by the influence of the venerable lawyer Andrew Hamilton, an extremely powerful member of the assembly, whose son was soon to be governor of the colony. Hamilton had taken a liking to young Franklin and continued to lavish patronage upon him until his death. The second coup centered on paper money. In 1729, the question arose whether or not Pennsylvania should print another large issue of paper money. Franklin, spurred by the lucrative prize of the contract for printing the new money, wrote an anonymous pamphlet a modest inquiry into the nature and necessity of a paper currency that trumpeted the cause of paper money and played an important role in driving the scheme through the assembly. Let Franklin tell the happy ending to the story. My friends there in the assembly, who conceived I had been of some service, thought fit to reward me by employing me in printing the money, a very profitable job, and a great help to me. Some service indeed received its due reward, but whether this service was virtue is another matter. 
Hamilton followed this handsome subsidy by securing to his protege the public printing work in Delaware and its printing of paper money. With this enormous advantage, Franklin could soon expand his business, and more privilege was soon to come his way. In 1736, he was chosen clerk of the Pennsylvania Assembly, a highly important post that Franklin could use as a springboard to secure the privileges of his other governmental business. As Franklin later candidly admitted, besides the pay for the immediate service as clerk, the place gave me a better opportunity of keeping up an interest among the members, which secured to me the business of printing the votes, laws, paper money, and other occasional jobs for the public that, on the whole, were very profitable. Franklin lets us in on some of the ways in which he was able to attract patronage. When opposed as clerk by one of the members of the assembly, Franklin took the trouble to borrow a rare book of the assemblyman's and quickly to write him a note of profuse thanks. He proudly paints the copybook lesson in his autobiography that this incident shows how much more profitable it is prudently to remove. Then to resent, return, and continue inimical proceedings, and notes how this confirms the old maxim: "He that has once done you a kindness will be more ready to do you another than he whom you yourself have obliged." The following year, young Franklin was further rewarded with the important job of postmaster of Philadelphia, again taken away from Bradford. Here again, Franklin notes the post to be of great advantage, for though the salary was small, it facilitated the correspondence and improved my newspaper, increased the numbers demanded, as well as the advertisements to be inserted, so that it came to afford me a considerable income. My old competitor's newspaper declined proportionately. With his business success thus assured, Benjamin Franklin had the leisure to turn more attention to public affairs. Here he was helped by the Junto, a club of young men Franklin had founded in 1727. Members of the Junto formed for philosophical discussion and later transformed into the American Philosophical Society, formed their own clubs, and thus the Junto became a center of intellectual life in Philadelphia. Franklin was able to tap the Junto for financial aid, and to mobilize it for help in his various public projects. Franklin's first meddling in public affairs set the model for what was to follow. The police force of Philadelphia was financed by a uniform tax of six shillings a year on each householder. The bulk of the duties of the force were undertaken by householders themselves, serving unpaid in lieu of tax payment. Franklin decided that it would be better to hire a full-time police bureaucracy and to pay for it by a proportional tax on property. Franklin never bothered to explain why it should be perfectly common and proper for a wealthy man and a poor man to pay the same price for every other conceivable commodity, but that morality suddenly shifted its answers regarding the service of police protection. Working through his junto and its numerous front clubs, Franklin was able to change public opinion, and then to win acceptance of a change in the law a few years later. By the end of the war, 
Franklin had assumed a leading role in Pennsylvania politics through his association movement. Having accumulated a sufficient fortune as printer and publisher, Franklin turned more zealously to the quest for political power. From being a clerk of the assembly, Franklin now became an assembly man. In the assembly, Franklin continued to push for government intervention in urban affairs. For example, he sponsored a grant in aid of 4,000 pounds for constructing a local hospital conditioned on the hospital's raising a matching sum among the public. His grant in aid device enabled Franklin to override the opposition of the country members who did not relish subsidizing the rich city of Philadelphia by paying for a hospital there. He also drove through a bill providing for governmental paving and lighting of the city's streets. Franklin added to his power and income by linking himself to the proprietary party in the assembly and securing its patronage, particularly that of the powerful Chief Justice William Allen. In 1753, Allen used his influence to gain Franklin the appointment of Joint Deputy Postmaster General of the Colonies, a lucrative post for its own sake and for aiding the circulation of Franklin's newspaper. Franklin had begun to scramble for the post two years before the death of the previous ailing Deputy Postmaster General. Chief Justice Allen put up 300 pounds to purchase the post for Franklin. Despite the fact that peace had hardly yet broken out, Great Britain was getting ready to strike a mortal blow at the French Empire. It began to attack French territory in the Ohio Valley in 1754, and in 1756 the war was made official and generalized into the Seven Years' War, known in America as the French and Indian War. Once again, Quaker, Pennsylvania, was faced with a crucial decision on support of a war, a more important decision since the scale of the new war was far greater. During the early 1750s, the proprietary party favoring the war was led by Provincial and Proprietary Secretary Richard Peters, an Anglican priest, the Reverend William Smith, another Anglican priest, Chief Justice William Allen, and the appointed governor. The proprietary clique was dismayed to find itself in an unpopular minority, and Governor James Hamilton despaired at the general public hatred toward appointed magistrates, whom they understandably regarded as a power above and apart from them. Peters even desired a law disenfranchising the Germans under the excuse that they were not proficient in English. But so long as the Quakers stood firm and united, a peace policy would prevail. The Quakers, however, were no longer firm in purpose or principle. We have already noted their tendency to evade principle, for their principles to wither away. Now, as a great new war was brewing, an increasing number of Quakers desired to join the conflict. The Quakers were ripe for crumbling from internal weakness. The culminating Quaker crisis began in late 1754 when the newly appointed governor, Robert Hunter Morris, a staunch partisan of the proprietary, openly urged the assembly to appropriate a huge amount of funds for military purposes. Before this, appropriations had been carefully designed to appear non-military. 
but so far were the Quakers from pacifist purity that they promptly voted to raise the enormous sum of twenty thousand pounds for the king's use in paper money issue ultimately repayable from existing taxation. Governor Morris, however, was forced by royal instructions restricting paper money issue to veto the bill. Morris also blocked a bill for issuing twenty thousand pounds of paper money to finance a British military expedition under General Edward Braddock in the Ohio Valley. Into this situation, shrewd Benjamin Franklin now stepped and took a hand. Franklin saw that Quaker devotion to pacifist principle was now largely pro forma, and saw also that he could take the leadership of the Quaker party in the assembly by leading it into a constitutional and political fight against the proprietary. In particular, he could desert the proprietary party on the issue of tax exemption for the proprietor's lands, an issue that became very important as heavy taxes had to be levied for military affairs. By leading a fight by the Quaker assembly on this issue, Franklin was to become a popular hero, while at the same time indirectly but effectively scuttling Quaker opposition to the war effort. Franklin's opportunity came in 1755. In the spring, Massachusetts had asked Pennsylvania for help in financing an expedition against Canada. Franklin went so far as to write the request and to push through the assembly an aid appropriation of 10,000 pounds, thus earning the praise and gratitude of the British crown. General Braddock's appropriation, however, had been defeated on the rock of the paper money dispute. Braddock's disastrous defeat at Fort Duquesne now forced Governor Morris to summon a special session of the assembly in the summer to renew a request for aid. Subsequent to Braddock's attack and rout, the Delaware Indians, allied to the French, retaliated by turning on their tormentors, the frontier Scots, as well as against the Pennsylvania government that had driven them off their lands. Pennsylvania was beginning to reap the reward for its aggression against the Delawares. The Scotch-Irish demanded arms and ammunition from the assembly under virtual threat of mob invasion of Philadelphia. Under this pressure, the assembly now decided to grant no less than 50,000 pounds to be raised by a 12 pence per pound and 20 shilling per person tax for two years on all real and personal property in Pennsylvania. Morris, however, was again forced to reject the bill, this time because there was no exemption for the proprietor's estates. Here was the perfect issue for Franklin to exploit. Now Franklin, carrying the Quakers along with him, could quite cogently berate the proprietary for endangering the war effort by refusing to pay the very taxes that it sought to impose on its subjects. The frame of reference of the debate had been shifted away from problems of pacifism and indeed of old-fashioned Quaker individualism and opposition to taxation. As Morris shrewdly wrote at the end of 1755, Franklin has views that they, the Quakers, know nothing of. The truth, I believe, is that he is courting them in order to distress you, 
the proprietary, and at the same time, leading them into measures that will in the end deprive them of any share in the administration. At the end of the year, Franklin reintroduced a war fund bill of £60,000 to be issued in paper money and redeemed in property taxes with no exemption for Penn's property. A group of principled Quakers rallied to protest the measure as inconsistent with peaceable testimony, but they could muster only seven dissenting votes against passage in the assembly. Franklin's purposes were greatly aided by the renegacy of the Quaker speaker Isaac Norris, who had completely abandoned the peace policy. The purest in the assembly were led by James Pemberton, brother of the beloved King of the Quakers, the prominent merchant Israel Pemberton. Apart from this handful, the Quakers had been taken into camp. Eventually, when Norris again objected, Franklin had the bill repassed without taxing the proprietary. However, the Crown was now stimulated to force the proprietor to contribute £5,000 voluntarily to the Pennsylvania war effort. This gift, nevertheless, was highly dubious, as it was to come from the arrears in largely uncollectible quitrents. The upshot was that the Quakers had agreed to a large war budget without even gaining the principle of taxing the proprietary itself. Hearing also that hundreds of violent Scots frontiersmen were marching on Philadelphia, the assembly increased its own appropriation by 5,000 pounds. The Quaker assembly not only assented supinely to a huge military program, but also was induced to agree for the first time to an official government militia for Pennsylvania. The militia bill was introduced by Franklin at the end of 1755. Franklin won Quaker support by proclaiming the volunteerism of the militia. No one Quaker or non-Quaker was to be conscripted into its service who might be conscientiously scrupulous. Furthermore, the volunteer soldiers could democratically choose their own officers. The Quakers, however, seemed to have forgotten that their principle was to oppose any government militia, any coercive body imposed by the state. So shrewdly did Franklin maneuver that this unprecedented bill passed the assembly in two days with only four pacifist Quakers in opposition, again led by the courageous James Pemberton. Thus, in less than a year's time, Benjamin Franklin had succeeded in radically transforming the politics and policies of the Quaker Party and of the Assembly. He had managed to work himself into the party leadership on a program of war expenditures and a militia by leading the Assembly into a political struggle with the proprietary and its appointed executive. The pure Quakers, devoted to the principle of peace and individualism, had been isolated and routed. The Pembertons organized a petition urging that Quakers suffer rather than pay war taxes, but this scarcely succeeded in turning the tide. In the meanwhile, the proprietary party was pursuing an old dream of the younger Pens, the barring of the Quakers and their supporters from the assembly in Pennsylvania. 
The new campaign to gain parliamentary legislation to this effect was launched in London in early 1755 by the Reverend William Smith, who urged a test oath for willingness to fight, as well as a disenfranchisement for all Germans until they have a sufficient knowledge of our language and constitution. He also proposed the outlawing of all newspapers or journals printed in any foreign language. In the fall, a petition for barring Quakers from the assembly was circulated in Pennsylvania, led by William Allen. Alarmed, the English Quakers, a group prominent in English affairs, counterattacked with sustained pressure. In hearings before the Board of Trade, the successful war supply and militia bills were used as evidence that the Quakers were no longer pacifist and therefore no longer a source of worry. The board and the Privy Council, however, disallowed the Pennsylvania Militia Bill in the summer of 1756 because it dared to allow exemptions to conscientious objectors. While the English Quakers were able to prevent a test oath, they too had no patience with peace or pacifism, and they insisted that the pacifist Quakers end all evidence of their principled opposition to war by resigning en masse from the assembly. Unfortunately, Pemberton and his handful of colleagues did not believe the fight worth pursuing. With the bulk of their constituency and even their fellow Quakers swept into a war position, they decided in the summer of 1756 to abandon the effort and resign, using an additional war grant to the king as their excuse. Franklin was overjoyed at the resignation of the stiff rump of the Quakers, his conquest of Quaker principle being now complete. Moreover, four more Quakers resigned in the fall, many others refused to be candidates, and others refused to vote. Yearly and monthly Quaker meetings urged resignations upon all Quaker officials. The sect had become politically demoralized. Many members felt it easier to evade the entire issue and passively permit non-Quakers to pursue the war effort. The result was that Benjamin Franklin was left in complete control of the Pennsylvania Assembly, the remaining Quakers now being thoroughly committed to the war effort and to Franklin's leadership. Thereafter, the political issues were constitutional ones, waged over proprietary rule versus the rights of the Assembly. Of course, Governor Morris and the proprietary were unhappy at the result of the crisis, especially at Franklin's near-absolute control over the new Pennsylvania militia and its democratic system of the soldiers electing their officers. In fact, Morris formed independent militia companies in Philadelphia under the rule of the proprietary. A near war broke out in the city in the spring of 1756 as Franklin, colonel of the Philadelphia militia, marched his regiment to a meeting of the independents and forced the participants to disperse. Franklin, however, was not at all interested in a truly voluntary militia. With the Quakers having been cajoled into establishing the militia, Franklin soon felt the time ripe to extend the rigorously disciplinary Mutiny Act 
to Pennsylvania. The act made a mockery of the supposedly voluntary nature of the militia by decreeing a death penalty for mutiny or even desertion. The bill was temporarily blocked by the Quakers, who had not yet resigned, but an impassioned plea by Franklin again managed to dissipate their opposition. With the decks of Pennsylvania cleared for war and coercion, Governor Morris and the Council in April 1756 declared all-out warfare against the Indians, including subsidies for scalps of male and female Indians alike. Morris and Franklin, to some extent, believed that the Indians needed a good drubbing. This illegal declaration by governor and council, bypassing the Quaker assembly, was the precipitant of the Quakers' block's decision to resign and to leave the prosecution of the war to others. The Scotch-Irish frontiersmen were, of course, happy to heed the call for murder and terror against the Indians, and their ministers joined the fight. The Pacific German farmers, in contrast, retired from their farms rather than fight the Indians. The peace Quakers, led by Israel Pemberton, seeing the historic policy of peace with the red man abandoned, formed a private, friendly association for regaining and preserving peace with the Indians by Pacific measures. A restraining influence soon appeared on the Morris proprietary policy of massive annihilation of the Indians. General Sir William Johnson, the chief British official for Indian affairs, was becoming dominant in setting Indian policy in the colonies. The keystone of Sir William's program was the old alliance with the Iroquois, and this could hardly be secured by exterminating their dependent tribes. Two forces now drew the teeth of Pennsylvania aggression against the Indians, protest by Johnson and the willingness of the Delawares to attend a peace conference proposed by their old friends, the Quakers. Furthermore, Morris was succeeded as governor by the weak William Denny, while Franklin had become a political ally of Johnson's major theoretician, Thomas Pownall. A policy of peace with the Indians was now coming to the fore and led to a peace conference with the Delaware chief, Teriaskung, at Easton. Teriaskung placed the blame for his attacks upon Pennsylvania on the infamous walking purchase and the ouster of the Delawares from their land. This very ground that is under me was my land and was taken from me by fraud. While negotiations were proceeding, the build-up for war with New France continued in Pennsylvania. The Crown and the Proprietary insisted over the objections of the Assembly on compulsorily quartering over 1,000 British soldiers who were suffering from a smallpox epidemic with the citizens of Philadelphia. The following year, a battle ensued over the Military Appropriations Bill, a huge sum of £100,000 to be raised by a property tax. Again, the governor refused to agree to taxing the proprietor's estates, and the Assembly, after being pressured to vote for funds with the exemption, sent Benjamin Franklin to England to argue its case with the proprietary. Franklin managed to persuade the Pens to agree to be taxed, 
but the proprietors soon rescinded this agreement. The Delaware Indians proved more tractable, however. By 1758, the peace negotiations had borne fruit. Chief Teddy Oskung received recognition by the Pennsylvania government of the unfairness of the walking purchase, as well as compensation for his stolen land. The more westerly Indians were bought off by gift of 5,000 pounds loaned to the assembly by the Friendly Association. By 1758, also, the tide of war with the French had turned decisively in favor of England, and this helped end any serious conflict with the Indians. The war with France ended in 1763, with France forced to cede Canada and all of its colonial possessions in North America east of the Mississippi River. England had succeeded in crushing and eradicating New France. Volume 2, Chapter 14, The Paxton Boys Hardly had the war ended when internal trouble as well as trouble with the Indians erupted in Pennsylvania. It must be pointed out that the Quakers reaped the reward of their past policy. Even the frontier Quakers were left untouched by the rampaging Indians. In the midst of border fighting with Indians, a group of over 50 Scotch-Irish frontiersmen from Paxton in Lancaster County suddenly decided to take a leaf from the book of 17th century Massachusetts and Virginia and to massacre peaceful and friendly Indians. A tiny group of some 20 peaceful Conestoga Indians, seven men and the rest women and children, had long been settled in the county. It was easier for the brave lads to butcher these few Indians than to battle their enemies on the frontier. And so, on December 14, 1763, the Paxton boys, led by Matthew Smith and Lazarus Stewart, slaughtered and scalped eight of the defenseless Conestogas. Their only excuse was a vague suspicion that they might have been aiding the enemy. Governor John Penn asked for their arrest. In reply, the Paxton boys murdered the remaining Indians, who had vainly been placed in jail to guard their safety. Not content with this outrage, the Paxton boys marched on Philadelphia in pursuit of some peaceful, neutral, and Christian Moravian Indians who had gone there. The poor Moravians had been set upon several months before by a band of Scotsmen, and several men and women had been murdered. When the murderers were in their turn ambushed and killed, the entire Moravian Indian community was blamed, and the Ulster Scots decided to annihilate these Indians. The terrified Indians fled to the Moravian town of Nazareth, but the assembly decided to disarm them and move them finally and forcibly to Philadelphia. The 140-odd Indians were, for their pains, jeered and cursed at every stop along their long march. At Philadelphia, soldiers successfully defied the governor's orders and refused to admit the Indians to the barracks. Finally, almost lynched by a mob, but protected by a cordon of Quakers, the Indians found a camp near the city. The Moravian Indians were shipped to New York by the frightened Philadelphians, but the governors of New York and New Jersey ordered the refugees out of their provinces 
and the hapless Indians were forced to return once again to Philadelphia. Now marching several hundred strong, the Paxton boys thundered that they would slaughter not only all the Moravian Indians, but also any Quakers who might stand in their path. Under such provocation, the Quakers of Germantown rose up in arms to block the invaders' way and formed volunteer militia, again under Franklin's aegis. Certainly the situation was enough to stretch absolute pacifism to the breaking point. While the Indians were successfully defended after several days on the brink of conflict, Franklin was treating the Paxton boys rather as citizens to be forgiven, with grievances to be pondered, than as murderers. Furthermore, Governor Penn and the council added to the climate of official complicity by placing a bounty on Indian scalps. The Paxton boys disbanded and left for home after unchecked terrorization and plundering of the citizens of Philadelphia. As for the Moravian Indians, they were forced to remain for a year in the Philadelphia barracks while negotiations were being completed. There a third of the Indians died from smallpox before they could finally return home. Following the march of the Paxton boys, there ensued a furious pamphlet war between the two sides. The Ulster Scots blamed Quaker pacifism for the colony's troubles with the Indians, while the pro-Quaker writers noted that the peace policy with the Indians had succeeded for three-quarters of a century until seriously weakened by the government and by the excesses of the Ulster Scots. One significant point of grievance, unrelated to the Indian affairs, was raised in the Declaration of Grievances, submitted to the government by two leaders of the Paxton Boys, Matthew Smith and James Gibson. This point, heading the list of grievances, was the under-representation in the Pennsylvania Assembly of the frontier counties relative to the older areas nearer Philadelphia. In a democracy, the natural inherent tendency is to over-represent older areas and underrepresent the new, unless there is, as in colonial Massachusetts, a built-in method for enlarging representation for the new areas. And then the older areas naturally wish to maintain their advantage, and explosive sectional conflict can ensue, unless the apportionment is swiftly adjusted to the new pattern of population. This tendency had been borne out in Pennsylvania, the five western frontier counties, Lancaster, York, Berks, Northampton, and Cumberland, had an allotted representation of little more than one-third that of the eastern areas, Philadelphia City, Philadelphia County, Chester, and Bucks, whereas the representation according to the number of eligible voters should have been about equal. To a large extent, moreover, this meant over-representation of Quakers and under-representation of the Scotch-Irish. The eastern counties had no intention of relinquishing their domination of Pennsylvania politics. One Quaker leader remarked with horror that the frontiersmen's demands would enable them to return a majority of the Presbyterian friends for representatives. One of the Scott pamphlets summed up the Eastern reaction as the resentment of men 
who see their darling power endangered. As the pamphlet agitation mounted, Philadelphia was again threatened with another Paxton-style invasion, and many Philadelphians were beaten up when traveling through western counties. Two more events or trends of significance in early 18th century Pennsylvania may here be mentioned. One was the withering away, as in Massachusetts, of mercantilist attempts to confer monopoly privileges on artisans of Philadelphia. While there had been attempts around the turn of the century to restrict competition by law in these trades, enforcement of the regulations broke down as the century progressed. The second important event was the final settlement of a long-standing boundary dispute stemming from charter conflicts between Pennsylvania and Maryland. After repeated aggressive attempts by Maryland to acquire Pennsylvania territory, the Crown finally decided in favor of Pennsylvania in 1750, with the Penns also keeping proprietorship of Delaware against Maryland claims. The boundary line was surveyed and finally completed by Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon in 1767 and ratified by the Crown two years afterward. Volume 2, Chapter 15, The Virginia Land System The southern colonies generally had a much less eventful history in the first half of the 18th century than their more northerly sisters. These colonies expanded but retained roughly the same social and political structure. A large plantation economy, growing mainly tobacco, and staffed with forced labor, with Negro slaves increasing more and more in relation to indentured servants. The headright system of land grants, among other political institutions, had subsidized the importation of indentured servants, and the availability of forced labor, in turn, permitted large plantations, otherwise uneconomic, to develop and prosper. In each colony, the Anglican Church was established, but not very popularly, and religious liberty was permitted to all Protestants. An appointed royal or proprietary governor with his allied council presided over the colony and was confronted with an elected assembly, which, though elected reasonably democratically, generally represented the planter oligarchy. Slaves and servants, of course, could never vote. The assembly jealously guarded its power over appropriation and tax bills and would not relinquish it to the executive. Maryland and Virginia were particularly stable in this period, especially the former colony. Virginia received a deep imprint from the lengthy administration of Governor Alexander Spotswood, 1710-22. through 22. A thoroughgoing reactionary, Spotswood was, in the words of Herbert Osgood, a high Tory and defender of the prerogative in matters of church and state, and an aggressive imperialist in his relations with the Indians, the French, and the neighboring colonies. He was a close friend of the influential British Tory, William Blathwaite. Spotswood was always ready to arm and fight against the Indians or the French, 
and he urged English seizure of the Great Lakes and Trans-Allegheny region. In contrast to the northern colonies, a permanent fund for governor's salaries existed in both Maryland and Virginia, and this weakened the extent of assembly control over the governor. But the assembly could still threaten to cut off other appropriations for the executive branch, and this proved an effective weapon. During Queen Anne's War, the Assembly balked at Spotswood's demand for military appropriations against a rumored, but never materialized, attack by the French. Four years later, it again balked at appropriations to fight Indians in South Carolina. Governor Spotswood arrived in Virginia with instructions to reform the land system. The original fairly viable headright policy of granting 50 acres to each settler had been prevented through granting free settlers an additional 50 acres for each indentured servant. To this were added the purchases of headrights, Virginia having decided in 1702 to allow unlimited purchases of headrights at the price of five shillings for 50 acres. Fraudulent surveys and grants also helped result in a policy of large land grants to speculators instead of to settlers. Spotswood at first tried to reform the system of land monopoly. The legal requirement that land be cleared and planted before grant of title had been construed so loosely that a land speculator could appropriate 10,000 acres by clearing just one acre and building a tiny hut upon the acre of land. Spotswood managed to drive through a stricter land law in 1710 and 1713, providing also for forfeiture for non-payment of quit-rent. Spotswood was interested not only in genuine reform, but also in enforcement of the perennially contentious quit-rent burden. The council, however, was largely composed of great landlords, they bitterly resisted the new laws, and as judges of the general court declared the forfeiture applicable only to future rather than past land grants. And even this restricted provision was not enforced by Virginia officials. Alexander Spotswood finally decided that it would be more profitable to join the grantees than to try to defeat them. Spotswood not only had his own land laws weakened in 1720, he also inaugurated an era of large land grants on easy terms, especially in the tempting areas of unsettled Piedmont land, west of the Virginia fall line. Spotswood himself was not slow to take advantage of his own change of heart, especially when he heard of his pending removal, and by the end of his term he had managed to grant himself over 85,000 acres in Spotsylvania County. As an extra bonus, Spotswood granted himself a special quit-rent exemption for a seven-year period. He also took care to be granted land containing iron mines, the first iron produced in Virginia. He even imported a settlement of Germans to found Germana and to work the mines, but the subsidized venture turned out to be a failure. The first imported Germans were Swiss, who soon moved to new land of their own, 
at which point Spotswood made certain to import Palatine Germans to be indentured servants who could not leave their work so readily. The policy of land engrossment was continued and expanded by Spotswood's successors, among whom was William Gooch, who governed Virginia from 1726 to 1749. In 1730, Gooch made the lot of the land monopolist still easier by deferring quit rents and permitting a settlement of one family for every thousand acres. These terms were specified in a grant of 30,000 acres to John Van Meter. Between 1730 and 1736, just six years, Eight grants were made by the Virginia government, totaling 500,000 acres of unsettled land. The largest grant was 130,000 acres to William Beverly. Some of these grants passed through the Piedmont and into the Shenandoah Valley. These grants began in 1728 with gifts of 26,000 acres to Larkin Chu and his associates, the Van Meters soon received 40,000 acres. The actual settlers, however, were not necessarily worse off in securing this land here than elsewhere. In no colony was a libertarian homestead principle in full operation, and many settlers found it cheaper to purchase small farms from these speculators than to battle for patents from the Virginia bureaucracy, or to buy land in Pennsylvania. In the march westward, Virginia came into conflict with competing land monopolists, the owners of the huge Northern Neck. Lord Culpepper had been proprietor of Northern Neck as well as co-proprietor of Virginia itself in the late 17th century. But when he sold back his proprietary right in Virginia to the Crown in 1684, he could not negotiate a sale for Northern Neck, for which he then obtained a perpetual charter from King James II in 1688. By the turn of the 18th century, the Northern Neck grant had passed by inheritance into the hands of Lord Fairfax. Fairfax, by loose construction of the charter, contended that Northern Neck should extend to all the land between the headwaters of the Potomac and Rappahannock, including Rapidan Rivers. Finally, in 1745, the case was decided in favor of Lord Fairfax over the protest of the governor and the House of Burgesses. By this appalling decision, Lord Fairfax was granted the ownership of the enormous total of six million acres of northern Virginia, including a large piece of the Shenandoah Valley. The decision awarded to Fairfax the present Virginia counties of Culpeper, Fauquier, Rappahannock, Madison, Prince William, Stafford, Fairfax, Loudoun, Arlington, Warren, Page, Shenandoah, Clark, Frederick, King George, Westmoreland, Richmond, Northumberland, and Lancaster and the West Virginia counties of Jefferson, Berkeley, Morgan, Hampshire, and Hardy. In the meanwhile, leading tidewater planters had for decades received land grants from Virginia in this expanding region. Particularly active was William Beverly, nephew of William Byrd II, 
and the Beverly family had secured over 60,000 acres and, in fact, a large part of Augusta County. In contrast, Robert King Carter, an agent of Lord Fairfax and senior member of the council, had acquired an enormous amount of land under Fairfax's overlordship for himself, his relatives, and friends. When Fairfax's claim was upheld, he validated all Virginia grants in his region, with himself, of course, as the overlord, receiving quit-rents. The quit-rents, however, were poorly enforced, Fairfax having come up against the almost universal colonial resistance to paying this feudal levy. Being poorly enforced, the Fairfax proprietary did not arouse the resentment that might have been expected. Volume 2, Chapter 16, The Virginia Political Structure The political structure of 18th century Virginia featured the form of democracy, except, of course, for slaves and servants, prettifying the hard reality of oligarchic rule by the large planters. Accordingly, the hierarchy of officialdom was continuously permeated by the scions of a handful of leading planter families— as Professor Sidnor states, at the peak of the official hierarchy with the members of the council who were chosen from the top families of the planter aristocracy, and they were in a favorable position, which they did not hesitate to use to secure large grants of land. Good family helped to put a man in the council. In turn, membership in the council enabled a man to improve the fortunes of his family. The advantages of the office were enjoyed by a rather small number of families interrelated by blood and marriage. One kind of relationship is indicated by the fact that only 57 family names appear on a list of the 91 men appointed to the council from 1680 to the Revolution. Nine family names account for almost a third of the councillors during this century, and fourteen other names for almost another third. Five councillors bore the name of Page, three each the name of Burwell, Bird, Carter, Custis, Harrison, Lee, Ludwell, and Wormley. A similar, though necessarily broader, social structure held for the distribution of the powerful appointive county offices headed by local county judges, who performed executive and legislative as well as judicial functions. It held also for the elective House of Burgesses, especially in the positions of power in that chamber. As Sidnor concludes, birth into one of the ruling families was almost essential to the making of a political career in 18th century Virginia. A man inherited local prominence from his father or uncle in much the same way that he inherited land and slaves and social position. It is difficult to recall the name of any Virginian of the revolutionary generation who rose to high office without the aid of influential relatives. In contrast to the other offices that were appointive, the powerful House of Burgesses was elected democratically by the citizens, but various not-too-subtle devices were employed to ensure oligarchic control of the results. For one thing, the voting, as was usual in that era, was by open oral declaration in front of the oligarchically selected sheriff 
and not by secret ballot. One common device was for the leading planters of the locality to be called upon first to declare their votes. The lesser folk of the county well understood their role. In addition, the sheriff, an appointee of the oligarchic county court, had complete power to set the dates and times of the poll and to open or close it at his whim. Furthermore, he had the power to decide which voter was properly qualified. As an extra lanyap for the large planters, everyone could vote in any county in which he held a sufficient amount of land. In addition to these devices, which wrapped the rule of oligarchy in a cloak of democratic procedure, there applied the general truths of the rule of oligarchy within the democratic form. Such truths as were analyzed by the great political theorist Gaetano Mosca, as Mosca wrote, In all societies, two classes of people appear, a class that rules and a class that is ruled. The first class always is the less numerous, performs all political functions, monopolizes power, and enjoys the advantages that power brings, whereas the second, the more numerous class, is directed and controlled by the first in a manner that is now more or less legal, now more or less arbitrary and violent, and supplies the first, in appearance at least, with material means of subsistence and with the instrumentalities that are essential to the vitality of the political organism. What happens in other forms of government, namely that an organized minority imposes its will on the disorganized majority, happens also and to perfection, but under the appearances of the contrary, under a representative system. When we say that the voters choose their representatives, we are using a language that is very inexact. The truth is that the representative has himself elected by the voters, and if that phrase should seem too inflexible and too harsh to fit some cases, we might qualify it by saying that his friends have him elected. The political mandate has been likened to the power of attorney that is familiar in private law. But in private relationships, delegations of power and capacities always presuppose that the principal has the broadest freedom in choosing his representative. Now, in practice, in popular elections, that freedom of choice, though complete theoretically, necessarily becomes null, not to say ludicrous. If each voter gave his vote to the candidate of his heart, we may be sure that in almost all cases the only result would be a wide scattering of votes. When very many wills are involved, choice is determined by the most various criteria, almost all of them subjective. And if such wills were not coordinated and organized, it would be virtually impossible for them to coincide in the spontaneous choice of one individual. If his vote were to have any efficacy at all, therefore, each voter is forced to limit his choice to a very narrow field. In other words, to a choice among the two or three persons who have some chance of succeeding. And the only ones who have any chance of succeeding are those whose candidacies are championed by groups 
by committees, by organized minorities. Volume 2, Chapter 17 Virginia Tobacco The tobacco planters of Virginia continued, in the 18th century, to get into periods of economic difficulty, and the secular trend was ominous. The price that planters had to pay for slaves rose with the increased demand for slaves on South Carolina rice and indigo plantations. Thus, the common price of slaves rose from 30 pounds per head in 1741 to 46 pounds in 1750 to 58 pounds in the 1770s. Soil exhaustion also lowered the productivity of the tobacco plantations. The tobacco planters continued to try to escape their dwindling fortunes on the market by seeking special privilege. A favorite device was a compulsory cartel imposed by the state to restrict tobacco production. Production quotas were then imposed on each plantation. But these restrictions did not have the desired effect of raising the price of a commodity that was grown on an international market. And curtailment in one area provided a lively inducement for other farmers to fill the gap by increasing their output. Moreover, the cartel schemes worked the greatest hardship on the small planter. Tobacco was the major monetary medium in Virginia and Maryland, and the small planter was forced to pay fixed sums in tobacco for governmental fees, taxes, and quit rents. Hence, forest restriction on the amount of tobacco grown was a great hardship on the small planter, whose fixed fees loomed larger in proportion to his total output. Thus, a Virginia-Maryland tobacco cartel scheme in the late 1720s fell through because the small farmers of Maryland would not comply unless Lord Baltimore reduced the quantity of tobacco levied for quit rents. When Lord Baltimore refused to agree, the scheme had to be abandoned. The Virginia planters also tried to escape their difficulties by exploiting the British merchant creditors, that is, by inducing the government to interfere in the process of collecting contracted debts. In 1708, Maryland passed a law decreeing that debtors might escape a debt by declaring bankruptcy, but the Crown disallowed the law on the cogent ground that the planters might easily defraud their creditors. Virginia, in 1749, allowed planters to pay debts in depreciated Virginia paper currency. All such laws were also disallowed by the Crown as invasion of the creditor's property. And in 1732, Parliament specified that the lands and slaves of the planters were liable for their debts. The tobacco merchants have had a bad historical press. The general assumption has been that the merchants purchasing tobacco exploited the tobacco planters, doing so both as creditors and as payers of supposedly excessively low prices. But middlemen no more exploit their customers or suppliers than does any other group on the free market. All prices, whether selling or purchasing, are set by supply and demand in the ultimate service of consumers. Neither is anyone forced to go into debt. On the market, the creditor supplies a valuable service for which he is paid by the debtor. 
There were essentially two methods by which planters sold their tobacco in the 18th century. The large coastal planters sold to London merchants on consignment, shipping the tobacco from their wharves for sale abroad. Serving as agents of the planters, the merchants were obviously in no position to do any exploiting. The small upland planters, on the other hand, not being in a position to finance or take risks for the longer period, sold their tobacco outright to Scottish merchants, who established stores in Virginia to buy the product and then resold it at Glasgow. The Scottish merchants did try to form agreements to lower the prices they had to pay for tobacco, but even if they had succeeded, this would not have been exploitation, for they would then have been forced to be content with smaller amounts of tobacco. The marginal tobacco farmers, hit by lower prices in relation to their cost, would have shifted to other lines of work. But such buyer-cartel agreements could not succeed in the face of free competition and the force of the market. Thus, in 1770, an Alexandria merchant complained that there are too many purchasers pushing one another, and three years later protested that he only bid up the price of tobacco to meet competition. I am sorry to observe that a few wrong-headed men have it in their power to affect the price. And newly established merchants, attracted by any temporary success in pushing down prices, had to bid up their buying prices in order to attract the business of suppliers. Thus, merchant factor James Robison reported gloomily in 1769 that the price of tobacco would be extravagantly high because of amounts offered by new merchants in Fredericksburg and Falmouth. Some months later, he reported with equal concern that he would have to abandon his refusal to buy tobacco for more than 25 shillings because of the competition of new stores. And when merchants at Dumfries, Virginia, tried to lower the buying prices in 1770, other merchants quickly increased their competing business in Foker County. Furthermore, if the planters felt that the merchants' bids were too low, they could always decide to ship on consignment to London, as they did in 1773. As Professor James H. Soltow concluded in his admirable article on the subject, From a business point of view, the tobacco buyer had not only a short-run interest in purchasing as much tobacco at as low a price as possible, but also a long-run interest in establishing and maintaining a market for his goods and services. Shrewd entrepreneurs engaged in a competitive business recognize that profits derived from efficient use of the capital invested in ships, stores, and goods. Robison, a merchant factor, summarized the policy of tobacco purchasers in this way, such is the course of our trade that we must endeavor to buy all the tobacco we can at the different stores at whatever is the market price, the company not being willing to lose any of their interest in this branch to any person whatever. Volume 2, Chapter 18, Slavery in Virginia As tobacco plantations expanded, the extent of Negro slavery increased as well. In 1710, there were 23,000 Negroes in Virginia, 
among 55,000 whites. In 1750, the colony contained 101,000 Negroes and 130,000 whites. And contrary to historical opinion, the Browns have shown that while the larger plantations were in the Tidewater area, the proportion of slaves was no greater in many Tidewater areas than in the Piedmont. In fact, the greatest proportion of slaves to total population appeared in the land between the James and Rappahannock rivers, both in the Tidewater and going back well into the Piedmont area. Similarly, the evidence indicates that the proportion of the value of slaves in the total assets of the planters was no greater for large than for small slaveholders. The condition of the slaves was what we might expect, where some people are owned by others as capital. Slaves were kept in compounds where they were condemned to miserable lives of severe labor, little food, long working hours, and savage treatment. Above all, they lived absolutely and continuously under the direction of their masters. Torture was systematically used even by the kindest of masters. For instance, Landon Carter, one of the most eminent planters of the colony, systematically whipped female slaves who were wasting their time tending their young children or daring to feign pregnancy. Stealing the master's property was a particularly heinous offense. When two slaves were caught killing a sheep, Carter ordered them tried and declared that one shall be hanged to terrify the rest. Legal marriages by slaves were forbidden, and unofficial slave families were often broken up. The prevalent practice of fornication by the masters with the female slaves was regarded as a pleasant method to secure slaves at a cheap rate. In law, the cards were stacked against the slaves. A slave received thirty lashes for daring to hit a white Christian, but any owner could kill a slave at will, in the process of punishment. Runaway slaves refusing to return could be killed, and if such a slave were killed or executed for any other crime, the government compensated the slave owner. Many runaways committed suicide rather than return to their owner. Along with slaves came the threat of slave rebellion. Indeed, one of the chief functions of the Virginia militia was to guard against such a menace. In calling for an increase in the militia, Governor Spotswood frankly declared, Freedom wears a cap which can, without a tongue, call together all those who long to shake off the fetters of slavery, and as such, an insurrection would surely be attended with most dreadful consequences. So I think we cannot be too early in providing against it, both by putting ourselves in a better posture of defense and by making a law to prevent the consultations of those Negroes. Furthermore, Virginia provided that when a runaway slave should be caught, he be taken from one constable to another along the way back to his master. Each constable was to whip the slave in his turn. Despite these precautions, in 1722, a massive slave plot covering several counties was brought to light. Three slaves... Cooper, Will, and two Sams were found guilty of conspiracy to revolt, 
and were sentenced to three years' imprisonment. The following spring, slaves in Middlesex and Gloucester counties were discovered to be plotting to gain their freedom. Seven of the leaders were sentenced to banishment. Governor Hugh Drysdale called upon the Assembly to intensify legal punishment of slave rebellion. You're too well acquainted with the cruel dispositions of these creatures when they have it in their power to destroy or distress, to let slip their fair opportunity of making more proper laws against them. The Virginia legislature was all too eager to comply and passed new laws forbidding all unlicensed meetings of slaves, as well as the death penalty without benefit of clergy for conspiracy. Furthermore, the crackdown touched even the few free Negroes. They were deprived of the vote, burdened with discriminatory tax rates, and forbidden to possess arms. Moreover, even voluntary manumission of slaves by masters was restricted by the legislature, and approval was required by the governor and the council. When twelve years later, the English Board of Trade wanted to know why free Negroes could no longer vote, Governor William Gooch, revealing the colony's great fear of Negro revolts, explained, There has been a conspiracy discovered amongst the Negroes, wherein the free Negroes and mulattoes were much suspected to have been concerned, which will forever be the case, and though there could be no legal proof so as to correct them, yet such was the insolence of the free Negroes that the assembly deprived them of the vote, well knowing they always did and ever will adhere to and favor the slaves, and to preserve a decent distinction between them and their betters. Despite all the restrictions, in the year 1729, a number of Virginia slaves rebelled, procured arms, ammunition, and agricultural equipment, and escaped west to settle in the Blue Ridge Mountains. There the former slaves harmed no one. But the force of their example could have been a standing reproach and a beacon light to the colony of Virginia and even to the entire system of slavery. Hence, Virginia mobilized a strong troop of whites to march against the Negro settlement to destroy it, which they did after a pitched battle. The Negroes left alive were taken back to bondage. Governor Gooch reacted by strengthening and training the militia to prevent similar episodes in the future. Yet only one year later, in 1730, slave conspiracies were again revealed and suppressed in Virginia. An absurdly optimistic rumor spread among the slaves that the crown had authorized the freeing of all baptized slaves. The spread of the rumor led to numerous meetings of slaves and loose discourses among them about individual liberty. Virginia promptly arrested and severely whipped the leaders of the discourses. A few weeks later, 200 Negro slaves of Norfolk and Princess Anne counties gathered and chose officers for their imminent rebellion. But the plot was uncovered and four of the slave leaders were executed. Governor Gooch smugly conveyed to the crown his hope that the slaves would now rest contented with their condition. During the early years of the French and Indian War, when defeats were being inflicted on the English west of Virginia, the slaves took the opportunity to become rebellious. 
Governor Robert Dinwiddie, 1751-58, through 58, remarked on the notorious villainy of the Negroes in any emergency of government. He ordered trial for any Negroes guilty of seditious talk and placed a number of soldiers in each county to suppress any Negro revolt. In late 1767, Negro slaves near Alexandria revolted by poisoning and killing several of their overseers. In consequence, eight of the Negroes were brutally executed and their heads exhibited in the public square. A mob of Negroes also rioted in Frederick County in the same year. Altogether, slave revolts occurred in Virginia in the following years, 1722, 1723, 1729, 1730, 1755, and 1767. Volume 2, Chapter 19, Indian War in North Carolina No sooner had the North Carolina proprietaries suppressed rebellion in 1711 than the colony became embroiled in a crucial Indian conflict. The Indians in North Carolina had been growing increasingly restive. Not only was white expansion driving them from their proclaimed lands and hunting grounds, but a perhaps more embittering grievance was the common practice of kidnapping Indians into slavery. In fact, so notorious was this practice that Pennsylvania, in 1705, prohibited further importation of Indian slaves from Carolina since it had been observed to give the Indians of this province some umbrage for suspicion and dissatisfaction. Most dangerous of the Indian tribes was the powerful Tuscarora in central North Carolina, one of the feared and disliked Iroquois nations. In the fall of 1711, the Tuscaroras, taking advantage of the turmoil of the late Thomas Carey Rebellion, launched a general attack on the white settlements. The attack was particularly effective on the new and scattered southern settlements. But the main center at Albemarle escaped devastation because Tom Blunt, the Tuscarora chief in the vicinity, refused to join the war. Governor Edward Hyde induced the assembly to pass a law authorizing conscription of all males between 16 and 60 and called on the neighboring colonies for aid. The Virginia assembly refused to vote the funds or permit Governor Spotswood to send troops. South Carolina sent a strong military force under Colonel John Barnwell. Barnwell's troop again demonstrated the propensity of the Indians for mutual destruction, redounding to the benefit of the whites, for it consisted largely of Creek, Yamasee, and Sioux Indians. As was true of all other Iroquois, the aggressive Tuscaroras had incurred the enmity of the other tribes of the region. Barnwell decisively defeated the Tuscaroras, captured one of their forts, and slaughtered the male inhabitants. The Indian allies got all the plunder and the female slaves. Barnwell wistfully regretted that only one girl we got. Finally, the Tuscaroras sued for peace, and a peace treaty was signed the beaten Indians agreeing to leave all the southern North Carolina land between Cape Fear and the New River. Colonel Barnwell had expected to be handsomely rewarded by a grateful North Carolina for his supposed patriotism. He found instead that the ingrates 
cozily far from the battle, were carping because he had not annihilated the enemy. The embittered Barnwell then decided to get willy-nilly what he had come for, luring a large number of Indians to a spot near New Bern under pretense of a parley, Barnwell and his men fell on them in a surprise attack, seized them, and carried them off to South Carolina to sell the hapless Indians into slavery. The Tuscaroras were understandably bitter at this treachery, and in the summer of 1712 resumed their war against a white foe who they were now convinced could not be trusted in any respect. Once again, however, Tom Blunt agreed to remain neutral and indeed to come partially to the aid of the whites. South Carolina again sent an armed troop, almost exclusively Indian as before, under Colonel James Moore. Moore crushed the Tuscaroras in March 1713, ending the war. The defeated remnants made their way north to New York to join their Iroquois brethren. Volume 2, Chapter 20, The North Carolina Proprietary after the Tuscarora War, North Carolina politics settled down into the familiar colonial pattern of a proprietary party, centered in the appointive governor and the council, stressing the prerogative of the executive, and confronting a popular and liberal force concentrated in the assembly. Racked so recently by rebellion and war, North Carolina did not join South Carolina in the latter's successful revolt against the proprietary in 1719. The popular party resisted such instances of executive tyranny as imposing conscription to fight against the Indians without assembly approval. The most severe quarrel of the people with the proprietary occurred over that veteran irritant the quit-rent. The proprietary naturally wanted to be paid the quit-rent in sterling. In this era, however, North Carolina's underdeveloped economy used 19 marketable commodities as media of exchange, or money, including beef, pork, butter, cheese, pitch, feathers, wheat, leather, and hides, skins, and corn, as well as the more usual tobacco. In 1715, the Assembly passed a law for payment of the quit-rent in any of these commodities at a fixed scale of relative prices, with the quality of the commodities established by two theoretically disinterested freeholders. The natural result was payment of the hated quit-rents in whatever happened to be the least valuable commodity at the fixed scale, and of the poorest possible quality. The proprietors, having had the usual difficulty in collecting quit-rents, had decided at the turn of the century to appoint a network of agents to collect the payments. The agents were empowered to seize and sell the lands of those who failed to pay. In 1715, however, the assembly deprived the agents of the power to place a value on the seized goods, the value being put into the books of the original owner and the purchaser. This act helped block effective collection of the rents. All in all, since salaries of the chief officials were paid from the quit rents, the proprietors obtained little or no net profit from their colony. The end of the Tuscarora War left the coastal area south of Albemarle free of Indians, and whites began to expand into this region. 
The proprietors restricted this growth, however, by closing their land office in the area and insisting on the sale of land at prices so high as effectively to discourage settlement. To make matters worse, payment for the land had to be made to the proprietors in London. To escape this restriction, the governor and the council began to grant huge tracts of land to their favorites at rates as low as three pence per 100 acres in exchange for monetary payment. As so often happens in history, government officials having monopoly privileges at their disposal proceeded to sell them at the best bargains they could obtain. The biggest culprit among the governors was Sir Richard Everard, who signed away 400,000 acres of such so-called blank patent in 1728 alone. During the 1720s, the proprietors more and more lost control over the affairs of the colony and over its land policy. In order to encourage immigration into the colony, the assembly, the governor and council approving, broke through the proprietary restrictions on land. Ignoring the proprietary order, the new law permitted settlers to enter the southern region on paying a tentative quit-rent of three shillings per 100 acres and guaranteed confirmation of their land titles. The popular new governor, George Burrington, friend of the Liberal Party, had agreed to this measure, but was removed by the proprietors shortly thereafter. He was removed at the instigation of Christopher Gale, chief justice and collector of the royal customs, who loosely charged Burrington with plotting revolution against the proprietary. Burrington had, in fact, threatened to commit mayhem on Gale, had broken up sessions of Gale's court, and had also prevented the royal customs officers from enforcing their exactions. But the proprietors had good cause to regret Burrington's successor, Richard Everard. Everard set up a tyranny so petty and so venal that even the Gale faction in the council were forced to split with him. Abusing council and assembly alike, Everard exacted exorbitant and illegal fees and used the law courts as instruments to settle family quarrels and punish his enemies. The government of North Carolina was reduced to a violent three-way split. Thus, in 1725, the governor and the council tried to dissolve the assembly, which, however, denied such power and complained to the proprietors of the persecutions of the Gale clique. The faction seeking dissolution of the assembly was headed by Gale, now Chief Justice and Judge of the Admiralty Court, and his son-in-law, William Little, the Attorney General. At this point, Burrington, now a leader in the assembly, denounced Everard and assaulted a constable. Riots by the various factions ensued at the capital, Edenton. Finally, in 1729, the proprietors, disgruntled with the turbulent colony and finding quit-rents almost 10,000 pounds in hopeless arrears, were happy to sell all their rights over both North Carolina and South Carolina to the Crown for merely 23,000 pounds. North Carolina was now a royal colony. The only holdout was John Carteret, who refused to sell his one-eighth right. Fifteen years later, 
The Crown granted Lord Carteret, now the Earl of Granville, in exchange for his one-eighth proprietorship, the exclusive ownership of a huge land grant in northern North Carolina, covering over one-half of the whole area of the province and containing two-thirds of its population. Carteret was not only arbitrarily granted ownership over all the unsettled land in the area, he was also given the right to extract quit-rents from the property owners already settled there. Carteret's agents proceeded to charge excessive fees, which they insisted be paid in specie, to collect illegal quit-rents and to issue fraudulent deeds. This added to the already considerable turmoil over land and quit-rents in the province. Finally, in 1758, an armed crowd of Lord Carteret's subject tenants forced Francis Corbin, one of his leading agents, to give bond that he would surrender all the excessive fees that he had collected. But Corbin, on his release, not only failed to comply with the agreement, but arrested four of his adversaries. The infuriated settlers rode to the Enfield jail and freed the prisoners. Insurrection then spread throughout the Granville district. Francis Corbin was forced to flee the region. The assembly urged prosecution of the rioters, but Governor Arthur Dobbs denounced the fraudulent exactions of the Earl of Granville's agents and expressed his sympathy with the people. The rioters therefore remained at liberty, and Granville District was virtually rid of its proprietary incubus. Furthermore, after Granville's death in 1763, his son neglected the proprietary and, in a few years, closed the land office, with the result that newcomers were able to settle and to refuse to pay either taxes or quit-rents on their land. It took a year and a half, from mid-1729 to early 1731, for the crown to send out its first royal governor, and in that period, all government virtually dissolved in North Carolina. No one paid any attention to Everard's proprietary appointment. The general court, as well as many precinct courts, simply ceased to meet. The council was suspended, and the assembly had virtually no meetings. Laws were not enforced. Taxes, quit-rents, and other public revenues went uncollected. In the midst of this virtual state of anarchism, Edmund Porter, judge of the Royal Admiralty Court, tried to aggrandize himself over the populace, causing great discontent in the colony, while Everett made arbitrary arrest and tried to extract exorbitant fees. Volume 2, Chapter 21 Royal Government in North Carolina As a royal colony, North Carolina government did not change greatly, but much of the confusion and many of the land restrictions imposed by the proprietary disappeared. Immigration now greatly increased and settlement expanded in the south and middle of the coastal areas. These new settlers included groups of Highland Scots in the Cape Fear area, who started emigrating from Scotland in force after the Jacobite Rebellion was crushed in 1745. Royal Governor of North Carolina for nearly two decades, 1734 through 52, Gabriel Johnston soon found himself in two basic quarrels with the Assembly. One quarrel over the perennial land question began at the opening of his administration. 
In the course of imposing land reform against the blank patents, Johnston decided to employ the quit-rent weapon. As a corollary, he demanded that all quit-rents be paid in sterling or in paper money, of which the value would be fixed by governor and council. He also demanded payment of the backlog of arrears. This policy managed to alienate all the landowners in the colony, large and small, and the assembly refused to agree to the change. The aroused settlers of Bertie and Edgecombe districts protested to the governor that their poor estates had been honestly purchased and settled with difficulty, and that they had believed the lands were their own with the exception of a small quit-rent. But now Johnston proposed to increase the quit-rents and speedily collect the arrears. If he persisted, the settlers would go elsewhere, where they could own the fruits of their own labor. Indeed, in 1737, some 500 people from Bertie and Edgecombe rose up in arms to free a settler who they mistakenly thought had been harassed for failing to pay quit-rents. The assembly tried to arrest Johnston's officials for seizing lands and property for payment of quit-rents, whereupon Johnston dissolved the assembly. Finally, the Crown, in 1741, decided largely in favor of the landowners, upholding the principle of the blank patents and previous usage regarding paying quit-rents in depreciated commodities. And so, Governor Johnston finally met complete defeat in his attempt to burden the province with heavy quit-rents. Whereas in the first few years of his rule, he had collected over 4,000 pounds of back quit-rents, payments were increasingly in arrears, and little was collected thereafter. As a result, the salaries of the government officials paid from quit-rents went also in arrears. In 1746, Johnston complained that his salary was eight years overdue. At the governor's death in 1752, arrears of his salary totaled over 13,000 pounds. The other important dispute of the Johnston administration stemmed from an inherent flaw of democracy, unequal representation as the distribution of population changes. In 1715, Representation in the North Carolina Assembly was established at four for each county in Albemarle and two for each of the other counties. At that time, this allocation reflected the distribution of population in the province. But as time went on, the population expanded in the southern part of the colony and the fixed quota became more and more inequitable. Johnston tried to rectify this condition, but, at the same time, moved against democratic aspects of the 1715 structure, which gave the vote to all freemen of the colony, and which provided for the election of a new assembly every two years. In 1735, Johnston, under royal instruction, induced the assembly to impose a freehold property requirement for voting. In addition, the Crown in 1737 disallowed the Biennial Act, leaving the governor free to call or to dissolve the Assembly at will. As part of his campaign against the Assembly and its overweighting of Albemarle representatives, Johnston moved the seat of government. 
haphazard as it was since public records were kept in private houses, from Edenton in the north to New Bern in the south. The geographical struggle culminated in 1746 when Johnston called an assembly to meet in the extreme south at Wilmington on the Cape Fear River. The Albemarle representatives, a majority of the assembly, boycotted the meeting, robbing it of a quorum according to the old Act of 1715. But the Rump Assembly equalized the representation to two members per county and established the capital at New Bern. This trick threw down a direct challenge to Albemarle, which responded by refusing to send representatives or to recognize any act of the New Bern government. Moreover, the people of Albemarle refused to pay taxes, refused to accept the new central government's money, and refused to serve as jurors or recognize the decisions of the general court. Anyone in prison was set free by the public. The approach to anarchism was not quite complete, however, since the local county courts continued to function. In the meanwhile, the burden of supporting the government was declared too heavy for the South, and taxes ceased to be paid throughout the province of North Carolina. In this way, an approach to anarchism came again to North Carolina, and especially to ever-individualistic Albemarle. Government only fully returned in 1754, when the Crown finally decided in favor of the northern counties and the old form of representation. The 1740s and 1750s also saw the Ulster-Scott influx into and settlement of the western Piedmont area of North Carolina, many of the Scots settling on the Granville claim. Generally, the Scots were settler farmers rather than slave-owning plantation holders. Volume 2, Chapter 22, Slavery in South Carolina South Carolina distinguished itself in the 18th century for being the first southern colony to develop a great agricultural staple other than tobacco. First grown in South Carolina in 1694, rice very rapidly became the staple of the colony, with the port of Charleston the center of the rice trade. So successful was the expansion of rice grown on large plantations in the coastal swamps that Britain added it to the enumerated list of commodities as early as the Navigation Act of 1704. By 1722, South Carolina was exporting 9 million pounds of rice per year, and by 1750, the total had increased to 27 million. By mid-century, South Carolina had begun to grow another staple crop, which rose swiftly to second rank beneath rice. This was indigo dye, introduced successfully into the colony in 1744 by Eliza Lucas, who later married Chief Justice Charles Pinckney. Also grown on lowland swamps, indigo proved a natural seasonal complement to rice, and large plantations intensively staffed with Negro slaves proved to be ideal for combining the two products. By the mid-1750s, Indigo production in the colony was in high gear, and 500,000 pounds were being exported annually. 
The rice and indigo plantations differed significantly from the tobacco plantations of Virginia and the Chesapeake Bay area. The former were smaller, more concentrated, and more intensively cultivated. That is, they required considerably more slaves per acre. Hence, the proportion of Negro slaves to whites became considerably higher in South Carolina. In 1750, the southern colonies had the following ratio of Negroes to whites in thousands: Maryland, Negroes 49, whites 115, Virginia, Negroes 141, whites 199, North Carolina, Negroes 34. Whites seventy six, South Carolina thirty nine, twenty five. As we can see, the tobacco colonies had considerably fewer Negroes than whites, whereas Negro slaves outnumbered whites in South Carolina by a good margin. South Carolina cultivation taking place in swampland was also much unhealthier than the tobacco growing of the Upper South. The plantation owners, more fortunate than their slaves, could escape the malarial climate and did so, choosing to live in mansions in Charleston rather than on their estates. This contrasted to the decentralized plantation life of the great Virginia landlords. Another and more important reason for the intensive growth of Charleston was the shallowness of the rivers. Which prevented ships from going directly to the plantation wharves, as in the Upper South. Hence, a central port became economically necessary. Rice and indigo cultivation became economic only through the large-scale use of slaves, but indigo needed an additional subsidy to become profitable. Great Britain, in 1748, granted a bounty of six pence for each pound of indigo exported to England. There were slave plots and insurrections in many American colonies, but the especial brutality toward and the high concentration of slaves made South Carolina the focal point for slave rebellion. As early as 1702, the South Carolina Assembly reprimanded the constables of Charleston for negligence in controlling the slaves, reprimanded a William Harvey of the city for allowing cabals of Negroes at his house. And listen to the saga of a Negro slave who had threatened his master with a general slave revolt in the colony. In the spring of 1711, the South Carolinians were terrified by an uprising of several armed Negroes, led by a slave named Sebastian. They plundered the plantations of their oppressors. Presumably, the fear came not from the few marauders, but from the apprehension that they might light. The spark of a general slave revolution in the colony. Governor Robert Gibbs lamented to the assembly, "How insolent and mischievous the Negroes are become," and recommended some exemplary form of punishment as well as a possible improvement in the slaves' subsistence standard. In 1713, a slave plot in the Goose Creek section was betrayed and stamped out. The assembly rewarding the Negro informer with a gift of five pounds sterling. A plan for a massive slave revolt, goaded by an economic depression, 
was uncovered in 1720, and a considerable number of Negroes were arrested, burned, hanged, or banished. A report to the king the following year declared in horror that the black slaves have lately attempted and were very near succeeding in a new revolution, which would probably have been attended by the utter extirpation of all your majesty's subjects in this province. In 1729, a severe epidemic of influenza decimated the ranks of the South Carolina Negroes. Perhaps goaded by this extra burden, the slaves planned another massive revolt the following year. But the Negroes differed over tactics, some urging each group of slaves to destroy its own master, others urging a united uprising against all the masters. In the meanwhile, the plans were uncovered and the leader placed in irons. Slave troubles continued during the early 1730s in South Carolina. Large-scale meetings of groups of slaves were reported in 1733, and a wave of robberies and insolence spread in the colony. A slave rebellion was feared, and a dozen slaves were arrested on suspicion in Charleston. The same year, several runaway slaves committed robberies, and the governor offered the very large reward of 20 pounds a head for each slave captured. In 1731 and 1732, some runaway slaves were shot and several other Negroes killed or executed. Furthermore, the colony fretted over the flight of some slaves to freedom in the Spanish town of St. Augustine in Florida. Indeed, the War of England under Spain led the embittered Spaniards to offer freedom to the slaves of the English. The official policy of welcome to Negro refugees began in the fall of 1733, when the Spanish crown announced that all fugitive slaves reaching Florida would be permitted to remain there as free men. In 1738, a group of liberated Negroes was established in a town north of St. Augustine, and the policy of welcome to fugitives was again proclaimed. The attractiveness of St. Augustine, coupled with a severe famine in 1737, led the Negroes to a series of uprisings. In the latter year, three slaves were arrested for conspiracy against the peace of this government. Complaints mounted by flight of slaves, individuals, and groups to the haven of St. Augustine, Indeed, a virtual state of guerrilla warfare erupted, with much assassination of masters and uncovering of slave conspiracies. In late 1738, a group of South Carolina slaves rebelled and fought their way through English America to reach freedom in Florida. In early 1739, a great slave plot was uncovered for massive armed uprising in flight to Florida. But slave flights continued, and one group was joined by two whites. In April, the South Carolina legislature passed a bill for more effective suppression of slave revolts, but this did not stop a revolt by about 20 slaves, led by one Jimmy at Stono, 20 miles southwest of Charleston, on September 9. The rebels raided an arsenal, killing two guards, appropriated considerable arms and ammunition, and made their way south. The embittered slaves burned several buildings and killed all whites in their path, except an innkeeper named Wallace, 
who was known to be a good man and kind to his slaves. The Jimmy Rebellion ignited a spark among the slaves. Joined by fifty or sixty more, the band cried out, Liberty! and marched around with drums beating and flags flying. A troop of militia confronted the Negroes. Though the forces were equal in number, the whites were better trained and better armed and routed the slaves. The captured Negroes were immediately shot or hanged by the infuriated whites, and the others were hunted down for months. Twenty of the slaves were beaten in another lengthy skirmish, but ten Negroes managed to escape to freedom. Negro and Indian slaves who informed on the refugees were rewarded very handsomely by the government. In mid-1740, another major slave plot, this time centering in Charleston, was betrayed in advance by a slave named Peter, so that an uprising of nearly 200 virtually unarmed slaves was confronted by an armed troop. The result could only be a rout. Fifty of the recaptured Negroes were hanged in batches of ten a day to intimidate the other Negroes. The betrayer, Peter, was rewarded with clothing and cash. During 1740 and 1741, many fires broke out in Charleston, some of which, at least, were examples of Negro protest. A Charleston grand jury in March 1740 denounced the activities of such white friends of Negro freedom as Hugh Bryan, who wrote a monograph warning the government of the destruction of Charleston and deliverance of the Negroes from their servitude. Bryan's book was forcibly suppressed by the government. Joining Hugh Bryan in a call for Negro liberation were Jonathan Bryan, William Gilbert, and Robert Ogle. Reacting to the threat of fire to its privileged position, the Charleston government executed a woman for committing arson, even burned a man to death in August 1741 for setting fire to a house, supposedly with the evil intent of burning down the remaining part of the town, and convicted two slaves of setting fire to Charleston's arsenal. In addition to brutal repression, South Carolina tried to alleviate the pressure of slave rebellion in other ways. Laws were passed requiring better food and clothing for slaves and magnanimously limiting slave working hours to 15 a day. Also, the frightened South Carolinians placed a high tariff on importing slaves and used the revenue to subsidize the immigration of white Protestants in order to redress the growing preponderance of Negroes in the colony. The importation of slaves stopped completely from 1740 to 1744 and opened again only when the slave traders of Bristol, England, vehemently complained. But South Carolina partially conceded in its efforts, and colonial South Carolina never had quite so heavy a preponderance of Negroes after 1740. In that year, Negroes in South Carolina totaled some 30,000 and whites approximately 15,000. While the figures for 1750 are about 39,000 Negroes and 25,000 whites. South Carolina did not scruple to enlist Indians to crush the Negro slaves. In 1744, the government asked some Indians to apprehend 
armed runaway slaves who had formed a base in the woods. Another slave plot was brewing in 1748. It was again uncovered before ripening. In 1751, South Carolina found it necessary to provide the death penalty for slaves even attempting to poison white people, an act which had lately been occurring frequently. A four-pound reward was offered to any Negro informer whose tale led to conviction. In 1759, another major revolt occurred in South Carolina, and in 1761, Negroes returned to systematic poisoning of their white masters. A Negro rebellion broke out in 1765, but was suppressed by the militia. Another anticipated revolt at the end of that year was thwarted by massive precautionary measures, including militia patrols, the importation of a number of Indians to terrorize the Negro slaves, and putting upcountry settlers, as well as North Carolinians, on the alert. A hundred slaves did manage to escape, however, to the swamps of Colleton County. Volume 2, Chapter 23 Proprietary Rule in South Carolina. In 1713, the Yamasees and other South Carolina Indians had helped North Carolina annihilate the Tuscaroras. Yet only two years later, the Yamasee and Creek Indians launched a general attack on the South Carolina settlements. What had turned erstwhile faithful allies into enemies? Partly it was the old story of settler encroachment on Indian land, but even more important in the case of the Yamasee War were the abuses against the Indians by the white traders. The traders systematically engaged in theft, fraud, and illegal enslavement of free Indians. They expropriated the Indians' farm animals and crops and often paid much of the account in violence rather than acceptable commodities. Often they held an entire Indian town collectively liable for a private Indian's debt. These accumulating grievances prompted the Yamasees, Creeks, and their allies to launch an attack on the white settlements in South Carolina. Contemporary opinion, quick to scent alleged foreign conspiracy, accused the Spaniards at St. Augustine and the French on the Mississippi of inciting the Indians to attack. But these powers played only the secondary role of selling ammunition to or purchasing plunder from the Indians. The Indian grievances were real, and so was their opposition to the regime. The Yamasee War was launched in the spring of 1715 and might have succeeded in driving the English into the sea. Governor Charles Craven used the occasion to become virtual dictator of the colony, prohibiting emigration, conscripting ships and supplies, drafting Negro slaves into the army along with their masters, and mobilizing the militia. But the Indians would have been successful had not the whites induced the powerful Cherokees to remain aloof and indeed to aid the English. The Yamasees were ejected from the colony and thrust into Florida by 1716, and the following year a peace was concluded with the Creeks. The result of the war was to clear the bulk of the Indians from the South Carolina settlements and the land to the south. The end of the Yamasee War cleared a great deal of land from the Indians and opened it up for white settlement. The South Carolina Proprietary 
promptly removed its prohibition against settlement in the south between the Combahee and Savannah rivers, which had been preserved for the Yamasees. Furthermore, provincial elections had, until now, always been held exclusively in Charleston, which served to concentrate power in the hands of an oligarchy allied to the proprietary party. The assembly now provided for elections in each parish, distributed representation proportionately to population in the parishes, and allowed voting by ballot. These provisions brought South Carolina into greater uniformity with other American colonies. Furthermore, the assembly hit at the proprietary by excluding from the legislature all men holding office or patronage from the proprietors. The proprietary was becoming increasingly disliked in South Carolina, and this temper was aggravated by the rule over the colony by a small clique headed by two men apart from the governor, Nicholas Trott, chief justice of the province, and his brother-in-law, William Rett, receiver general of the proprietary revenue and collector of the royal customs. Trott, a high Tory who had been enthusiastic over the reactionary policies of Queen Anne, was perhaps the last American judge to impose a belief in witchcraft in a charge to the jury. Trott was given extraordinary powers by the proprietors in 1714, so that without his presence, the Council of South Carolina could not have a quorum. Trott was also made judge of the admiralty and head of the chancery courts, thus virtually monopolizing the administration of justice in South Carolina. Through collusion with Richard Shelton, secretary to the board of proprietors, Trott was virtually able to dictate to the entire province, except for the assembly. William Rett was not only receiver general, but also military commander and sometimes speaker of the assembly. The colony was soon struck a grim blow when Trott and Rett were able to induce the Crown to disallow the electoral reforms of 1716 and to return to the practice of exclusive elections at Charleston. Thirty-one articles of complaint against Trott's tyranny were now submitted to the Assembly, charging him with monopolizing justice, acting as counsel and judge in the same case, and extracting exorbitant fees. When the proprietors disallowed the electoral reform, the assembly denied their right of veto, inasmuch as even the proprietary governor and council had approved the reforms of 1716. Trot stood fast, however, in defense of the veto by the proprietors. The Carolina proprietors reacted by backing Trot all the way, reprimanding their disobedient governor, and promptly appointing a new council packed with their supporters, with the opposition leaders summarily removed. Moreover, the proprietors ordered that no more private land be granted in the colony. Instead, fifteen large baronies were to be laid out near Port Royal in the south for the exclusive use of the proprietors, thus ousting several hundred Ulster-Scott immigrants who had just settled on these lands recently evacuated by the Yamases. Great Britain had now launched a war against Spain, and the colony began to go into the usual American conniptions in fear of a foreign attack, this time supposedly directed from Havana. 
In consequence, Governor Robert Johnson mobilized the militia, and the popular forces in South Carolina seized the opportunity of being under arms to conduct a revolution against the now-hated proprietary. The militia members, led by Alexander Skeen, one of the counselors ousted by the proprietary, drew up and virtually unanimously signed Articles of Association. These articles, signed November 28, 1719, declared the resolve of the members to overthrow the proprietary completely and to declare South Carolina a royal province. The revolutionary leaders then took their case to the populace and signed up nearly every free man in South Carolina. In December, the Assembly declared the Council illegal and resolved to ignore it. It also declared the reforms of 1716 still valid and the proprietors forfeit of their rule. The Assembly proceeded to form itself into a revolutionary association, naming Colonel James Moore as governor and appointing a new council. The convention then voted itself as a new assembly, replaced Trott as Chief Justice, and drew up a statement of its case to put before the Crown. This declaration included a melodramatic wording of the proprietary neglect of the defense of the province against foreign and Indian enemies, an argument that would certainly appeal to the Crown. William Rhett, incidentally, showed no compunction at betraying his brother-in-law and conveniently joined the revolutionary cause. Robert Johnson tried to reassert his claim to the governorship by threatening to have Charleston bombarded by friendly warships, but the people refused to bow, and Johnson never carried out his threat. For once, the royal bureaucracy, never enthusiastic for proprietary colonies, approved of a popular revolution against constituted government. From that point on, South Carolina was accepted as a royal province, with a royally appointed governor and council. The Crown was intelligent enough to oust Trott, to replace him with a leader of the opposition, and to return the popular opposition leaders to the council. Finally, in 1729, all the rights of the Carolina proprietors were bought out by the Crown. This not only made South Carolina a royal colony, but also meant that the proprietors had lost all their power to annoy and harass the people of South Carolina. Volume 2, Chapter 24, The Land Question in South Carolina The leading conflict within the new royal colony centered on the land question. Since the proprietors had closed their land office, no grants of land had been made by the Crown. But during the interim period of the 1720s, vague claims were revived to large tracts of coastal land granted in the early days of the proprietary. These land patents were revived because the Crown insisted on raising the quit rent from one shilling to four shillings per 100 acres. But since proprietary grants reserved only one shilling per 100 acres for quit rents, This royal decision spurred many recipients of large land baronies, from 12,000 to 40,000 acres in size, to revive their old claims. By the end of the 1720s, almost 800,000 acres of valuable coastal land 
were appropriated under these old speculative claims. In 1731, the Assembly passed a law giving a blanket validation to all the huge land grants under the proprietary. Robert Johnson, the royal governor, defended the law as absolutely necessary for the peace and tranquility of the province. But James St. John, surveyor general and comptroller of the quit rents, and Benjamin Whitaker, the attorney general, pointed out that a 24,000-acre land grant inherited by Johnson himself was at stake in the outcome. St. John also denounced the grantees for engrossing all the best lands and thus keeping legitimate settlers from migrating to the colony. He advocated throwing open the vast land tracts to legitimate settlers. But although the Board of Trade recommended disavowal of the Act, the Privy Council did not do so, and the mass validation of the land engrossments thus remained in force. In the struggle that ensued between Governor Johnson and the land monopolist on the one hand and St. John and Whitaker on the other, the land engrossers controlled the council and the assembly in South Carolina. The governor denounced the two critics and the council urged the dismissal of St. John. The gravest blow against land reform was struck by the government in the case of Thomas Cooper. Cooper an assistant judge, was arrested by the landed oligarchy for challenging the validity of their speculative land titles. Instead of arguing the case in court, the great landlords prevailed on the assembly in 1733 to imprison Cooper and two of his assistants for five weeks. Cooper sued for several writs of habeas corpus, but the despotic assembly refused to obey. The unfortunate Cooper sent petitions for his release from arbitrary arrest to the governor. Not only were the petitions ignored, but the two merchants who caused the petitions to be sent to Governor Johnson were summarily arrested for their pains. Johnson agreed to release them only after they were forced to pay heavy fines and to beg the governor's pardon. The same brutal treatment was meted out to several other merchants and lawyers carrying Cooper's petitions to members of the assembly. Chief Justice Robert Wright now moved courageously to reassert the claims of legal rights over arbitrary despotism. He particularly denounced the executive and the assembly's suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, one of the chief guarantees of English liberty. The Assembly and Council then passed a bill in 1733 declaring that no public officers be subject to penalty for ignoring habeas corpus writs for people imprisoned by order of the legislature. Chief Justice Wright, as a counselor, vainly opposed the act as infringing necessary protection against arbitrary violence by the government. The question of the hour was whether or not the crown would disallow the tyrannical law. Happily, the Board of Trade recommended rejection, and the crown promptly disallowed the act. The infuriated assembly cut off Wright's salary, and the crown had to place the salary under the royal quit-rent fund, thus putting it out of control by the assembly. The vengeful assembly proceeded to another arbitrary arrest of James St. John himself. 
charging him with insolent remarks made in private against the assembly. The assembly summarily imprisoned him for three months. He was finally released, but only on orders of the Board of Trade, and even then, only after the assembly had been administered a public reprimand. Thomas Cooper was, in turn, dismissed from his judgeship by Governor Johnson. Moreover, when Cooper and St. John were elected to the assembly, the controlling oligarchs refused to seat them. The upshot of the controversy, which continued for years afterward, was, in a sense, a stalemate. The suspension of the habeas corpus was disallowed, but the original large grants to land speculators were allowed to stand. The tightness of oligarchic control over the South Carolina government in this era may be seen in the fact that every one of the colony's governors from 1725 to 1756 was a member of a clique of six wealthy, heavily intermarried landed families. These were the planter families of Blake, Bull, Drayton, Fenwick, Izard, and Middleton. Governor Johnson was related by marriage to the Blakes. Furthermore, of the 37 councillors of South Carolina during this period, no less than 17 were members of this clan. The second big power group in the colony were leading Charleston merchants, generally natives of England with English business connections and influential at the Board of Trade. This group supplied eight councillors, and the very wealthy Henry Lawrence was also a member of the group. By the 1750s, the council had accumulated a great deal of independent power in South Carolina, but after 1756, its power and prestige rapidly dwindled as the governor and the crown dismissed recalcitrants and began to appoint largely royal bureaucrats completely dependent on the crown. The assembly then became the center of power and leadership among the colonists and hence of resistance to exactions of the crown. Volume 2, Chapter 25 Georgia, the Humanitarian Colony The South Carolinians, in agitating for a shift from proprietary rule, found it advantageous to scare the crown about alleged French and Spanish pressures. This propaganda, as well as the Yamasee War, focused the attention of Great Britain on South Carolina and its borderland to the south. The Spanish had settled North Florida and what is now the Georgia coast in the mid-1560s, with their center at the great port of St. Augustine. Settlement had extended as far north as Santa Elena, now Port Royal, South Carolina, where the Spanish destroyed a recently settled French Huguenot colony. The Spaniards, who concentrated on missionary activities among the Indians, particularly by the Franciscan order, named the Georgia coast the Guale Mission Province and established missions and posts on the coast. Attacks by Gualay Indians forced abandonment of the mission post at the turn of the 17th century, but the defeat of the Indians opened the way for renewed and expanded mission posts during the century. Attacks by the West Toe Indians in the mid-1650s forced the Spaniards to retreat to below the Savannah River, 
thus paving the way for the English settlements in South Carolina. Hardly had settlement begun in the 1670s when the South Carolinians fomented trouble among the Indians. They soon became notorious in the colonies for their zeal in enslaving Indians, while the cattle of white settlers often destroyed Indian crops. Moreover, the colonists were eager for war against the Indians in order to gain a considerable supply of slaves who commanded a ready market in West Indies plantations. The practice had begun as early as 1671 when the English colonists used a vague charge of conspiracy with the Spaniards as an excuse to make war upon the Cuso Indians and turn them into slaves. Eager to repeat this success, South Carolina launched a war upon the Westo Indians in 1680, thereby going against the proprietary policy of peaceful trade and friendship with the Westos. The proprietors, however, maintained a monopoly of the Westo trade, so that this furnished an incentive for the disgruntled colonist to make war upon the Westos rather than remain in peace. A bloody struggle ensued. After three years, South Carolina, with the help of the Savannah tribe, annihilated the Westo Indians. The Savannahs settled near the Savannah River, replacing the slaughtered Westos. There they and South Carolina made a mutually profitable deal. The whites supplied the Savannahs with arms, and the Savannahs in turn made war upon and enslaved neighboring Indians. The Spaniards had made one fatal mistake in occupying Gualet. They sent missionaries to their Indian allies instead of arms. Beginning in 1680, South Carolina incited a series of Indian attacks against the unarmed Spanish Indians and mission posts. By the end of the Westo War, the aggressive policy of South Carolina had driven the Spanish mission stations out of Gualet. The Spanish Indians also fled, and the powerful Yamasee Indians, attracted by a winner, moved from Florida to South Carolina. With the crushing of the Yamasees and other Indians in the Yamasee War, the old Gwale region was now open for settlement and penetration. The Carolina proprietors agreed in 1717 to a fantastic scheme to establish a feudal Margravate of Azilia in the Gwale region. The proprietors were to grant the region to the promoters in exchange for quit-rent of a penny per acre occupied. The main Azilia promoters were Sir Robert Montgomery, a Scottish baronet, and the poet Aaron Hill. Montgomery and Hill wrote promotional monographs, glowingly puffing the land as Our Future Eden, a myriad of elaborate townships were projected to be spaced in concentric zones with the Margrave's Palace in the exact center. But like many other wild schemes, the plan collapsed with the ending in 1720 of the inflationary and speculative South Sea Bubble on the London stock market. One of the first acts of the new royal government in South Carolina was to build Fort King George at the mouth of the Altamaha River, the first English establishment in the Georgia region. The fort was to serve as a standing outpost against the French in the west and the Spanish in the south. 
The South Carolina Assembly resented paying for a new garrison, but the new governor, Francis Nicholson, was able to drive through the sizable appropriations. Not only was the erection of the fort on former Spanish territory an insult and a threat to Spain, but soon the fort was being used to incite the Indians to raid Spanish settlements in Florida. The Spanish ambassador to London charged that the Floridians could not stir out of their houses to cultivate their lands or turn out their cattle without apparent danger from the said Indians. The Crown sent two letters to Nicholson ordering the end of the aggressive violence against the Spanish settlements. The great hope of Nicholson and South Carolina was to use Fort King George during the hoped-for next round of wars as a base to seize St. Augustine. To the Spanish insistence that the fort be dismantled, South Carolina irrelevantly kept turning to demands that runaway Negro slaves be forcibly returned by Spain. No one was more unhappy about maintaining the fort than its own garrison. From 1725 to 1727, the soldiers, disgruntled with a malarial swamp and with poor food, mutinied several times. A dozen soldiers defected to St. Augustine, and the garrison allowed a fire almost to destroy the fort. During the 1720s, the proprietors kept title to Carolina, including Georgia, lands, and insisted on keeping all new lands closed to settlement, while demanding collection of quit-rents or a restoration of their own rule before they would consent to open the lands for settlement. All plans to settle Georgia during this period, therefore, proved to be abortive. In 1727, Spain launched a dulcetory siege of the British port of Gibraltar. During this short-lived war between England and Spain, the Carolinians withdrew from the exposed Fort King George. Indeed, Indian tribes allied to Spain now raided frontier Carolina settlements. The Yamasee remnants, though reduced to three villages near St. Augustine, eagerly sought revenge by leading these border raids, and they were joined by Creeks and by runaway Negroes, anxious to exact some revenge for their years in slavery. The South Carolinians, for their part, took the occasion to launch an expedition and to annihilate the Yemassee remnant. Going by sea, the South Carolinians, led by Colonel John Palmer, a member of the assembly devastated and burned the Yamasee towns, including the Catholic chapel near St. Augustine, and killed a number of Indians. Some of the Yamasees found refuge in the great fort of St. Augustine, but the Yamasee prestige had been irreparably injured. So long as the proprietors who had closed off the unsettled land still held title to Carolina and Georgia, the Crown could not open up the Georgia land to settlement. But with the end of the proprietary claims in 1729, the crushing of the Yamasees, and the end of the brief Anglo-Spanish War, the path to settlement was now wide open. Furthermore, the royal authorities were particularly anxious to encourage settlement in Georgia as a buffer against the French, Spanish, and Indians. It was at this time that the Gwale region was organized and settled on a unique basis. Here was neither a proprietary nor chartered company organized for profit 
or for religious unity, nor a typically royal province. Here was a proprietary colony run not for profit, but for humanitarian and altruistic reasons. Here was an unparalleled model of the logical consequences of philanthropic altruism run rampant. The major founder of the new philanthropic colony was Colonel James E. Oglethorpe, a prominent member of Parliament and an aggressive Tory. The most widely trumpeted aim of the new colony was humanitarianism. Englishmen were called upon to contribute, with no hope of personal reward, to a new colony in Guale, to be called Georgia, in honor of King George II, which would colonize and help the poor and needy of England. Indeed, because of its humanitarian reputation, Georgia received tremendous publicity in the English press. Meetings of the trustees were reported in detail, and Oglethorpe was welcomed as a hero, replete with odes from leading poets such as Alexander Pope upon his return from trips to the new colony. Even on its face, it is a wonder that no one called the humanitarianism of this scheme into question. If one is so eager to help the English poor, is it so humanitarian to ship them to a new and unsettled land bordered by potential enemies? But apart from this, the workings of the new experiment revealed the logical consequences of outright altruism. For if A is to act as his brother's keeper, if he is to be in a position to do good to his fellow man, then he must be his brother's keeper in more than one sense. For how can A be truly responsible for, that is, keep B, unless he be given power to tell B what to do and what not to do, that is, be his keeper in the unpleasant sense of jailer? On the simplest level, for example, how can A be responsible for B's health unless he is in a position to dictate B's food consumption and to force him to wear rubbers in the rain? To do good to another, the recipient must be made to sit still and accept the largesse. And to be responsible for another, the humanitarian must have power over him. This is why in the stark but telling phrase of the brilliant but neglected 20th century political thinker Isabel Patterson, the humanitarian sets up the guillotine. More fully, Patterson points out that the humanitarian wishes to be a prime mover in the lives of others. He cannot admit either the divine or the natural order by which men have the power to keep themselves. The humanitarian puts himself in the place of God. But he is confronted by two awkward facts. First, that the competent do not need his assistance. And second, that the majority of people, if unperverted, positively do not want to be done good by the humanitarians. Shall A do what he thinks is good for B, and B do what he thinks is good for A? Or shall A accept only what he thinks is good for B, and vice versa? But that is absurd. Of course, what the humanitarian actually proposes is that he shall do what he thinks is good for everybody. It is at this point 
that the humanitarian sets up the guillotine. If, then, one is to set up a humanitarian colony for the poor and unemployed, and, as a corollary, the colony is not to be run by the supposedly evil motives of profit-making, then what are the consequences? The supposedly cold and impersonal motives of profit furnish a potent check-rein on irresponsible actions. To make profits, one's production must be economic. Specifically, to build up a profitable colony, it is necessary to induce settlers to come to that colony and to be productive and economic. But the rejection of profit-making as a motive gave the proprietors almost unlimited reign to exercise irresponsible and arbitrary power over their charges. It also gave them a chance to indulge in general and vague motives, the outcome of which might be truly reprehensible, despite their superficial attraction for many people. James Oglethorpe and his associates received a charter from King George II in 1732 for a colony of Georgia with jurisdiction between the Savannah and the Altamaha Rivers, now North Georgia. By the charter, the proprietors were a group of 21 trustees, the Georgia Trust, none of whom was to be allowed to reap personal gain or profit from the colony. The trust was to run the colony for 21 years, after which the land would revert to the crown. All laws of Georgia were to be subject to the king's approval. Religious freedom was to be enjoyed in the colony by all except Catholics, who apparently did not come under any sort of humanitarian jurisdiction. The conjunction of altruism and absolute power could be discerned very early. The Common Council, a committee of trustees, was to have absolute power to decree laws and regulations for the inhabitants of Georgia. From its very inception, here was the only colony where the citizens had no representative assembly whatever, and indeed little say over their own lives and actions. Two myths soon surrounded the inception of the Georgia colony, myths that were convenient for Oglethorpe and the trustees to foster. One was that the humanitarianism was virtually permeated with religion, and second, that the philanthropy was directed specifically toward debtors who had been released from imprisonment. The first myth stems from the fact that the Georgia Trust grew out of a foundation called the Associates of Dr. Bray, which consisted of those who had been followers of the aggressive Anglican missionary and philanthropist, the Reverend Thomas Bray. Dr. Bray had been interested in a humanitarian colony in Georgia, but died in 1730, and religious influence proved to be virtually non-existent in the colony. In fact, Thomas Coram, a close friend of Bray's, soon broke with the Georgia experiment because of the absence of any religious influence. The second myth arose because the bulk of Oglethorpe's associates among the trustees had been connected with him in parliamentary jail committees on the state of debtors and others in prison. But the historian Albert Bisset has shown that hardly any formerly imprisoned debtors were among the early settlers of Georgia. In fact, there were other motives than humanitarian ones in establishing Georgia. 
These may be summed up in the advancement of the interest of the British ruling classes, that is, the imperial bureaucracy, and the merchants and manufacturers subsidized and privileged by the state. In short, it was a typically mercantilist venture, despite its unconventional trappings. Specifically, the trustees and the Crown decided to people the Georgia frontier to serve as a military buffer and striking point against the Indians and other European colonies. In addition, it was expected that the settlers would supply the manufacturers of the mother country with a plentiful and hence cheap source of hemp, flax, timber, and even silk. Thus Oglethorpe, in the days of the inception of the Georgia scheme, told his chief ally, Viscount Percival, that the Georgia plan was that the colonists should be settled all together and be subject to subordinate rulers who should inspect their behavior and labor under one chief head, that in time they, with their families, would increase so fast as to become a security and defense of our possessions against the French and Indians of those parts, that they should be employed in cultivating flax and hemp, which being allowed to make into yarn will be returned to England, Ireland, and greatly promote our manufactures. The promotional literature of the trustees also pointed out how the Roman Empire had sent settlers to their frontiers, It was by this policy that they elbowed all the nations around them. In short, the recipients of humanitarian largesse, the very needy who needed to be done good to, were to be shipped to Georgia to live and work under the absolute power of their masters in order to serve as docile fodder for military campaigns and as exploited labor in the interest of their rulers. Dependents upon charity, of course, are far more passive and susceptible to the orders of their masters and keepers than are independent and self-reliant workers and other citizens. The lineaments of power were becoming clearly discernible under the attractive trappings of altruism. One interesting revelation of the trustees' intent was their policy in selecting colonists to emigrate to the new land. An inescapable factor of nature is that largess cannot be unlimited. Hence, anyone who proposes such gifts must needs select and choose their recipients. What were the trustees' criteria of selection? First, they were careful to select only the needy. Clearly, those already earning their living at home would hardly prove docile or grateful workers or soldiers. Another frankly expressed reason for this criterion was to get some of the growing number of unsightly and annoying poor off the streets of London, to carry off the numbers of poor that pester the streets of London. However, far from concentrating on distressed debtors, the trustees made sure that the applicants were virtuous and industrious, and detailed investigations were made of their moral character. It would not do, obviously, to have an unruly and unproductive group settle in the colony. Moreover, the trustees insisted that the populace be generally sturdy and able-bodied. Here were not alms to the truly needy, but a careful insistence that the Georgians be fit for the tasks to which the trustees meant to assign them. 
One of the loudly proclaimed purposes of the new colony was to provide a haven for German and other Protestant refugees, a commendable humanitarian aim to be sure, but we find that the trustees distrusted intensely religious refugees and agreed to accept only applicants checked for their industry and sobriety. The first colonist, numbering over 100, arrived in Georgia in early 1733, led by Oglethorpe himself, and founded the city of Savannah at the mouth of the Savannah River. More colonists soon arrived, including Lutheran refugees from Salzburg in Austria, who founded the town of Ebenezer. The absolute dictatorship of humanitarians in power over their charges soon became manifest. The trustees laid down a genuinely totalitarian system of planning, of rules and regulations for the colonists. The crucial regulations were imposed over land and ensured that no one had even a semblance of private property in land. The size of individual holdings was strictly and arbitrarily limited to a maximum of 500 acres, depending on the number of servants the settler brought over. Each family was given 50 acres, which it was not allowed to sell, rent, or divide. The larger acreage allowed for servants and brought a rather wealthier element to the colony. All settlers, however, including servants, were carefully selected and regulated by the trustees. Servitude proved impracticable in Georgia, since the servants persisted in rebelling against their masters, committing passive and active sabotage and running away to South Carolina. Each family only owned land in tail mail. The land could be inherited only by a son, and then only if the son continued to work the land himself. If both of these conditions did not obtain, the land then automatically reverted to the trustees. But fifty acres could hardly support a family on Georgia land. Furthermore, since the land could not be sold or exchanged, each settler was frozen on a particular parcel of land, no matter how uneconomic or infertile it proved to be. And why should a settler, without a son willing to keep working on the particular assigned acres, have any incentive to improve or even maintain land that would inevitably revert to the trustee government? Typical of the destructive nature of the trustee's absolute dictation over land was the situation in the town of Hampstead. The citizens of the town, in 1738, complained that their assigned land was infertile pine land and petitioned the trustees, who had complete charge of such matters, for better land in exchange. But Oglethorpe replied that if the people were allowed to move to better land, this would put dark desires in the hearts of all their fellow Georgians to move to better land themselves. The compulsory egalitarianism of placing a maximum limit on everyone's acreage was even more destructive than the practice of monopolizing land grants in other colonies. The settlers soon saw and complained that there was no incentive to try to better their condition. As one of the trustees' agents reported, there being many lazy fellows in the number and others not able to work, those who work stoutly 
think it unreasonable the others should enjoy the fruits of their labor, and when the land is cleared, have an equal share and chance when lots are cast for determining each person's division. Another important grievance was the high quit-rent charged by the trustees. Yet Oglethorpe stubbornly claimed that the complaints only came from the selfish and shiftless and from those stirred up by subversive land speculators from South Carolina. Since the funds all came philanthropically to Georgia from abroad, the citizens paid no taxes and had no right to protest. The trustees employed storekeepers in the colony, and the storekeepers were instructed to dole out precisely fixed and detailed rations to each of the settlers. The precisely detailed doles, as Professor Borston comments, have more the ring of a well-run jail than of a colony of free men seeking their fortune in a new world. Totalitarian regulation, of course, encompassed the sphere of alleged morality as well. To preserve their charges against the evils of luxury and indolence, the trustees prohibited the importation of any whiskey into Georgia. All liquor found in the colony would be publicly destroyed, and the sale of alcoholic beverages condemned as a crime. The prohibition on rum imports, however, crippled trade with the West Indies, an important market for Georgia timber. Slavery was also prohibited in the colony, but not at all from any humanitarian considerations toward the Negro. On the contrary, free Negroes, as well as slaves, were barred from the colony, and the main reason was the fear that Negroes would be the natural allies of possible Spanish or French invaders. Indeed, the humanitarian Oglethorpe himself owned a slave plantation in South Carolina and invested heavily in the African slave trade. If the trustees could not profit personally from their absolute power over the people of Georgia, their agents could and did, for their agents were empowered with the crucial right to distribute all the subsidized stores in the colony. Whenever there is monopoly privilege to distribute, it is almost an historical or sociological law that the distributor will take steps to sell that privilege. Thomas Coston, for example, the official storekeeper of the colony, had absolute power over all supplies and hence virtually of life and death in the colony. In this capacity, he naturally became the most hated man in Georgia. Once he trumpeted publicly that the Georgian had neither lands, rights, or possessions that the trustees gave and that the trustees could freely take away. And, of course, everyone knew that Coston himself was the trustees' surrogate in the colony. And Coston sold the privileges at his disposal, engaging in profiteering, bribery, short and spoiled rations, and so forth. As agent of the trustees, Coston was the government, and thus immune to legal prosecution. Wildest and most cherished of the trustees' plans was the promotion of the expensive growth of silk in the Georgia colony. The projectors had high hopes, totally ungrounded in economic reality, of Georgia becoming a center of silk culture. For one thing, the trustees had not yet realized that the mulberry trees of Georgia were completely unsuited for silk culture. 
the trustees proceeded blithely to force and cajole silk production. On the one hand, they established a guaranteed inflated buying price for all silk grown, as well as subsidies and prizes for silk exported to England. On the other, they required each hapless settler, as a necessary condition of his claim, to plant at least fifty mulberry trees on every fifty acres. The silk scheme proved to be a fiasco in economic planning, despite large-scale propaganda campaigns in behalf of George's silk. Silkworms could not flourish there, and it was uneconomic for labor to be applied to this commodity. The humanitarian trustees had absolute confidence in the merits of their dictatorial power. The board itself will always do what is right. It had the gall to resolve unanimously in 1735, and the people should have confidence in us. But somehow the settlers proved to be ingrates, and continually complained of their food, land, and equipment. Since they were placed in a position of forced dependence upon the trustees, they could only better themselves by begging or demanding from the trustees. Rather than each running his life independently as he saw fit, furthermore the prohibition against liquor was proving unenforceable. One contemporary writer explained that, as it is the nature of mankind in general, and of the common sort in particular, more eagerly to desire and more immoderately to use those things which are most restrained from them, such was the case with respect to rum in Georgia. As early as 1738, the trustees were beginning to realize that the whole experiment was proving to be an abject failure. Their plans were going awry. The colony was stagnant rather than expanding, and only rising complaints and protest were greeting their unselfish benevolence. Their humanitarianism strained to the breaking point. The trustees soon concluded that the poor, who had been useless in England, Were inclined to be useless in Georgia, likewise. Slowly, grudgingly, the trustees began to relax their power and their fixed dictatorial plans for the colonists. In 1738, they commenced lessening their absurd land regulations. Females were now permitted to inherit land. In the succeeding years, childless farmers were permitted to bequeath their lands. Leases were allowed, and the maximum size of holdings was increased to two thousand acres. Furthermore, quit rents were reduced and soon abolished, and free exchange of land began to be allowed. But complete private property in land, including complete freedom to exchange or bequeath, was not permitted until 1750, when the trustees were preparing to abandon the colony. To the last, Oglethorpe insisted on the wisdom of the land regulations. Similarly, in 1742, the trustees, recognizing reality, managed to repeal the prohibition of liquor, but only over Oglethorpe's violent objections. In 1750, the trustees submitted to popular pressure, in turn stimulated by South Carolina slave traders, and permitted Negro slavery. In the colony, but the trustees persisted in their silk folly virtually to the end. In 1751, the trustees at last allowed a representative assembly, 
but only to make suggestions to the trustees, and promptly required that no one could serve on the assembly who did not have at least 100 mulberry trees on every 50 acres of his land, and at least one female member of his family instructing others in silk reeling, or who did not produce at least 15 pounds of silk on each of his 50 acres. Also, every slave owner was required to own at least one negress skilled in silk raising to every four male negroes. The trustees mounting concessions to the people's rights did not, however, still the tide of petitions and protests in Georgia. Furthermore, many Georgians were deserting the colony for the far freer atmosphere and opportunities of the Carolinas and the other American colonies. Over against the rising and unquenchable tide of popular protest, English philanthropic support was dwindling steadily. At first, the English public contributed handsome sums for the supposed Georgia charity. In the first eight years, voluntary subscriptions totaled 18,000 pounds. But the great bulk of contributions came from Parliament, the government contributing over 130,000 pounds in the years of the Georgia Proprietary. By the end of the 1740s, English interest was dwindling rapidly, and Oglethorpe, the soul of the proprietary, was in disgrace. Finally, in 1751, the trustees announced their intention to relinquish Georgia a bit ahead of time, and the transfer of Georgia to the crown was effected the following year. But the trustees did not, as one might have hoped, learn the lesson of the disastrous failure of the humanitarian in power. On the contrary, they remained smugly self-righteous to the last, Lord Percival complaining that it is a melancholy thing to see how zeal for a good thing abates when the novelty is over. And they drew from the silk fiasco only the lament that they did not have more money to pour into silk culture in Georgia. At the end of two decades of humanitarianism and central planning, Georgia, the settlers charged, saw her original settlers scattered over the face of the earth, her plantations a wild, her towns a desert, her villages in rubbish, her improvements a byword, and her liberties a jest. If the trustees failed dismally in their plans for the Georgia colony, they did manage to pursue energetically the policy of using Georgia as a military and border weapon against foreign colonies. As soon as Oglethorpe arrived, he began to sink funds in a series of military posts. In Parliament, Oglethorpe had persistently called for a more aggressive, warlike policy toward Spain. Now he exulted in daring to build a chain of forts south of the Altamaha boundary. This brazen encroachment on Spanish territory centered on the fort of Frederica, just south of the Altamaha, and extended as far south as Fort St. George on the St. John's River in Florida. Naturally, the Spanish government bitterly protested these military incursions and also demanded the recall of Oglethorpe, but to no avail. Instead, the English prepared for war, and Oglethorpe in 1737 was named commander-in-chief of all the royal forces in Georgia and South Carolina. 
Oglethorpe also acted to bolster alliances among the Indians. He had already constructed Fort Augusta upriver on the Savannah to promote trade and alliance with the natives. In the fall of 1739, England launched an aggressive war against Spain, and this was all the signal needed by Georgia, or the Spaniards, eager to repulse the Oglethorpe thrust. Characteristically, the first mass attack was launched in 1740 by General Oglethorpe in an attempt to conquer the chief Spanish fort of St. Augustine. Commanding South Carolinian and Indian forces and bolstered by the huge cash subsidy of a hundred and twenty thousand pounds granted by South Carolina, Oglethorpe besieged St. Augustine by land and sea. The siege, however, failed completely, and Oglethorpe ungratefully and characteristically sought to use South Carolina as a scapegoat for his own failure. Oglethorpe's bitter charges naturally provoked retaliation in South Carolina, and Carolinian charges of incompetence hit far closer to the mark. Two years later, the Spaniards retaliated and landed an expedition of several thousand men against Frederica, but were repulsed in a cleverly executed ambush by the heavily outnumbered Oglethorpe. But the result of this battle of Bloody Marsh was owing far more to Spanish incompetence than to the excellence of Oglethorpe's defense. For his part, after failing to gain English aid by arousing hysteria in England about the supposedly imminent attack from Florida, Oglethorpe struck out on his own in the spring of 1743 to try once again to capture St. Augustine. But the Spanish repulsed the attack. The new result of the various military clashes between Georgia and Florida was a stalemate and a maintenance of the status quo. With the aggressive Oglethorpe having returned to England, the war with Spanish Florida was now at an end. The humanitarian Oglethorpe had been most anxious to use his charges for military fodder. Stringent military training and discipline had, from the beginning, been imposed upon the colonists. Among the hundreds of German immigrants to Georgia was a group of Protestant Moravians. This pacifist sect resisted military training and non-exemption from such conscription. When the war with Spain began, Georgia renewed its demand upon the Moravians, who courageously replied that they could not in conscience fight, and if expected to do so, they must leave the country. This they promptly proceeded to do, and migrated to the far more hospitable valley of Pennsylvania. Another religious group that arrived during the trustee period was several scores of Jews who landed in July 1733. Three of the wealthiest Sephardic Jews of Spanish-Portuguese descent in London were hired as fundraisers to collect charitable sums for the Georgia Project. The three agents were, of course, supposed to turn over the funds to the trustees. Instead, they blithely used the money to finance the emigration of two groups of Jews to Georgia. The more notable group consisted of 40 Sephardic Jews, while the other party was made up of much poorer folk from Germany. The trustees were understandably embittered at this chicanery and ordered Oglethorpe to eject the Jews from the colony. 
Particularly bitter and alarmed was the religiously oriented Thomas Coram, who warned the trustees that Georgia would soon become a Jewish colony, with only Christian laborers, those whom the Jews find most necessary and useful, allowed to remain in the country. Oglethorpe, however, was greatly impressed with the way that a Jewish physician, Dr. Samuel Nunez Riverio, was able to stop a severe epidemic and allowed them to stay. The Jews settled in Savannah, but in a few years the bulk of them had migrated to Charleston. The handful of Jews in the colonies, largely Sephardim and merchants, were concentrated in the cities of Newport, New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston. After a royal government replaced the hated proprietary in 1752, Georgia swiftly became very much like the other royal colonies in America. The end of proprietary planning led to rapid growth of the colony, with rice and indigo culture spreading in the lowlands in lieu of such unfortunate projects as silk. With slavery now permitted, and the land free of encumbrance, large plantations for rice and indigo could be profitably established. South Carolina, in fact, moved to the coast of northern Georgia. In addition, timber and naval stores were now widely grown in the new royal province. Also arriving in Georgia was a group of several hundred Puritans, originally from Massachusetts, who now settled the Midway district on the coast, around the port of Sunbury. All in all, Georgia began to resemble an undeveloped microcosm of her neighbor to the north, including the typical royal colony scheme of appointed governor and council, in conflict with an elective representative assembly. In 1758, Georgia joined the other southern colonies in establishing the Anglican Church, Dissenters continued to flourish in the colony, but soon attendance at public religious services was made compulsory. After Oglethorpe's departure, the forts south of the Altamaha were allowed to fall into decay, and the Crown refused to spend money to rebuild what could only serve as a standing challenge to Spain. Unoccupied and free of the burdens of imposed sovereignty, the region south of the Altamaha became a truly free land. Like Rhode Island and North Carolina in the mid-17th century, it became in the 1750s an individualistic haven for those discontented with existing governments. The most prominent dissident was Edmund Gray, a Quaker from Virginia, Gray had already become influential in Augusta for openly daring to parcel out land in the public domain to himself and to his fellow settlers without bothering to worry about governmental sanction. Running for the first royal assembly, meeting in early 1755, Gray stirred up the people with eloquent pleas for liberty and economic opportunity, as well as criticism of emerging royal rule. In the election, Gray won the assembly seat from Augusta, and the head of the Gray forces in Savannah, the lawyer Charles Watson, was elected from that city. Gray claimed that the defeat of two of his other allies in the Savannah election was due to fraud. Not only did the assembly reject this claim, but it went on to expel two other followers of Gray. 
This arbitrary act precipitated a boycott of the lower house by Gray, Watson, and six other representatives, constituting almost half of the total membership of the assembly. The assembly replied by expelling two more of the absentees, who now issued a circular letter on January 15 to the freeholders of Georgia, calling upon all who regard the liberties of your country to flock to Savannah. John Reynolds, the first royal governor, reacted to this crisis with a hysterical and coercive crackdown on his opposition. He denounced the sedition, decreed the prohibition of all tumultuous assemblies and nightly meetings, urged his subjects to defend the imperiled government, and formed a counter-revolutionary armed association headed by the council and the rump assembly. Upon this demonstration of force majeure, Gray and Watson fled Savannah, and the assembly preemptorily expelled all of its seditious members. Disgusted with George's arbitrary actions, Gray and several hundred followers left Georgia to settle south of the Altamaha, where no long arm of government could reach them. This settlement of Gray and his followers centered on Cumberland Island and the new settlement of New Hanover, some miles up the Satia River. There Gray and his followers lived free lives, unburdened by the domination of government. As such, their very existence was a standing reproach to the people of Georgia, and especially to its government, who concluded that these dangerous people must be stamped out, lest their example be followed by others. Furthermore, governments always abhor a vacuum, and Spain was trying to force Gray and his followers to come under its jurisdiction. Consequently, the crown itself in 1758 ordered these free settlements crushed. Officials from South Carolina and Georgia traveled there and successfully ordered them to disperse and leave the territory of no government. The haven from government was at an end. Gray, however, proved indomitable and re-established New Hanover with over 70 families on Cumberland Island in 1761. During the Seven Years' War, from 1756 to 1763, Spain entered the war just long enough to be the loser on France's side. Consequently, at the Peace Treaty of 1763, the Spanish were forced to cede all of Florida to England. Florida was made a royal colony, and the Florida-Georgia border fixed at the St. Mary's River, to the chagrin of Georgia, which demanded the line of the St. John's. But, in any case, Georgia had now seized jurisdiction over the Trans-Altamaha region, and the land of no government was finally no more. In the meanwhile, the ruling South Carolina oligarchy had executed a brazen maneuver, claiming sovereignty over the Trans-Altamaha, Governor Thomas Boone airily granted almost 350,000 acres of its land to the 200 leading planters of his colony, including Henry Lawrence and Henry Middleton. Governor James Wright of Georgia promptly protested to the Crown over this arbitrary land grab. The engrossment by land speculators would shut off an expected flow of settlers, the sinews, wealth, and strength of an infant colony. 
Moreover, the grants were unfair to the people of Georgia, to the settlers who bore the brunt and fatigue of settling a new colony. The crown, however, proved reluctant to dispossess the grantees, and this despite the fact that the peace treaty had granted the Trans-Altamaha region to Georgia. In 1765, Georgia decided in eminently fair fashion to confer land grants only to the extent that the land was cleared and settled, and the crown finally approved a similar provision. As it turned out, the meager demand for this land during the remainder of the colonial era made the entire problem academic. Despite its recent rapid growth, Georgia still remained the smallest and weakest English colony. Its crippling heritage under trusteeship had not been fully overcome. But now it was set for further rapid expansion, especially as the Creek Indians were rewarded for their faithful alliance with the English against the dangerous Cherokees by being forced to leave their lands in eastern Georgia. Volume 2, Part 2 Intercolonial Developments Volume 2, Chapter 26 Inflation and the Creation of Paper Money So far we have been concentrating on the leading developments in each colony in the first half of the 18th century, in the domestic affairs, so to speak, peculiar to the colony. Now let us turn to the increasingly important experiences that were common to several or all of the colonies, experiences that helped to impart a greater degree of community in colonies that originated as completely separate and independent entities. Among these, we can distinguish two categories. First, events and developments that, while still chiefly domestic to the colonies, permeated some or all of them. For example, such new developments as paper money or such intellectual currents as the Great Awakening. Second, foreign affairs, that is, the emergence of common relations and problems outside the colonies, specifically relations with Great Britain and the British Empire, with the other European colonies in North America, France and Spain, and with the Indians, the last two spheres often blending. Many of the predominantly domestic questions, of course, had external ramifications, particularly vis-à-vis -vis Great Britain. Turning first to domestic developments shared by the various colonies in the first half of the 18th century, one of the most important was the creation of an entirely new and destructive economic device, paper money. Apart from isolated China during the Middle Ages, money had always emerged on the market as a useful commodity, whether goods like tobacco and grain, as in the colonies, or the more widely used but more expensive gold and silver. In any case, the monetary commodity could only be produced as other goods were, by the use of labor and capital to transform material resources into more desirable forms, for example, by growing and picking tobacco or by mining gold. Again, as in the case of other goods, the monetary commodity could then be acquired either by direct production 
or by purchasing some other good or service and exchanging it for money. National monetary units were not regarded as independent entities in any sense, but merely national names for units of weight of gold or silver. Hence, foreign coins of varying weights of gold and silver could and did easily circulate throughout the world, if unhampered by government regulations, since their value rested in their specie content rather than in their name. Until the 17th century, money was gold or silver or some other commodity, and there was no way to increase its stock except by purchasing more of the metal. The kings and princes, it is true, found a way to increase their share by debasement, devaluating the specie content of the national coin and unit, and keeping the remainder, the seniorage, for themselves. Credit exchanges and merchant banking developed during the flowering of commercial capitalism of the medieval northern Italian cities. At first, these banking transactions promoted the advance of the market and of commercial capitalism without adding to or disturbing the supply of money. Eventually, however, some of the bankers began to accept deposits of money for safekeeping and then began profiting on their depositors' money by lending out the money or lending newly minted deposit claims on the money deposits. In this way, new money, or rather new evidences of money, was pumped into the economy essentially out of thin air and by means of virtual embezzlement of depositors' funds. Deposit banking did not loom large in the Italian or European economy, however, and failures by deposit bankers in Venice led to government banking based on true money warehouse principles. In 1587, Venice established a deposit bank in which deposits were matched 100% by money in the bank's vaults. Therefore, no fraudulent or inflationary increase of the money supply could take place. By 1619, however, the government's need for funds and the temptation to cheat brought about a relaxation of the 100% rule. Soon the 100% principle was followed by new banks created in other cities, especially at Amsterdam in 1609 and at Hamburg ten years later. In England, commercial banking began in the mid-17th century, with gold being deposited for safekeeping with London goldsmiths, who issued notes or book claims as evidences of gold deposited there. Since the depositors were the true owners of the gold, there were not supposed to be much more warehouse receipts than gold in the vaults. But eventually the goldsmiths began to yield to the temptation of fraudulently increasing the money supply through issue of pseudo-warehouse receipts. Yet before the late 17th century, there was no important amount of bank money or bank issues beyond gold or silver and that generally ancillary to other financial business, and none at all in the American colonies. 
and there was no case at all concerning the issue of government paper money, let alone government paper made a compulsory medium for payment of all debts, legal tender. We have seen above that when money remains exclusively a commodity, or as simply warehouse receipts fully representing the money commodity in the warehouse, it must be obtained by production or by exchange of goods. But bank money or government money, whether as tangible notes or demand deposits, is an increase in the effective money supply virtually out of thin air. What are the economic consequences of such an increase? The important point about the economics of money is that once a commodity is chosen as money by the market, any amount of its supply is optimal. In short, no social benefit is ever conferred by an increase in the supply of money in society. This contrast to other useful goods is due to the fact that money is used only for exchange of other goods. It does not, like other goods, perform its service by being used up in production or consumption. Money exchanges with all other goods on terms set by the market. These terms, established by the interplay of market supply and demand, constitute the array of money prices in society. If the supply of money in society should increase, the purchasing power of each unit of money relative to goods will fall. That is, prices will rise. If the supply of money should decline, then the purchasing power of each unit will rise. Prices will fall. In short, an increase in the money supply only dilutes the effectiveness of each unit of money, for instance, the gold ounce. A fall in the supply raises the power of each unit to do its work. Whatever happens to the supply of money, prices will thus adjust themselves so as to carry on the work of exchange as efficiently as possible. No one size of the money stock, then, is better than any other. An increase in the supply of gold or silver, therefore, confers no social benefit by increasing the supply of money. Prices will rise, and the public will be no better off than before. The addition, however, does confer a social benefit by increasing the non-monetary uses of gold or silver. But the creation through book accounts or paper issues does not yield this indirect benefit. This creation is wholly parasitical. If the creation of bank money or government paper is not socially useful, this does not mean that its economic consequences are trivial or unimportant. Quite the contrary. For the creation of paper money severs the vital market link between production and income. For now non-producers are able, so to speak, to counterfeit, to create their own money, and to use it to bid away resources from genuine producers. Money creation, in short, 
redistributes income and wealth from producers to legalized counterfeiters and to the witting or unwitting beneficiaries of this counterfeiting. Second, this redistribution is effected by subtle and silent means, and this does not raise the opposition provoked by the more direct bludgeon of, say, taxation and government spending. Third, the inflation, issue of notes or deposits beyond the stock of specie, weakens and ultimately wrecks the integrity of the monetary unit. For the unit now must embrace pseudo-warehouse receipts and fraudulent dollars or pounds or francs which do not at all represent actual weights of the money commodity. As a result, all the users of the money will be hurt and will find their money declined in value. In fact, the market will quickly tend to depreciate the paper money or banknotes in relation to genuine money, and this might happen even if government bolsters the use of money by force, for example, by declaring it legal tender. Creation of paper or bank money, inflation, therefore, confers a special privilege on some groups at the expense of the producers and at the expense of the society's money. The groups that benefit include the first issuers and receivers of the new money, those who sell to them, and generally those whose selling prices rise because of the inflation before a rise in the prices of the goods they have to buy. These groups gain by imposing losses on those to whom the new money is the last to trickle down, that is, those whose buying prices rise before the prices of the goods or services they have to sell. Debtors always gain from the rise in prices caused by inflation. They can then pay back their loans in money of lower purchasing power than they had borrowed. Furthermore, if the new money is loaned out by government or banks, Debtors may benefit from the artificially low interest rate on the loan. Creditors, conversely, are always among the groups injured by inflation, for they receive the inferior money. An interest return on further loans is artificially lowered if the new issue appears on the loan market. Landowners generally benefit from inflation. Land prices usually rise more rapidly than most other prices, and lowered interest rates have a particularly strong impact in raising the values of an extremely durable good such as land. Since landlords, especially speculative landlords, are often debtors as well, they have a multiple incentive for favoring inflation. Land speculators who borrow to invest in large tracts of virgin land have particularly gravitated toward the vanguard of the advocates of inflation. American historians, recognizing the interest of debtors in promoting inflation as a subsidy for themselves, have generally made a grievous error in applying this insight to the American past. They have assumed that debtors and creditors are fixed identifiable classes and that debtors have consisted of poor farmers and creditors of wealthy urban merchants. 
The fallacies in this disastrous typology are numerous. Debtor and creditor refer not to fixed occupational categories. A man is not born into the status of debtor or creditor, and anyone may shift continually from one category to the other or to neither one. Farmers may be in debt or out of it, and may even be creditors. Merchants are notoriously creditors and debtors both, and they may shift at any time from a net creditor to a net debtor position or vice versa. And debtors are not necessarily poor. Indeed, it is precisely the wealthy who generally go most heavily into debt. After all, poor people generally do not possess a very good credit rating and therefore are not often able to borrow even if they want to. Landowners are often debtors, but they may more likely be wealthy land speculators than dirt farmers. As befitted their undeveloped economies, the American colonies during the 17th century largely relied for their money on their staple and hence their most widely marketable commodities. For example, tobacco in the Chesapeake Bay colonies, rice in South Carolina, poultry and corn and other grain in the north, and wampum in trade with the Indians. There has been much lamenting among historians about the scarcity of money in the colonies, reflected in the various commodity monies and imposed by the Crown's prohibition on either colonial mints or the import of coin from England. The supply of commodity monies was, in the first place, appropriate for the low level of economic development and the limited scope of especially the internal economy of the colonies. Second, while lack of a mint was inconvenient, it was not important, for gold and silver, bullion or coin, could be bought, imported, at any time they were deemed necessary. And so they were. Neither did the colonies suffer irretrievably from the imposed lack of English coin. By the late 17th century, abundant Spanish silver coin and Brazilian gold coin existed in the colonies, coin that was used in urban centers and in foreign trade, where wampum and the other commodities were not highly welcome as money. Commodity money flourished within the rural districts, where, indeed, much trade was carried on by simple barter without even a commodity intermediary of exchange. While mercantilist fallacy and hoarding of species led England to keep its specie out of the colonies, Americans continued to keep their accounts in English units. The English shilling consisted of 86 grains of silver, while the most popular coin in the colonies, the Spanish piece of eight, or dollar, obtained from the West Indies trade, weighed 387 silver grains. Hence, rationally, by their silver content, one pound sterling exchanged for $4.44 and one dollar exchanged for four shillings, six pence of English money. But the colonies, too, were prisoners of mercantilist fallacies and were also concerned to force specie to remain in the colony that is, to force it not to be used to its best advantage in importing goods. Consequently, they decided to juggle the standards of weight of money 
and debased the money. The process began as early as 1642, when the government of Massachusetts arbitrarily decreed that the Spanish dollar be valued at five shillings. Connecticut followed a year later. This meant that the Massachusetts and Connecticut shillings, as the units of account, were now arbitrarily devalued in terms of dollars. The aim of this juggling was to attract dollars into the colony. If a silver coin could be worth five shillings instead of four and a half, then coins would be attracted into the place where they were valued more highly. In short, debasement of the unit of account, as in all currency devaluations, amounted to an artificial lowering of Massachusetts and Connecticut prices in terms of dollars, so that exports from these colonies received in mercantilist fashion an artificial subsidy. If exports were encouraged by the debasement, imports from abroad were similarly discouraged, and this could only injure the colonial consumers dependent on foreign goods. This sort of artificial stimulus and burden could only be temporary, however. Soon domestic prices stimulated by the increased demand would increase proportionately to the fall in value and the exporter's windfall would then be over. As soon as one colony began the process of debasement, others followed to avoid specie flowing elsewhere. Soon, indeed, the colonies began to engage in a disastrous competitive debasement, continually spurred to greater heights by the catching up of domestic prices, by the wearing off, in short, of the narcotizing dose. The process, as we can see, was ruinously inflationary. The supply of money increased, to be sure, not through an increase of paper tickets or claims to money, but by artificially increasing the nominal units of money in terms of actual money. In 1645, Virginia raised the value of the dollar to six shillings, and from 1671 to 1697, nine colonies advanced the dollar and to make the matters more confusing, at varying rates. The general level was six shillings to the dollar, but New York advanced the dollar to six shillings nine pence, and Pennsylvania and West New Jersey to seven shillings six pence. Virginia and Maryland had an additional incentive for debasement of the shilling. Many of their planter oligarchs were in debt to English merchants, and they were eager to repay shilling debts in appreciated dollars. But for similar reasons, the English creditors were determined that these colonies not devalue. So Virginia and Maryland were restricted in further debasement, Virginia being forced to lower its valuation to five shillings. The result was that the tobacco colonies soon lagged behind the others and coin began to drain from there to Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. This meant, however, that southern planters began to buy their supplies from the northern merchants artificially favored by debasement rather than from the English merchants. England finally decided to stop the competitive debasement and to insist on a uniform evaluation of money throughout the colonies. The English decree was, in fact, 
not only overdue, but also excessively lenient. In 1704, the crown proclaimed six shillings as the maximum value of Spanish dollars, thus allowing a one-third rise from the real free market value of four shillings sixpence. The proclamation had no provision for enforcement, however, and so the northern colonies and South Carolina continued to stamp a higher value on the dollar than did Virginia and Maryland. Consequently, Parliament enacted the proclamation into law in 1707 with penalties for violations. The colonies soon found another way to juggle monetary standards fraudulently and at the same time evade the regulations. Forced to assign a certain shilling value to Spanish dollars, the colonies turned to arbitrary changes in the value of silver itself. The true sterling value of silver, gauged by the silver content of English money, was five shillings, two pence per ounce of silver. At the depreciation of silver set by Parliament's maximum of six shillings to the dollar, an ounce of silver was worth six shillings, ten pence. But the colonies now began to raise the shilling value of silver generally to eight shillings per ounce or even higher. When England properly protested this patently crude violation of the law, the assemblies of Massachusetts and New York refused to appropriate money for the government, except at their own proclaimed higher rates, and thus won their way. Neither did the other colonies bother to obey the law, with the exception of Maryland and Virginia, where the maximum continued to be rigorously enforced. Indeed, Virginia set silver even lower than the proclaimed maximum at five shillings, two pence per ounce. Jealous of the royal sovereignty and its alleged right to monopolize the mint, the crown forbade mints in the colonies. During the Republican era, however, Massachusetts, alone of the colonies, established a mint in 1652. The mint was leased by Massachusetts to John Hall, who was allowed a fixed rate of seigniorage on each coin. In minting pine tree shillings, Massachusetts propelled the debasement process, coining the shilling at 72 grains instead of the full weight of 86. This amounted to an evaluation of six shillings to the dollar. The existence of the mint was one of the Crown's grievances against the recalcitrant Bay Colony, and in 1684 it forced the Massachusetts Mint to close down. The colonies, including Massachusetts, vainly attempted to thwart economic law by barring the export of specie, but they could not succeed even with extraordinary powers of search and such penalties as outright confiscation of estates. It soon began to dawn on the colonists that there was a far easier way to inflate the money supply, and to a far greater extent than by juggling the standards of weight or value of money, the creation of money out of mere paper. In 1641, the English mercantilist Henry Robinson hailed the Italian banks, able to inflate banknotes beyond the stock of specie. Nine years later, William Potter, in The Key of Wealth, 
argued with consistent logic that if an increase of money is beneficial, a perpetual increase would be still better. The creator of numerous such schemes, Potter would have his notes secured by the nation's land. Potter failed to see that the price of land increases, along with other assets, in an inflation, so that land would hardly check a paper inflation. He also failed to see the essence of bank money and its value as a claim to standard money. A loan bank to issue vast quantities of new money, particularly a land bank to lend on landed security, naturally enchanted leaders in New England. In 1663, Governor John Winthrop, Jr. of Connecticut, urged land banking upon his fellow members of the English Royal Society. Taking the lead in proposing a land bank was the influential Reverend John Woodbridge of Newbury, Massachusetts. Woodbridge, directly inspired by Potter, proposed a bank that would issue and lend notes. Woodbridge tried the scheme abortively in 1671 and 1681, and then set forth his views in trying to organize a fund bank in 1682. Increased money, wrote the Reverend in a nutshell, multiplies trading, increaseth manufacture and provisions for domestic use and foreign return, abateth interest. The first land bank proposal, with a good chance of being established, came in Massachusetts in 1686. It is also a particularly instructive example of the kinds of forces behind the inflationist proposals. The originators of the scheme were emphatically not poor debtor farmers. On the contrary, they were precisely the ruling oligarchy of Massachusetts. The year 1686 saw Massachusetts ruled by Joseph Dudley and his associates in plunder. On assuming office, Dudley and his council appointed a committee of leading merchants and other citizens to study trade conditions. The committee, led by Captain John Blackwell, reported with a proposal for a bank whose notes would be forced on the people as legal tender. The plan was to include all the leading oligarchs of the Dudley era in the directorship of the bank, Dudley himself, William Stoughton, Waite Winthrop, Simon Lind, Alicia Hutchinson, Alicia Cook, and others. No notes were to be issued below 20 shillings in denomination to ensure that the bank would be largely limited to the wealthiest citizens. The bank was to have no specie capital whatever, though individual directors were to bear responsibility. The plan was abandoned with the arrival of Andros. The Glorious Revolution in 1688 inspired new talk of the Blackwell Bank, but again the proposal fell through. Paper money finally came to Massachusetts not in the form of a land bank's notes, but as the first issue of government paper money in the world, apart from medieval China. There is a single exception, the card money of Quebec. In 1685, the governing intendant of Quebec, Monsieur Mules, decided to augment his funds by dividing some playing cards into quarters, 
marking them with various denominations, and then issuing them to pay for wages and materials. Mules took the precaution of ordering the public to accept the cards, that is, legal tender. The cards were later redeemed with specie sent from France. Used repeatedly in Quebec, the money became plain tickets rather than plain cards. Paper money can be issued either by government for direct spending or by a bank, public or private, that lends out money to the public. While the former is cruder and more flagrant, it actually has less harmful repercussions on the economy. For given the same amount of monetary issue, lending out the new money inflicts additional distortion on the loan market and interest rates, which fact generates the familiar features of the boom-bust trade cycle. The fateful plunge of Massachusetts into paper money came through direct spending rather than lending. Massachusetts had engaged in an expedition of plunder against French Quebec, an expedition it hoped would more than pay for itself. But as luck would have it, the expedition failed ignominiously, and Massachusetts was faced with the grave problem of paying the salaries of its soldiers, who were on the edge of mutiny. The Massachusetts government tried to borrow from three to four thousand pounds from Boston merchants, but evidently its credit rating was far too low. Proceeding upon the principle that if it could not raise money, it must print its own, Massachusetts decided in December 1690 to issue seven thousand pounds in paper note. Now the government knew that it could not simply print paper, irredeemable in species, labeled pounds for then no one would have accepted the money. The market value of the money would then have plummeted sharply in relation to dollars or sterling. Massachusetts, therefore, made a twofold pledge as it issued the notes. It promised to redeem the notes in specie out of revenue in a few years, and it pledged to issue no further bills. In fact, the bills continued in use for almost 40 years, and the pledge limit evaporated in a few months. The heady attraction of printing one's own money is always enough to overcome initially timid limits. As early as February 1691, Massachusetts acknowledged that the emission fell far short, and so it proceeded to issue 40,000 pounds of new money to repay all of the colony's debts again pledging this issue to be the final limit. Massachusetts indeed found very quickly that its scarcity of money could not be relieved by creating more. In that era, when people still had the right to own gold and silver, the loss of value of each unit of money was dramatized and intensified by market discounting of paper against specie. These discounts reflected not only the increase in the supply of money, but also rises or declines in its demand, governed largely by shifts in public confidence in the value of the new money. The Massachusetts notes, in fact, began to depreciate against specie almost as soon as they were issued. In a year they had depreciated by as much as 40%. Two pamphlets issued in 1691 berated the people for being delinquent 
in permitting the notes to depreciate. They did not think to criticize the issue itself. The author of the pamphlets lamented that while some private bills were passing at par with specie, our people, in this pure air, be so sottish as to deny credit to the government when tis of their own choosing. In 1692, however, the government moved to the use of force and eliminated the discount in two ways, by making the government issues compulsory legal tender for all debts and by granting a premium of 5% on all payment of debts to the government made in the paper notes. From that point on, Massachusetts turned on the monetary engine for its public expenditures. The notes were still supposed to be redeemed eventually in tax revenues. At first, the pledges were one year ahead, so that notes issued in 1702 were to be paid out of pledged tax revenues in 1703. As time went on, however, the future kept receding further and further, and more and more years of future revenue were pledged in advance. By 1714, six years of Massachusetts revenue were so pledged, and by 1722, future pledges stretched ahead by 13 years. The artificial maintenance of the paper at par had the unwanted effect of Gresham's law, that when a poor and a superior money are kept at an artificial ratio by the government, the money undervalued by government will disappear into exports or hoards, and only the overvalued money will remain in circulation. In 1690, before the orgy of paper began, 200,000 pounds of silver money were available in New England. By 1714, 240,000 pounds of paper money had been issued in New England, but the silver had disappeared from circulation. Massachusetts had increased the inferior money in circulation at the expense of displacing the superior. Furthermore, market depreciation against silver had only been checked for a time. The push of the Massachusetts issues over the brink came in 1711, when 500,000 pounds in notes were issued to pay merchants for the failure of another plunder expedition against Quebec. The issue led to the hoarding and exporting of silver, and to a 30% depreciation against silver. For while the Massachusetts money was officially seven shillings to the silver ounce, it had now fallen on the market to nine shillings per ounce. By 1714, Massachusetts, after a generation of hopefully alleviating its so-called scarcity of money, found itself with its silver gone and with the paper money, despite its efforts, rapidly depreciating. It was faced, therefore, with yet another shortage of money and with a crossroads. Either it could begin to return from paper to silver, or it could embark on a massive, eventually more than self-defeating, issue of yet more paper money. The former course was not seriously considered. Instead, a conflict arose on the proper inflationary path to follow. Merchants and debtors wanted to enjoy some of the blessings of cheap money, 
and a group of them tried to reactivate the land bank plan of 1688. The leader of the private land bank scheme was John Coleman, a prominent Boston merchant and real estate speculator. Other leading supporters were Edward Lyde, a Boston merchant and a heavy debtor in the 1711 expedition against Quebec, Timothy Thornton, Boston shipbuilder and real estate speculator, John Oulton and William Payne, Boston real estate speculators. The equally eminent objectors, headed by Attorney General Paul Dudley, son of the governor, prevailed with plans for further government issue. Specifically, the private land bank was rejected by the general court and a public land bank established instead. The latter's notes were made legal tender, and in 1716 it issued 100,000 pounds in notes to be loaned in real estate in the various counties. The 1716 issue added at once a huge 40% to the colony's paper supply, and prices were raised so rapidly that objections to paper money began to be voiced. An anonymous pamphleteer in The Present Melancholy Circumstances, 1719, and an addition to The Present Melancholy Circumstances, 1719, pointed out that monetary issues had led to a doubled cost of living in twenty years to depreciation and to the disappearance of Spanish silver through the operation of Gresham's law. The author advocated calling in some of the notes in order to increase the value of the money. He trenchantly concluded that a law can penalize and restrict, but it can't change men's minds to make them think a piece of paper is a piece of money. By 1718, Massachusetts had made a valiant effort to reduce its bills in circulation by allowing retirement of notes as loans were repaid. But by this time, the other colonies had taken a lesson from Massachusetts, and New England colonies were bound to honor each other's notes. Long Island had already issued 40,000 pounds in legal tender loan bills, as a result, the price of silver in New England shillings continued its disquieting rise. By 1720, it had climbed to 13 shillings per ounce. With depreciation worsening and silver disappearing, the cry arose once more against a shortage of money, and John Coleman returned to the fray, again urging a private land bank to emit 200,000 pounds in notes. Coleman urged farmers to support such a bank, since the increased currency would raise prices of farm produce and land. Coleman also urged a law that would prohibit the depreciation of banknotes and would fix the price of silver at eight shillings per ounce. Such a law would have been impossible to enforce and would have aggravated the shortage of silver by artificially overvaluing paper in relation to specie. Coleman denounced the government bank for not being inflationary enough. The agitation for a private land bank was joined by the Reverend John Wise, but without success. Another public issue of 50,000 pounds in 1721 was enough to quiet the agitation, which was evidently concerned with more inflation rather than with private as against public banking. 
Throughout the colonies, the crown, propelled by English creditors, was a continuing force for sound money, and its embattled governors attempted to veto paper issues and to moderate the inflationary drive. But the legislatures often threatened to withhold executive salaries and even issued money on their own authority. Increasing royal pressure on Massachusetts, imposed especially by Governor Jonathan Belcher after 1730, managed to reduce the notes in circulation by one-half by 1741. Belcher steadily enforced a limit of 30,000 pounds of notes per year to be payable in one year's time. Neighboring Rhode Island, however, with its elected governor, was able to go hog-wild, and its note issue, being acceptable in Massachusetts, thwarted the Belcher reductions. Thus, Rhode Island emitted 100,000 pounds of notes in 1733 alone. As a result, silver rose further to 19 shillings per ounce, and by the late 1730s to 27 shillings an ounce. The other colonies followed the lead of Massachusetts during Queen Anne's War to pay for military expenditures. South Carolina was the first to issue paper, in 1703, to pay for an abortive plunder expedition against St. Augustine. Rhode Island began its reckless career of inflation in 1710 to pay for its share of an aggressive expedition against Port Royal in Nova Scotia. By 1740, the following colonies had indulged in paper issue for government spending. Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, South Carolina, and North Carolina. Public loan banks were initiated by South Carolina in 1712 for loans on real or personal estates. Almost all the other colonies followed suit. By 1740, only Virginia had refused to join the ranks. The Carolinas indeed had indulged so heavily that the price of silver rose to 30 shillings in 1730, and paper money played a large role in South Carolina's rebellion against the proprietary, which had refused to assent to paper money. Other struggles between legislature and governor took place in New Hampshire, where during the 1730s the legislature refused all funds for five years in order to win its way for paper issues, and in New Jersey and New York, which did the same. In all cases, the legislature was able to use its control of funds to win its point. Down to the middle of the 18th century, Virginia was content with a decidedly non-inflationary form of paper money. From 1713 on, the Virginia government established public tobacco warehouses, which issued warehouse receipts called tobacco notes, backed 100% by the amount of tobacco in the warehouse. These notes then functioned as a perfect equivalent to commodity money in tobacco. By the time of the French and Indian War in the late 1750s, however, Virginia moved to issue paper money as part of the financing of its role in the war effort. Interestingly enough, the first advocate of government paper issues in Virginia during the French and Indian War was Landon Carter, one of the largest and most influential tobacco planters in Virginia. Most reckless of the colonies was Rhode Island. 
which was also particularly lax in waiving repayment of interest and even principal on the loans. The loan banks in Rhode Island were controlled by a few government favorites or sharers who loaned out the money at 5% higher than they bought the new issues from the government. The sharers often sold this 5% guaranteed privilege to others for premiums as high as 35%. In 1759, over 50,000 pounds of outstanding loans in Rhode Island were found to be unpaid and uncollectible, and this constituted a full 11% of the outstanding note issue for the land banks of that colony. The Rhode Islanders had a particular economic incentive for their wild issue of new money. A small colony with many purchases to make in Massachusetts Bay, Rhode Island's money was accepted at par in the neighboring colony. Hence the incentive for Rhode Islanders to print themselves new money that could easily be spent before prices in Massachusetts could rise by the same amount thus imposing the main cost of their inflation upon the people of Massachusetts. If Rhode Island was the most inflationary of the colonies, Maryland was the most bizarre. In 1733, Maryland's public land bank issued 70,000 pounds of paper notes. Of these, 40,000 pounds were loaned out in the usual manner of landed security, but the remaining notes were given away in a fixed amount to each inhabitant of Maryland. This was done to spend and universalize the circulation of the new notes, which, of course, quickly depreciated. However, the impact of the new paper was greatly lessened by tobacco still being the major money of the colony. Tobacco was legal tender in Maryland, and the paper was not receivable for all taxes. All the colonial paper was made legal tender, it being recognized that otherwise the paper would not be accepted in private debts. The legal tender was at the official par value in specie, but this coercion was not enough, as we have seen, to prevent grievous depreciation, even though backed by fines, imprisonment, and complete confiscation of property in punishment for not accepting the paper at par. And, as we have also seen, complaints of a scarcity of money followed each new emission of paper and set up a clamor for still more accelerated inflation. Hardest hit by the severe depreciation of all the notes were non-debtors, especially creditors, fixed income groups, charitable endowments, and laborers whose wages, as has generally been true, rose less than prices. Thus, in 1712, when silver in Massachusetts was priced at eight shillings per ounce, wages of laborers averaged five shillings a day. In 1730, with silver appreciated to 29 shillings an ounce, wages were only 12 shillings a day. In short, the price of silver, a reflection of the price movements of imports and indeed of prices in general, rose three and one-half times, while wages had risen only two and one-half times. By 1740, the indefatigable Coleman was ready to renew agitation for a private land bank in Massachusetts. The critical factor in amassing support was the change in Massachusetts land policy. Before 1720, the province had required actual settlement 
before granting new land to private persons or groups. But after that date, Massachusetts engaged in an orgy of grants to land speculators who held title to the virgin land until they could resell to actual settlers at a profit. This land speculation was particularly rampant during the 1730s. Much of the land was on the New Hampshire border, where a boundary dispute prevailed with a neighboring colony. The new host of land speculators was anxious for an inflationary land bank. Through the 1730s, the Massachusetts General Court had been able to evade Governor Belcher's restrictions on paper issues by postponing debates on redemption. Finally, in 1739, the Crown insisted the bills be called in and redeemed on the dates due. This meant that the 250,000 pounds of paper in circulation would have to be reduced to the annual 30,000 pound limit by 1741. One way to evade this restriction, however, would be to set up a private land bank, and at the invitation of the General Court for suggestions for ways to inflate the money supply, John Coleman resubmitted his old scheme. While it was largely a land bank emitting irredeemable notes, Coleman broadened the appeal by permitting loans on personal property as well. It was also proposed that loans be repayable, not only in banknotes, but also in such commodities as hemp and iron, the aim being to subsidize local manufacture of these products. A competing group of merchants made a rather sounder proposal, the notes of which bank could at least be redeemable in specie after 15 years. Both proposals were led by prominent and wealthy citizens, while the competing silver bank was backed by such wealthy Boston merchants as James Bowden, Samuel Wells, Joshua Winslow, and Andrew Oliver, the subscribers to and directors of the land bank included Samuel Adams, a wealthy Boston brewer, Peter Chardon, son-in-law of Coleman and one of Boston's wealthiest merchants, the wealthy Roxbury lawyer and landowner Robert Ockmoody. George Leonard of Norton, a large iron manufacturer and one of the biggest landowners in New England, and Samuel Watts, a merchant who owned a third of the land in Chelsea. Throughout the towns of Massachusetts, large landowners and land speculators were conspicuous in the ranks of land bank subscribers. The assembly favored the land bank, but Governor Belcher and the council refused to agree to either scheme. Failing to obtain incorporation, both the land bank and the silver bank proceeded to print new money anyway. During 19... Failing to obtain incorporation, both the land bank and the silver bank proceeded to print new money anyway during 1740, and Belcher was not able to persuade the assembly to outlaw these emissions. The new land bank issued over 49,000 pounds in notes, a hardly risky enterprise since the bank could issue pure money without having to redeem it in anything else. Governor Belcher promptly and properly used his position to warn the people of Massachusetts against this private inflation. He warned that the notes were unsound and tended to defraud men of their substance. 
Belcher also formed an alliance with the Silver Bank, persuading the latter to make its bills far sounder by agreeing to redeem them in specie upon demand. The Silver Bank refused to accept land bank notes, while the governor removed all government officials who received or paid land bank notes, going to the extent of prohibiting lawyers from receiving the notes when pleading cases before the council. Many merchants and businessmen, including 145 in Boston and 74 in Newport, publicly agreed not to accept any of the unsound land bank notes. The idea of a land bank for one's own creation of money out of thin air enchanted many in Massachusetts. The number of subscribers to this open sesame for profit soon swelled from nearly 400 to over 900. Moreover, petitions for more land banks arose in several other towns and counties in the province. The enthusiasm, indeed, for the land bank was easily comprehensible. A majority of assemblymen were themselves subscribers. But if stockholders were delighted, the note holders were not. In six months' time, the public was almost universally refusing to accept the notes. Inflationists are always prone to blame everyone but themselves for the consequences of their own actions. As the land bank notes began to depreciate and to be refused in trade, land bankers began to mutter about a march on Boston to try to force merchants to accept the notes. The final blow to the mischievous land bank was delivered by Parliament, which in 1741 granted the request of several Massachusetts merchants and of Governor Belcher, and outlawed land banks in Massachusetts. The prohibition covered the Silver Bank as well. We have noted the predominance of the wealthy and of large land speculators in forming the land bank. Unfortunately, historians have been misled by two contemporary opponents of the bank who denounced its supporters as being plebeians and insolvents of low condition. In those days, being poor and insolvent was deemed a reproach rather than an automatic badge of merit, and it is important not to be misled by the denunciations of contemporary opponents. Hardly had the land bank and a return to sounder money begun, however, when the vast expenses on the self-defeating expedition against Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island led to a great inflation and expansion of paper money in Massachusetts. In 1744, the total amount of paper money outstanding in Massachusetts was 300,000 pounds. With large amounts of new paper issued beginning in February, the total supply of notes in Massachusetts rose to 1,500,000 pounds in two years. In a short while, circulation of paper notes totaled 1.9 million pounds, and by 1748, the outstanding sum of paper money in Massachusetts had risen almost to 2.5 million pounds. The price of silver rose to 60 shillings an ounce, tenfold the amount at the beginning of the century. Original self-imposed limits on note issue had long since been forgotten, and early promises of yearly redemption were also forgotten, as the period of future pledges of revenue gradually lengthened to twenty-five years. 
In some colonies, interest and principal on the loans were in extensive default. The saga of paper money inflation and its depreciation was repeated from colony to colony. Demands for more money, leading to depreciation in higher prices, set up further an accelerated clamor for yet more money to alleviate the continuing scarcity. If the original par between sterling and the dollar is taken at 100, then sterling in Massachusetts was down to 133 in 1702, one dollar equaling six shillings. By 1740, Massachusetts sterling had depreciated to 550, and by 1750 to 1,100, a depreciation of 11 to 1 compared with par. Depreciation in Connecticut had reached 9 to 1 by that time, and in North Carolina and South Carolina, depreciation had reached 10 to 1. In virulently inflationist Rhode Island, sterling had sunk to 23 to 1. The least depreciated paper was the least inflated in Pennsylvania, but even here specie had appreciated to 80% over par. Finally, after the end of King George's War, Parliament decided to grant Massachusetts a substantial sum as compensation for its expenditures during the war. Massachusetts wisely decided to use the funds to return to a hard money and to redeem the paper at the current depreciated rate of seven and a half to one. Connecticut followed with retirement of paper at a rate of eight and five six to one and New Hampshire retired some notes a few years later. The panicky opponents of specie resumption made the predictions usually made in such a situation. The result would be a virtual absence of money in the colony and the consequent ruination of all trade. They even threatened an uprising and thus provoked a right act for its suppression. After a temporary adjustment, however, this resumption, of course, led to a far more prosperous trade and production, the harder money and lower price attracting an inflow of specie. In fact, the prosperity wrought by hard money was dramatically embodied in the blow delivered to Newport. Newport had been a flourishing center of West Indian imports for sections of Massachusetts, but after 1750, with Massachusetts on specie, and Rhode Island still on depreciated paper, Newport lost its trade to Boston and languished in the doldrums. The English government, at the behest of the understandable complaints of English merchants and creditors defrauded by paper money, opposed the issue of paper money in the colonies. Royal governors had tried to repress the inflation, but were defeated by the Assembly's appropriations. Finally, Parliament in 1751 prohibited all further legal tender issues of paper money in New England. Bills were to be redeemed when due. The colonies could still issue treasury notes for a brief period, but not with legal tender powers. However, Virginia, the last colony to succumb to the lure of money creation, joined the pack in 1755 as did the new colony of Georgia. By the 1760s, Virginia paper had fallen to a discount of 50 to 60 percent. 
It attempted to form a public loan bank, but that was vetoed by the governor. In 1764, Parliament finally extended the prohibition of any further monetary issues from New England to all the other colonies, and it also required the gradual retirement of outstanding notes. The leniency on retirement, however, as well as the provisions for treasury notes, managed to keep a great deal of paper in circulation for the remainder of the colonial period. Although the new notes could not be legal tender, they were somewhat maintained in value by being made receivable in taxes. All in all, by 1774, the estimated monetary circulation in the American colonies was $14 million, of which 50 to 60 percent was paper notes. We have indicated that the drive for paper money was led by prominent men in each colony. The economic arguments were highly simplistic, basically that more money was needed and therefore should be printed. The Reverend Cotton Mather added such typical arguments as that money is a counter and paper money would be an advantage in never leaving the colony, that is, it wasn't really money since it could not be used for imports. Mather also denounced hoarding because it obstructed the circulation of money. It was often maintained that paper money did not depreciate, but rather that silver appreciated due to demands for its export. Such an argument was used, for example, by Benjamin Franklin in his venal campaign for paper notes that he personally would be paid to print laying blame on the export of specie as if it were an uncaused act of God was typical. Thus Massachusetts thought that prohibition on the export of silver would arrest the depreciation of paper. Of course it did not. It should be noted that the most enthusiastic supporters of the public land banks and paper money in Pennsylvania were the merchants who were able to lobby effectively in England with the aid of Quaker bankers and merchants there. The wealthy merchant and land speculator Francis Rawl was one of the leaders of the paper money movement in Pennsylvania. On the other hand, the proprietary, whose accruing quit-rents were fixed in terms of money, strongly opposed rotten and vile paper money. In notoriously inflationist Rhode Island, Governor Richard Ward, a prominent Newport merchant, argued in 1740 that paper money had been spent on valuable public works and contended that its depreciation was due to the wickedness of the merchants rather than to economic law. The most prominent advocates of paper money in Rhode Island, it should be noted, were the wanton family of Newport, two brothers of which were respectively the wealthiest merchant and the leading shipbuilder in the colony. If merchants were the leaders in agitating for paper money, other merchants took the lead in opposition. At various times, opposition to paper was expressed by Samuel Sewell, Thomas Hutchinson, and other prominent merchants of Boston, by merchants of Salem, Philadelphia, Hartford, Newport, and South Carolina, and by leaders of Providence in New York City. In 1750, a group of citizens of Rhode Island astutely charged that the main insiders of inflation 
were big landlords who had mortgaged their land in loans from the government and who now wished to pay their debts in a relatively worthless currency. In its argumentation, the opposition began to develop the analysis of paper money that we have set forth above. The opponents pointed out, for example, that there is no sense to complaints of scarcity of money, since one can always buy specie on the market. They added that the clamor about scarcity was always worse after paper money had been issued than before. Thus, five keen Rhode Island legislators wrote in 1740 that this bank would probably so far depreciate the whole paper currency that we shall have in reality a less medium of exchange and all complaints of scarcity of money greatly increased. And we have noted the contributions of the anonymous author of The Present Melancholy Circumstances in remarking the consequences of paper money in depreciation and in driving out specie. Unquestionably, the leading hard money theoretician of the colonial era was Dr. William Douglas, a Scottish physician and scientist who had settled in Boston. Douglas, whose contributions were commended by Adam Smith and by important classical economists in the next century, began his rise to influence with his Discourse Concerning the Currencies of the British Plantations in America, Boston, 1740. The discourse was also an important statement of the Massachusetts opposition to the land bank. Douglas wove together the various strands of our analysis. He understood the various fallacies of the scarcity of money outcry, the workings of Gresham's law, the distress that paper wreaked on creditors, laborers, and fixed-income groups, and the special privilege it conferred on debtors and the depreciation caused by paper money issues. Douglas understood that paper issues were a form of taxation on the public. He also saw that it is the increase of paper that renders the balance of trade unfavorable by adding to spending for imported goods. And finally, Douglas realized that increasing the quantity of money only depreciates the value of each unit, so that a larger supply of money does no better or greater work for society than a smaller. Conversely, specie instead of paper notes will lower prices, attract specie, and balance foreign trade. Douglas, however, was inconsistent enough to favor private banknotes redeemable in specie, which would not exceed a certain vague proportion of specie reserve. One important repercussion of the land bank controversy was its effect on political representation in Massachusetts. Far from a seaboard aristocracy being dominant in the assembly, the law of 1692 had established representation in the assembly of one or two from each town, with the exception of Boston, which could send four. This meant that as the colony grew, and new towns were created, the assembly became more and more heavily dominated by the rural towns. Furthermore, each representative had to be a resident of the particular town. Indeed, the small towns regarded themselves as overrepresented. 
The smallest towns were not compelled to send representatives if they didn't want to, and the next smaller towns were repeatedly trying to extend this cost-saving privilege to themselves. Thus, the cost and trouble of sending representatives were usually deemed greater than the advantages to be gained. Often towns accepted fines by the lower house rather than to bother sending representatives. Undoubtedly, this lackadaisical attitude reflected the relative unimportance of government in the daily lives of the people. The land bank controversy, however, spurred the Massachusetts towns to sending more of their full complement to the legislature. Alarmed that the assembly could use its increasing numbers to overwhelm the council, Governor William Shirley vetoed the division of old towns into new, and urged that in the future no new districts have power of representation. This restriction on representation from new population centers was adopted by the British government and enforced in Massachusetts for almost two decades. Since the lower house already far outnumbered the council and chose each new council annually and jointly with the old, the Massachusetts Assembly was therefore already in effective control of the council. The new policy thus provided an irritant to colonial relations without affecting the basic dominance of the Massachusetts lower house. By the early 1760s, the Crown was progressively forced to modify the ban on representation of new towns. The close of the French and Indian War led to a rapid population expansion in Maine, and the new Maine towns clamored for representation. The Lords of Trade finally agreed and consented to representation from new towns in Massachusetts proper although they still balked at representation from newly divided towns. Finally, in 1767, the Crown gave up completely and abandoned its futile attempt to check the power of the Assembly by restricting its representation.